on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel, who will be joining us a little later on in our show. Welcome to the mop up for August 30th, August 30th. It's uh, 79 degrees and partly sunny here in Manhattan. I'm coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage and I've had no sleep, no sleep, but I'm kicking ass and forgetting names. Our top story, millions of Americans are worried about eviction. Millions and millions of Americans right now are worried about eviction, but don't worry, the CDC has extended their moratorium on all evictions. It was Cori Bush. She sat on the steps of the Capitol and she got something accomplished by sleeping on the steps of our Capitol. More gets accomplished on the steps of our Capitol than inside it right now. Joe Biden, if you remember, forgot that Judge Kavanaugh had issued a ruling about the CDC moratorium saying this can only last a couple of weeks. You got to pass legislation. Congress was going off to recess two days before Congress goes off to recess. Joe Biden tells Nancy Pelosi, 
Oh, I forgot to tell you, the eviction moratorium, it's going to expire and the Supreme Court will only let it stand if it's a piece of legislation. But Nancy Pelosi said, no, it's summer recess. But Cori Bush slept on the, the steps of the Capitol. You get more done sleeping on the steps of the Capitol, apparently, than sleeping inside the Capitol. That's what Nancy Pelosi did on the evictions. And Biden risked it, and he just forced the CDC to issue another moratorium. And it looks like it's going to hold for, wait, the Supreme Court? In a six to three opinion, the court said the CDC does not have the authority to keep the moratorium going. Wait, I thought the Supreme Court doesn't come back till October. Why is the Supreme Court getting rid of uh, the eviction moratorium? What, what could what? Why would they do that? Landlords have lost as much as 19 billion dollars a month since the moratorium began. I see. That's why the landlord that's why the landlords or the Supreme Court. That's why they came back from their vacation for this. All right. Uh, let's think about the landlords, right? They're they're simple Americans who want passive income. They're mom and pops. We always think of Donald Trump and Jared Kushner as landlords. But the truth is, as I'm told by the lawyers representing the National Landlords Association, that these are mom and pop operations who are very sympathetic, like like this landlord. Where do we get the money to keep paying the bills? Where do we get the money to keep supporting the tenants? Who's going to pay back the debt that I've incurred? See, where is she going to get the money? She's racking up debt. It's not so easy. Life is complicated. And we have to be sympathetic to landlords. Uh, Who is this landlord? Who, who, Who is she? Deb Pusateri owns 70 buildings in Albany, New York, and says the Supreme Court decision is past due. Uh, she she owns 70 buildings in Albany, New York. How does she get by? How does she get by on only owning 70 billions? How does she? You know what? We're all in this together. We're all, it, this is covid. The economy is shut down for some. Everybody's struggling. I'm sure she's going to work with with the tenants. I'm sure she's going to work with the tenants, right? I will be going down to the courts on Monday and I will be actually submitting eviction paperwork on every single tenant that owes me money to date. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that's the Supreme Court taking care of the landlords. They know what it's like to own property. I expect that for the, from the Supreme Court. They have jobs for life, so they don't know what it's like to be evicted from their job. The Supreme Court identifies with the landlords, but we have a we still have a government that that will take care of us, right? States are currently working to distribute the first half of the $46 billion of emergency funds that have been approved by Congress. See? Congress approved. That was close. We can get things done in America. That was close. 
But Congress approved $46 billion for the renters. So we're uh, we're all taken care of. But the Treasury Department announced Wednesday that only 20 percent of that money has actually made it to renters. Hmm. So the landlords are taken care of in this country. They probably got the vast preponderance of all of that $46 billion that was earmarked for the tenants. But tenants don't have lawyers. Landlords do. And they also have the sheriff, the sheriff. The sheriff is the one who will be evicting you. The police will be evicting you. It's been a horrible, horrible past two weeks. As you know, uh, climate change and, of course, this eviction moratorium and, and the horrible news last week in Afghanistan. And it continues. But when times are tough, especially when we're pulling out of a country like Afghanistan after 20 years, what America needs to be reminded of is that we're tough. That's important. And after that tragedy last week, and uh, we, we felt weak, and we needed a president to remind us that even though we're, you know, leaving Afghanistan with our tail between our legs, we're still tough. For those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I've also ordered my commanders to develop operational plans to strike ISIS-K assets, leadership, and facilities. We will respond with force and precision at our time, at the place we choose, in the moment of our choosing. If it's okay with the Taliban. I love that. I love our president talking tough to the terrorists. And we know where they are. That's why they were able to strike, because we know exactly where they are. And we're going to launch an airstrike and take them out because we have we have drones. We know where all the enemies, where all the bad actors are in Afghanistan. That's why there are never any terrorist attacks. We spend you know, trillions of dollars on drones and surveillance. So we're going to strike those terrorists we, and get get them. And then Joe Biden uh, added this to warn the terrorists. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Yes, because we're Americans with an Irish accent. That's who Joe Biden is. We're going to find these terrorists. That's why we went to Afghanistan to root out terrorists. And we've spent 20 years, countless trillions. We know where the terrorists are and we're going to we're going to get them. And of course, as you've probably heard by now, President Biden, tough talking Joe Biden, 
ordered an airstrike on the terrorists because we know who they are and where they are. We know everything about Afghanistan. So when there's a terrorist explosion, we knew that we knew the terrorists were planning to do that. It was a honey trap. And so he ordered an airstrike. This is from the Washington Post. And it says uh, the Defense Department officials said the military carried out a drone strike on a vehicle in Kabul that posed an imminent threat to Hamid Karzai International Airport. We are confident we successfully hit the target, said Navy Captain Bill Urban, a spokesman for U.S. Central Command. He went on to say significant secondary explosions from the vehicle indicated the presence of a substantial amount of explosive material. We are on top of this. We got them. We got the people who who did this to us because we have the best intelligence agencies in the world. That's from The Washington Post, which goes on to write in a piece entitled U.S. Races to Exit Afghanistan. Urban, the spokesman, went on to say that the U.S. strike on the vehicle was carried out by, quote unquote, over the horizon aircraft, indicating something flown from outside the country. Aircraft with and without crew have been flying armed security missions over Kabul throughout the evacuation effort. So it was a an airstrike ordered by our military, operated probably by a kid in an air-conditioned silo in Arizona. And it's precision. It's this is this is your text. I know we're feeling bad, but when we spend trillions of dollars on defense, we don't depend on the government to build the weapons. We turn it over to Boeing and Raytheon. We can't trust the government. And they give us smart missiles, smart, efficient missiles. And I'm feeling good about ourselves. I'm feeling really good. We got even with Afghanistan. The New York Times, not the New York Times, the Washington Post, like that's any better, goes on to write, in Afghanistan, U.S. officials were checking the extent of the damage in the drone attack. A defense official, speaking on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the issue, said that the strike was carried out with a Hellfire missile. Booyah! Wow, I am hard. Uh, And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is very important to me. I don't like to get pushed around, and and I do. This is why I can live vicariously through our military. I'm sorry. Uh, So they said that the strike was carried out with a Hellfire missile a little more than a mile from the airport, which is in a densely packed urban area. Well, this is why we have precision bombers. This is why we load our drones up with precision weaponry operated by a kid in a silo in Arizona. This is so we can only kill the enemy combatants because, you know, we we, we don't want to kill civilians. That's not what Americans do. The Washington Post goes on to write a secondary explosion. What? damaged a building 
raising the possibility of civilian casualties. We don't we don't uh, we don't kill innocent civilians. That's not who America is. We're trying to spend spend spread and spend uh, freedom and democracy. Why would we kill innocent civilians? The whole purpose of spending all this money on precision weaponry is so there's no what do they call it collateral damage? That's the thing of the past. The Washington Post goes on to write a resident of the neighborhood where the strike occurred and a Taliban official who said he visited the site of the airstrike said in interviews that eight or nine civilians had been killed, including children. Photographs of the scene showed two burnt out cars next to a white two-story house with many of the dwellings windows blown out hmm see how rough it is when we follow what's going on in Afghanistan just ignore it just ignore this stuff it was going on all the time America but we didn't pay attention to it so you know what they if if a a drone strikes in an urban area and we don't see it. Did it really happen? And the answer is no. That's, uh, whew, okay, a little rough. Uh, yeah, I already read that. This is a little depressing. Well, one of the residents, according to the Washington Post, said in a telephone interview that the dead were all members of one family. Three men, a woman, and five children. One child had been seriously injured in the strike and later died, he said. Another child's body was found under a car, said the man, who spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of his safety. That's how we're leaving Afghanistan. That's how we get even with the tragedy of last week by creating more tragedy on our time, our clock, at the hour of our choosing. We will hunt down the people who may have done it or didn't do it. It's, you know, it's hard to say, but uh, that's the way America rolls out of a country. And uh, remember George Bush asked, why, why do they hate us? Remember that? Still can't figure that out. Why do they hate us? Urban, he's the spokesman for the Navy who fired the Hellfire missile, Booyah. Uh, Urban said the military is aware of reports of civilian casualties. He went on to say, we know that there were substantial and powerful subsequent explosions resulting from the destruction of the vehicle, indicating a large amount of explosive material inside that may have caused additional casualties, Urban said. It is unclear what may have happened, and we are investigating further. Urban added that the U.S. military is, quote, deeply saddened by any potential loss of innocent life. So 
they order an airstrike to avenge the deaths of our soldiers. And they're absolutely certain that they have the right intelligence. We can trust our military to fire the, the missile at the right people. And uh, but then they find out their their intelligence didn't anticipate that the car they fired upon might have ammunition in it and it might cause explosions in a, a tightly packed urban area. That's our military. That's our in, that's our intelligence. And uh, well, not good, not good at all. Let's turn to some happier news. I've always said you should not get your news from comedians or comedy writers. And I also don't believe you should get your opinions from comedians or, or comedy writers. They cherry pick information for the laugh. Eventually they begin to believe that the laughs are some sort of truth when in fact they're not, they're just a laugh. And Bill Maher is the smartest pundit, the most well-informed comedian I've ever met. And he surrounds himself with the smartest writers, the smartest producers, and he's on the smartest network, HBO, which doesn't run commercials. So Bill is finally free to speak the truth, to tell it the way it is. That's why everybody wants to be on HBO, because it's unfiltered, unfettered. And Bill Maher has been speaking the truth, what, for 20 years on HBO? And we all tune in because he doesn't pull his punches and he's educated and he's smart. He really is. This isn't sarcasm. He really is the, the, the smartest comedian out there. But uh, I still believe that you should watch Bill, but don't get your opinions from comedians, especially rich comedians who live in a swinish bubble of privilege. Now, you might have heard that Greg, uh, what's his name, Gutfeld on Fox News is now in the right demographic, is now the number one show in late night. It's a Fox News comedy show. And on Real Time with Bill Maher, he was talking with his guest, Caddy Kay from the BBC, and uh, Ralph Reed from the Christian Coalition, the, the bigot responsible for uh, transgender kids committing suicide, Ralph Reed from the Christian Coalition, who hasn't been relevant since the Jack Abramoff scandal. This is a Christian, Ralph Reed, who became a lobbyist with Jack Abramoff and Jack Abramoff, along with uh, the guy who wants to make government so small he can drown it in the bathtub. And Ralph Reed became lobbyists uh, for Indian casinos to, to play the Indian casinos against each other. And Jack Abramoff went to prison. Ralph Reed almost went to prison, but he didn't. Ralph Reed in bed with Jerry Falwell, Christian Coalition. If you're gay, he wants you to commit suicide. 
or get reparative therapy. If you're a transgender person, he's the re he's one of the reasons you're miserable. He's one of the reasons you get beaten up. He's one of the reasons you sometimes entertain suicide. Anyway, Ralph Reed, because it's all fun and games, was on real time with Bill Maher. And, you know, let's mix it up and have people like Ralph Reed, who hasn't been relevant since 2005 on the show. And they were talking about comedy. They were talking about Gutfeld on Fox. And Bill Maher said something really wise. He said that conservatives never really had a a late night talk show because liberals were never funny. It's hard to make fun of liberals. And he said that Gutfeld's show is no good. But if liberals keep it up, if they keep acting, if leftists keep acting so silly, there's going to be a market for a right-wing conservative show. Bill Maher was scolding his audience, which tends to be, uh, you know, liberals, older liberals, you know, and they like to get beaten. They, They like to be flagellated and told they're foolish. That's who the older liberals are. And so here's Bill Maher talking to Caddy Kay from the BBC. Brilliant, brilliant Caddy Kay. And Ralph Reed, a paragon of virtue. Here is uh, Bill Maher explaining why there's going to be a, a, a big market for conservative comedy if we liberals don't get our act together and, and stop acting so stupid. Let's take a listen. There was just this, there was nothing to make fun of. That was that crazy. Now, I don't think it's the same situation. I keep saying to the liberals, you know what? If what you're doing sounds like an onion headline, stop. And that's why, this is why there is an opening for conservative comedy. Because, you know, when you, when you tear down statues of Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. in the land of Lincoln, land of Lincoln cancels Lincoln, it's an onion headline. You know, three-year-olds pick their own gender is an onion headline. You know, a lot of this stuff that goes on on the left now, it's, you know, Seattle votes to decriminalize crime. <laughs> now, the problem is that they don't know how to do comedy. But if they found someone who did, they could. Because I do it more here than I used to. Because comedy goes where the funny is. Mm-hmm. And there is funny on the left now, as well as the right. So, um... Yes. Yeah, let me applaud that. Let me just applaud Ralph Reed. Wow. Ralph Reed nodding his head from the Christian Coalition and the well-informed uh, Caddy Kay from BBC America, who's always on Morning Joe, nodded in agreement because they know that the left, I mean, obviously Bill Bill is the most informed comedian out there. He understands the news and comedy and funny, he knows that the truth is funny. You can only make people laugh 
by telling them the truth. Bill Maher is a truth teller. And I salute you, Bill. And we have to rethink our agenda. We've gone crazy on the left and we're turning into an onion headline. Uh, so let's let's unpack this. Let's try to learn from Bill Maher and see how we can be better leftists and be taken seriously so uh, we don't end up. Uh, well, let's let, let's let's review what we need to do. He gave us three examples uh, that we need to correct. This is why there is an opening for conservative comedy, because, you know, when you when you tear down statues of Abraham Lincoln in the land of Lincoln, land of Lincoln cancels Lincoln. It's an onion headline. You know, three year olds pick their own gender is an onion headline. You know, a lot of this stuff that goes on on the left now, it's, you know, Seattle votes to decriminalize crime. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. We're out of control. The left, we owe you an apology, Bill Maher, and we're going to do better. Uh, so let's uh, let's start with uh, this one first. Let's find out. What the insanity with the let's start getting our house in order here, because, you know, when you when you tear down statues of Abraham Lincoln in the land of Lincoln, land of Lincoln cancels Lincoln. It's an onion headline. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, Bill. We'll do better. We'll, we'll do better. Why are we tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois, where his library, the museum the museum, but I thought, you know what? That can't be true. So why would they do that in Springfield? So I looked it up and, oh my God, Bill is absolutely right. Look at that, Springfield, Lincoln sculpture at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum will soon be taken down, you stupid, Lefty liberals, why didn't you check with the truth teller, Bill Maher? Now we look ridiculous. Whatever problems you have, I know that Abraham Lincoln was problematic. I, I understand that, especially as the genocide of the Native Americans. But still, we, we need heroes, Abraham, and especially in Springfield. That is, that can't, that's, we've got to, Please, Bill Maher, and uh, get it right. We, we can't be tearing down statues of Abraham. Let me read more about this story here. The sculpture has previously been seen at locations in Chicago and the Peoria Riverfront. It was supposed to be taken down and sent on to the next location over the summer, but plans were pushed back. I don't understand. Why? Why was what, what is what 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 is going on here? Bill Maher says that the liberals tore the, the Lincoln statue down. I, what what's going on here? The article says the temporary the what the temporary exhibit was. Thank you, Leslie. The temporary exhibit was installed at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum on May 22nd, 2019 through a joint initiative between the museum and the city of Springfield. Oh, I got it. I got it. 
It's a traveling statue. They didn't tear down the Abraham Lincoln Museum, uh, the the Abraham Lincoln statue. It's a it was temporary. It's a it's a a statue uh, that they that travels around Illinois. So, ooh, let me just drink a little coffee here because it's tough when the truth teller uh, didn't tell us the truth. But that doesn't make any sense. I mean, he's. He's on HBO and he's got like 10 writers and producers and he surrounds himself with this. How did that? I don't know how that slipped through. Good coffee. This has this coffee has vitamins in it. I don't know how that you know what? I'm sure he'll issue an apology next week. But the point is, it you know, don't the facts right now don't matter. The point is we're at an onion headline and we have to take Bill Maher's advice and get more serious. And who better to tell us to get serious than a very serious comedian who understands comedy. So thank you, Bill, for that advice. And you know what, in all fairness, you did, you got it wrong about the statue in Springfield, Illinois. You you were completely wrong. You completely shit the bed. It's not an onion headline. The land of Lincoln did not cancel Abraham Lincoln. And uh, nobody's canceling Abraham Lincoln. They're canceling some statues of Abraham Lincoln. So, you know, you are on to uh, you are on to something in Boston. This is from the Associated Press. William J. Cole, uh, <laughs> right? He wrote, William J. Cole wrote on December 29th, 2020, the headline is Statue of Lincoln with a Freed Kneeling Slave has been removed in Boston. Hmm. So they don't like the statue of Lincoln and they're tearing it down. Uh, okay. Is that. Are we are we an onion? That doesn't look like an onion headline to me. That looks like a headline from uh, the Associated Press. Statue of Lincoln with a freed kneeling slave has been removed in Boston. Associated Press. That's not the onion. Well, what's going on? Uh, That seems rather serious. Uh, Maybe we can get an academic to explain this to us. Associated Press spoke with uh, actually Boston 25 must be a news station there. Uh, Boston 25 spoke with Boston University professor Raul Fernandez, who studied the monument and what it represents. Fernandez, Professor Fernandez, says the statue uses a subservient black man as a prop to lift to a white savior. He added that Abraham Lincoln deserves respect, but it shouldn't come this way. Hmm. Wow. Maybe instead of uh, Ralph Reed, who's responsible for transgender people committing suicide, and I mean that, uh, instead of having Ralph Reed, who hasn't been relevant since 2003 or 2004, why don't you have Professor Fernandez? on the show. You're a truth teller, Bill. 
and said, you have somebody who lies about the Bible, Ralph Reed. But it's, you know, hey, come on. It's just a game. This is just a way to make money. There are no consequences to your words. If you are an anti-vaxxer and you reach millions of people, there are no consequences. It's just a game. It's just fun. It's just a way to kick back and, you know, play devil's advocate. So this is the the statue. I apologize to my podcast listeners. You can't see this. But this is the statue that was taken down in Boston. It is a an African-American slave kneeling at the feet of Abraham Lincoln. I defer to African-Americans on this one. Personally, I think it's degrading to African-Americans, but it's not up to me to decide what's offensive and what isn't. And a vast preponderance of African-Americans in Boston have hated this statue since it first went up. It was funded, it turns out, by African-Americans who turned it over to a white sculptor. This was about 100 years ago. And the white sculptor didn't consult the African-American community and they made it, the sculptor made it the way he wanted to make it. And it, it really is, according to black people who have hated this for close to 100 years, demeaning. And I see why it's demeaning. It implies uh, something very paternalistic that black people needed Abraham Lincoln to free them. There were no black people. This is the implication of that statue. It's that black people had nothing to do with their own liberation. So I don't really think that tearing down a statue that features a subservient slave at the feet of Abraham Lincoln. I don't think it's crazy lefties and liberals, Bill, who are saying tear down these Lincoln statues because he's just as bad as Robert E. Lee. He's just as bad as, no, no. That's why they're tearing down the Abraham Lincoln statues. And yes, there are some people on the left in San Francisco who decided to rename Abraham Lincoln High School because they've decided they don't approve of Abraham Lincoln's treatment of Native Americans. That's for a whole other discussion. But Abraham Lincoln uh, is guilty of genocide. And a truth teller like you, Bill Maher, would and should celebrate High school students being told not to worship false idols and understand that our history is complicated and that it's a good thing in America. It's a good thing to decide that Abraham Lincoln, his name should be removed from our school. You should celebrate that, Bill. They're being contrarians. They're doing it because they know people are going to get pissed off. Something you do for fun and profit. So there isn't any craziness with Abraham Lincoln on the left. And I'll tell you the, the, the danger of doing that, of saying the lefties and the liberals are trying to tear down the Abraham Lincoln statues. You're both siding 
something where there are no both there aren't both sides to this. In other words, now the the racists in America who are fighting to keep the Robert E. Lee, the Jefferson Davis statue in in Statuary Hall in Congress, the ones who are fighting to remove those statues, which I happen to believe uh, we should remove Robert E. Lee's statue. And I don't think Jefferson Davis should be in Statuary Hall in, in Congress. When you start misrepresenting the argument by saying that, oh, the crazy leftists, you know, nothing pleases them. Now they want to get rid of uh, Abraham Lincoln. That lie, because I know you know the truth. You're you're the smart. Bill Maher, you are the smart. I mean this. You are the smartest comic working today. And you surround yourself with this writing staff. It's unbelievable. I don't know how much. I mean, these guys are they are amazing. And I know you listen to them and I know you listen to your producers and I know you listen to HBO and your audience. It's dangerous to uh, lie like that because, you know, the truth, you knew the story, you knew you're way too smart, Bill. You knew the truth about that statue, the Lincoln statue in Springfield. You knew it wasn't being torn down by lefties. It was just part of a traveling exhibit. You knew that. You lied, Bill. You lied and you created that false equivalency that allows statues of Robert E. Lee and and Jefferson Davis to remain standing by spreading that lie that you tell about Abraham Lincoln's statue. Little African-American children on their way to school in the South still have to look at generals, Confederate leaders who uh, are responsible not just for slavery, but bigotry and lynchings. We don't want to celebrate the Confederacy. They lost. Those statues have to come down. So you lied, Bill, about those Abraham Lincoln statues, which is odd because great comedy comes from truth tellers like you, Bill Maher. Okay, so let's move on and go. uh, What did you you talked about? What did you say about Seattle? We laughed at Seattle, didn't we? All us smart people who subscribe to HBO and watch Bill Maher. We got to laugh at Seattle. What did you say, Bill? You know, a lot of this stuff that goes on on the left now, it's, you know, Seattle votes to decriminalize crime. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and the audience applauded. Yes, yes, because we, you know, we want to be punished, Bill. We're, We're liberals, but punish us. Tell us how silly we are. Seattle wants to uh, legalize crime. I get it. If they legalize crime, then it's not a crime anymore. Oh, my God. What is wrong with the left? Teach us, Bill. Teach us what what we can do. So Seattle, and I know they have a socialist on the city council. She was on the show. They have lefties there. Hmm. Okay. 
now let's get into this. Let's go. They want to. What did he say? You know, a lot of this stuff that goes on on the left now, it's, you know, Seattle votes to decriminalize crime. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's find out what this is about, because uh, that can't be true. I would never visit. Would you visit Seattle if they've decriminalized crime? No. Uh, Let's find out what this story says. Uh, This is from Sidney Brownstone. Hmm. I wonder what kind of uh, home she lives in. Probably uh, an apartment, not a... Okay, sorry. This is from the Seattle... It was a Brownstone joke. Uh, The Seattle Times, Sidney Brownstone writes, June 23rd, 2020. I just lost it. Let me do that again. Oh, you bastard. She writes, two years after a work group... Oh, the headline is Seattle votes to repeal loitering laws. I looked this up. I wanted to find out, is Seattle decriminalizing crime? So this is from the Seattle Times, June 23rd, 2020. Headline, Seattle votes to repeal loitering laws. Hmm, loitering. That that would be a, a is that a crime? I, that's, and it says, two years after a work group convened by the city, recommended that Seattle drop its drug traffic and prostitution loitering laws, the Seattle City Council on Monday unanimously voted to strike the ordinances from the books. Seattle City Council members celebrated the Monday vote as a step away from a criminal justice system that disproportionately targets people of color. That's interesting. There must be more to this story because Bill Maher told us that Seattle is decriminalizing crime. Certainly, Bill Maher would uh, not be against uh, prostitutes and drug dealers being treated. uh, Well, okay, not going to go there. Uh, The point is there has to be more to this story because Bill Maher on HBO with his multi, multi multi-million dollar budget with researchers and writers and producers at his disposal. There's no way that Bill Maher would toss off a Beaumont. A Beaumont? Is that the term? Like Seattle decriminalizes crime. It's an onion headline. That's funny. And we all laughed at Seattle. There's no way that Bill Maher, the smartest comic working on television, would get the story wrong. And there's no way he would be against Seattle getting rid of loitering laws. He's a libertarian. And so he's he doesn't want the police arresting people for uh, drug dealing, which Bill is pretty open. I think even on last week's show, he said he used to be a drug dealer and prostitution. I, I think Bill is, is a prostitute. I, I think he's been pretty open that he's prostituting himself on HBO. So Why would he say that? There must be more to the story. So let's see. Tell me what the Seattle Times, Sydney Brownstone, Seattle votes to repeal loitering laws. She writes, they passed this law, but community groups and public defenders are now asking city leaders to take a step further and decriminalize most misdemeanors currently enforced by the city. Hmm. 
that's interesting. The loitering laws, and back to the loitering laws. Uh, the loitering laws, uh, she writes, proceeded in this country, were preceded in this country by racist Jim Crow era vagrancy laws designed to restrict the freedom of formerly enslaved people. Oh, I get it. That's why. So it's Bill. Yeah, he can't. Be, Bill cannot be talking about these loitering laws. Bill Maher, the smartest comedian on, on television, knows that loiter, getting rid of loitering laws is justice. The Jim Crow era vagrancy laws. I mean, he's he saw the documentary, The 13th Amendment. He read Michelle Alexander's book about vagrancy laws, which were designed to bring back slavery after the Civil War. Our prison system, our police. Bill knows this. He's smart. And he's a friend of the blacks. That's why, you know, when he said the N-word two or three years ago and got into trouble, it was okay because he's, you know, he's an honorary black man. So he knows this. He knows that vagrancy laws were set up after Reconstruction so that in the South, black people who were just hanging out could be accused of loitering, of being vagrants, and then they would be sent to a prison, a work farm, and they were slaves again. Bill knows this. It's the loophole in the 13th Amendment that says slavery is against the law, except except if you're in prison, right? Bill knows the loophole in the 13th Amendment that allows for prison labor in America, something that Bill is against. Bill is against prison labor. So he would be against these vagrancy laws that have morphed into laws against loitering. So there's no way that Bill Maher would ever, ever be against the Seattle City Council for getting rid of these loitering laws. This is something Bill stands for. So I don't understand what we're doing wrong, Daddy. Explain to me, Daddy, what, what, what we did wrong. You're scolding us. You're telling us that, that you know, we're on the left and that audience, they're all lefties in your audience. Smart, smart lefties who read a lot. Explain to us what we're doing wrong. We're, we're an onion headline, Bill. We're silly. I, so I don't understand why that, but there must be something else. There must be something else going on in, in Seattle, uh, getting rid of those loitering laws. Uh, Seattle Times goes on to write, the Seattle City Attorney's Office filed, well, that, that, that's, that's not a public defender. The, you know, the Seattle City Attorney, that's the guy, that's a prosecutor. He or she filed fewer than 300 charges on both drug trafficking and loitering and prostitution loitering counts in 2009, according to an analysis by the Seattle Times, with the exception of one case filed earlier this year, which the city attorney's office says was a mistake. The city attorney hasn't filed 
a drug traffic or prostitution loitering charge since 2018. Well, wait a second. I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, the district attorney's office, those are the conservatives, Bill. The, those are, the, you know, those aren't the crazy lefties. Uh, the district attorney's office in Seattle isn't enforcing those loitering laws. Um, what are we doing wrong, Daddy? Because you're mad at us and we want your approval because you're the smartest comedian on television. And you said that the left wing, we're, we're silly. We're just as bad as the conservatives, right? That's what you just said. You, you said we're as silly as the conservatives and as dangerous. Uh, where would, let's, you know what? Bill might not, Bill may not, you know, he surrounds himself with the smartest people in the world. Uh, he really does. And I know he listens to them. And uh, so where would he get this idea that Seattle is decriminalizing crime? Let's all laugh and applaud at the the onion headline lefties. Well, I know Bill reads the New York Times from cover to cover. So he got this from Timothy Egan, who's an opinion columnist and a hack. And this is what Timothy Egan wrote in the New York Times. And this is strange because it's an opinion column. And I would I'm surprised that Bill Maher, the, the smartest comedian on television, I'm surprised that he doesn't know the difference between a news story and an opinion piece. You know, that's scary because this is from the op-ed page of the New York Times. Timothy Egan is not a reporter. He's a columnist. So this is what Timothy Egan wrote, uh, February 19th, 2021. This is what Bill read. I know he reads the New York Times from cover to cover. Timothy Egan is worried about uh, the Biden administration not being able to pass all these bills. Timothy Egan is kind of like a, a uh, you know, a neoliberal Democrat and He's rooting for Biden, as all of us are. Timothy Egan, the hack, writes over at the New York Times, what could doom Democrats is fellow Democrats. Yes, that's our enemy. It's not, gee, it's not Trump. It's fellow Democrats. For example, Seattle was a laudable pioneer in raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. But now its city council is never far from a bad idea. Hmm. A recent proposal would make it the first city in the nation to appear to incentivize misdemeanor crimes. That's how Timothy Egan sees the story in Seattle. The city council is incentivizing misdemeanor crimes. Assaults, trespass, stalking, all could be excused, he writes, if their offense is linked to poverty or a behavioral health disorder. That's a Democrat, Timothy Egan, right? Writing an opinion piece, not the news, an opinion piece, Bill. That's not, those aren't facts. Those are opinions. And Timothy Egan, 
who's a hack, and you should know that, he looked at what's going on in Seattle, and he says they are incentivizing crime by getting rid of loitering laws, which means, and that makes sense, Billy, when you think about it, you know, what? They're no longer enforcing prostitutes. I'm going to go be a pimp or a prostitute because it's no longer a misdemeanor. That's Timothy Egan's take on getting rid of these loitering laws. They're incentivized. People turn to drug dealing and prostitution when the laws on the books ease up on on those misdemeanors. That's where you got your information from, Bill. Uh, That's an opinion and a pretty uh, shoddy one at that. Uh, This has been covered uh, throughout Seattle. This is what they're talking about in Seattle because they have a serious homeless problem. Something you experienced, Bill, when you were remodeling one of your homes, you I think you stayed in a hotel. You're you're in touch with with the common man. Uh, so what's going on, Bill? And you know this. You're the smartest guy on television. You know that there's a movement in Seattle that's going to start a revolution that you would be in favor of. It's uh, the poverty defense. The poverty defense hasn't passed yet. Let me tell you about the poverty defense. This is from Crosscut. It's a nonprofit news organization in Seattle, in the Northwest. Poverty defense proposal stalls out. A controversial poverty defense proposal, which would have expanded legal defenses for poor or mentally ill people accused of a misdemeanor has stalled in Seattle City Hall before it ever became an official bill and has no immediate timeline for its revival. That's written by David Croman, February 23rd, 2021. Well, that should upset you, Bill. A poverty defense proposal got defeated. You don't, <laughs> you don't want to lock up the poor or the mentally ill who committed a misdemeanor. Even Jared Kushner and Donald Trump don't want that. They passed that bill before Trump left office. I mean, it's settled law in this country that our prisons are overcrowded. Rikers Island is literally an insane asylum. You know that, Bill. You, you know, Bill, you know that police can't be social workers and that locking up the poor or locking up the mentally ill benefits nobody. You know that. That's the, uh, that's the, uh, what do we do? I don't understand. Uh, Let me learn more about the poverty defense proposal. Maybe there's something in this that Bill knows about that I don't. It would include, this is the poverty defense proposal, which didn't pass. Crosscut writes, it would include greater consideration of a person's economic and mental health circumstances in court. 
under the proposal, there would not be any dispute that the person committed the crime, but would allow an attorney to use the client's financial or mental state as a defense. Well, that sounds familiar, Bill. As a matter of fact, Crosscut goes on to write, current code already includes some of such considerations, including that a person was forced into committing a crime or did so by reason of insanity. And this could add more defenses. So that's what you're talking about, Bill. You're talking about the the poverty defense, the mental illness defense. Well, those defenses exist all over the country. The judges have discretion more and more now that they're getting rid of you know, sentencing guidelines and three strikes and you're out. You're for that, Bill. You're 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 a libertarian. You're for getting rid of the loitering laws. You're for a poverty defense or an insanity defense, which has been part of the American legal code since the beginning. So, you know that, Bill, you know that. So you were lying you were lying to your audience. And I'm disappointed because I wanted to get beaten up. We're, you know, us liberals and lefties, we wanted, you know, to be to be blamed for our lack of success. You know, we don't have uh, the things we want as leftists, but it's our own fault, you say. We're an onion headline. We're silly. But I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, Bill. And you kind of know that. And you're lying. You're lying. You knew all this stuff. And you're lying. Uh, hmm. So there was a third one. This was a third one. I saved this one for last. Because you have Ralph Reed from the Christian Coalition on the show. Who who makes it easier to crucify Matthew Shepard, who hates the LGBTQ community and gives solace to people who beat up members of the gay community, who turn transgender people into outcasts in small towns and That's why transgender people have some of the highest suicide rates in the country, Bill. And you know that. You know transgender people have the highest suicide rates, are among the highest in the country. And you know that transgender people can't go to the cops. You know that, Bill. You, You know that cops rape transgender people and beat them up. You know that. You know that transgender people are among the most vulnerable in our society. And there's Ralph Reed, Christian Coalition, calls himself a disciple of Christ. Seems to me that Christ was all about the most vulnerable among us. And there is Ralph Reed from the Christian Coalition in his 
Oxford suit, because that's what Jesus would have worn, and uh, welcoming the following statement that you made that I, I don't understand why you would say this. I don't. Let me just play what you said, Bill. You know, three-year-olds pick their own gender is an onion headline. Ralph Reed, you want Ralph Reed, you really want Ralph Reed that badly to come back on your show that you would say something like that? Three-year-olds pick their own gender is an onion headline. I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that at all. Now, I know you, you don't have kids, uh, but uh, you can tell where a kid is heading by the time they're three. And uh, it's difficult. And piling on, on that specific issue, bringing that up, why would you do that? You do know that there is science out there that says three-year-olds kind of have an idea of what their gender is. You do know that. And it's complicated. And the real danger is not a transgender kid deciding his gender. The real danger, Bill, is the guy sitting across from you, Ralph Reed from the Christian Coalition. He's the danger to that kid. Because if that kid is confused, Ralph Reed will try to repair him. And you know that, Bill. You know that Ralph Reed is a murderer. That Ralph Reed hates the LGBTQ community. You know that the people who crucified Matthew Shepard found solace in the words of Ralph Reed and the Christian Coalition. You know that, Bill. You know that there are transgender people, people who are confused, who are outcasts, who are terrified to be who they want to be or were born to be. And some of them might have been watching your show. They think you're a truth teller, Bill. And you just planted a seed of doubt in their head. And somebody, not because of you, but you're part of it, part of the reason transgender people have the highest suicide rates in America. You said, you said it's kids should not decide what their gender is. And you said it, I mean, you, the way you said it, I mean, listen to the authority in your voice. There was just this... There was nothing to make fun of. That was that crazy. Now, I don't think it's the same situation. I keep saying to the liberals, you know what? If what you're doing sounds like an onion headline, stop. And that's why. Yeah, this is why there is an opening for conservative comedy. Because, you know, when you when you tear down statues of Abraham Lincoln, in the land of Lincoln, land of Lincoln cancels Lincoln. It's an onion headline, you know, 
three-year-olds pick their own gender is an onion headline. You know, a lot of this stuff that goes on on the left now, it's, you know, Seattle votes to decriminalize crime. (laughs) Now, the problem is that they don't know how to do comedy. But if they found someone who did, they could. Because I do it more here than I used to. Because comedy goes where the funny is. Mm -hmm. And there is funny on the left now, as well as the right. So, um... Comedy goes where the funny is. No, comedy goes where the truth is, Bill. Comedy goes where the truth is. You're the smartest guy on television, but you're a liar. You told three really big, fat lies. You're muted, David. Huh? What? You're muted. Oh, how long have I been muted? Hang on. Uh, how long have I been muted for? Just from after that clip. Oh, if only I had been muted for the entire show, I think I'd have a much happier audience. So you can't trust Bill Maher because he's a liar. He cannot possibly mean what he said. Who do you get your opinions from? Well, you know, there's talk radio. Um, I love talk radio. I don't listen to it. I have contempt for everybody who makes a living in talk radio. Guys like Mark Bernier, he's a a Florida talk show host, and he's kind of like Bill Maher. Bad week for Mark Bernier. His bosses over WNDB announced his death. It is with great sadness that WNDB and Southern Stone Communications announced the passing of Mark Bernier, who informed and entertained listeners on WNDB for over 30 years. We kindly ask that privacy is given to Mark's family during this time of grief. Well, I'm not going to give you privacy because it turns out Mark was an anti-vaxxer and he died from covid Yes, this is the third radio talk show host who spread lies about the vaccine, who ended up dying because he didn't get the vaccine. He was known as Mr. Anti-Vax. His partner, some guy named Gates, this is from the Daytona Beach News Journal, his partner Gates asked Bernier on the show whether he would get the jab. Bernier, who's dead because he didn't get the vaccine, said on his show, I'm not taking it. His partner Gates said, come on. Bernier said, are you kidding me? Me, Mr. Anti-Vax? Jeepers. Gates said, ever? Bernier said, never, no. And now he's dead because he didn't get the vaccine. Well, that's uh, very sad, Mr. Uh, Anti-Vax. Well, we listen to people on the radio. Take Larry Elder. This is Larry Elder. The latest polls show that uh, he is neck and neck uh, with uh, with Tommy Newsom, the uh, the guy who used to fill in for Doc Severinsen. Uh, for Johnny Carson. It's neck and neck, 49%, 49%. Larry Elder may end up being the next governor of California because Larry Elder is an African-American conservative who hates government. He hates government. And he's a lawyer. And he's a truth teller, just like Bill Maher. And Larry Elder is going to go to Sacramento and set things straight and 
get our house in order because he's anti-government. Larry is anti-government. From natural, this is from the Los Angeles Times, a profile of him. From natural disasters to Medicaid, Elder has long scorned government as a feeble solution that harms more than it helps. He's argued that private groups, individuals, and corporations are better suited to assist poor people and provide disaster relief. Yes, that's what we need. We need charities. We have this horrible Ida. Don't send FEMA. Charities. It's all about charity. Larry Elder is going to get elected governor of California because he's for charity. And that's what we need more of. It's that's what we need. The article in the Los Angeles Times goes on to write, life is not fair. This is uh, what uh, Larry Elder says. Life is not fair, but it is unfair to assume that an America without a government provided safety net would turn its back on the less fortunate. This is what Larry Elder wrote in a 2017 column criticizing the Affordable Care Act. Charity is in America's DNA. This is the next governor of California. His own nonprofit said in its mission statement that it would provide non-governmental solutions to inner city problems. Charity, it's in our DNA, folks. Vote for Larry Elder. What, now, what is this about? Larry Elder has a charity? Can we go back there for a second? What is this from the Los Angeles Times? Adam Amarik and Hannah Fry write, in the August 27th, 2021 edition of the Los Angeles Times, Larry Elder's private charity, yes, go on, was a bust and questions swirl over where the money went. This can't be true. Charities in our DNA. It reads Larry Elder, the GOP frontrunner in California's recall election to replace Governor Gassim, Gassim, Gavin Newsom, has long trumpeted a libertarian view on the welfare state and its excesses, arguing private charity is a better solution than government. Hmm. I don't understand this. He says charity is in our DNA and he's going to be the next governor of uh, California. Tell me more. From 1998 through 2014, Larry Elder Charities, Inc., raised about $20,000, according to public tax filings. It spent no money on any services other than accounting, legal, and filing fees to keep the organization in good standing. The organization has been suspended by the state since 2015 for failing to pay a filing fee, according to a spokesperson with the Franchise Tax Board. Well, obviously, it's not Larry Elder's fault that his charity got shut down. It's all that red tape. It's all the red tape. They, okay, unbelievable. All right, so we can't believe in Larry Elder. Uh, you know what? I'll tell you who we can believe in. Fox. And I'm not joking around in a, in a spiritual way. I mean this. Uh, they have this African-American who's kind of like Larry Elder. He's uh, a conservative. So he was filling in for Neil Cavuto and uh, they were talking about Afghanistan. What, what did he have to say? And the reason why we're in this mess is because 
of two reasons. One, the Biden administration failed to plan for this, but the Trump administration were the ones who planted the seed for this. People like Stephen Miller shut down this visa program, which created a backlog that existed once the Biden administration yeah. took office. Let they me, didn't let me get jump in before, you, before we go back too far in history. Let's deal with right now. Yes, let's deal with right now. <laughs> That's the Buddha. The Buddha, that's the Buddha hosting for Fox News. Take a deep breath. Don't focus on the past. Focus on the here and now. And that's why I watch Fox News. They're all about being present. Live in the moment. Focus on the here and now. Will Kane. Will Kane. Let's talk about Will Kane. He is uh, an interesting Guy, he's an American conservative. He's a, a sports commentator, so that means he's been given a job on Fox and Friends Weekend on Fox News, and he he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer, and he's got a show on Fox. And this is somebody we should listen to when it comes to COVID, because he's a lawyer, and a lawyer is kind of like a doctor. We should find out what Will Kane has to tell us about COVID. Let's find that first. Okay, Will Kane, please, uh, please, where is Will Kane? Uh, where are you, Will Kane? Ah, oh, I was hoping we would find you, Will Kane. We have to find you. Hang on. Oh, I hate my life. How's everybody doing? I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna find this. Will Kane, where are you, Will Kane? Uh, don't forget, off. Here we go. Office hours. Will Kane. The vaccine is a wonderful innovation, and many watching. Thank you. Yes. See, the vaccine is a wonderful innovation. Fit the risk profile. You should get vaccinated, but it's not for everyone. And getting really, one- it's not for everybody. You're a lawyer. Go on, please. Percent of the population vaccinated is not only impossible and stupid, it's dangerous and it will cost lives. It already has. And here's how. Look, censoring me is one thing. I'm just a television host. But no, 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 no. You're not just a television host. You're on Fox News and you're a lawyer, which means you're equipped to talk about ivermectin and the vaccine. Go on, please. Promising treatments out there that can. The vaccine is a wonderful innovation, and many watching. If you fit the risk profile, you should get vaccinated, but it's not for everyone. And getting 100% of the population vaccinated is not only impossible and stupid, it's dangerous, and it will cost lives. It already has, and here's how. Look, censoring me is one thing, I'm just a television host, but there are many, many promising treatments out there that can save lives, that like our segment last night, have been disappeared from the public health conversation. Now, here are three, three examples. First, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. You remember this conversation from a year ago. You remember the media mocking this therapeutic treatment. The President of the United States said today he is taking a drug to prevent coronavirus that the FDA warns is dangerous and study after study now show is useless against the virus. Morons. Morons. He's a lawyer. They're morons. He just told us about all these ways you can prevent COVID. The president, 
you know, the president took hydrochloric, whatever you call it, and uh, you're morons. What, 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 what? Hang on for one second. Brian Williams has gone back into a time machine and wants to tell tell something about Donald Trump. The lead story, the headline at the top of this special report, it is quite simply that the president of the United States and the first lady have both tested positive for the coronavirus. I don't understand. Will Kane said people who made fun of Donald Trump for taking all those crazy drugs were morons. Uh, I don't understand Fox News. That that why we what, what's going on? I, I don't I don't I don't understand. Let me jump in before you before we go back too far in history. Let's deal with right now. I see. Just deal with right now. Don't don't look back. Don't, I get it. Don't, don't look back. I'm on to you. OK, that's good. All right. So you can't trust Fox News, it turns out. Let me ask my minister. Father Bemelman about the vaccines. He maybe he can give us some advice. These vaccines are going to quit working on every corner until this nation falls to her knees and repents for dead babies and repents for the sodomy of this nation. Whoa. Okay. That's uh whoa. That's uh my pastor Morris Bemelman. Uh thanks for giving me uh giving me that spiritual advice. Uh, hmm. Sodomy of this nation. Thanks. Uh, by the way, uh, Pastor, what is uh, on the menu uh, over at your, uh, what's, what's on the menu at your church? Get babies! I'm sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. What, what, what's on the menu? Okay. Uh, all right. That was from yesterday. I love that. Uh, by the way, uh, Pastor, what is your favorite? Uh, <laughs> where, what is your <laughs> what's your favorite movie on Pornhub? The sodomy of this nation. OK, the, the sodomy of this nation uh, directed by D.W. Griffith. It's the prequel to Birth of a Nation. Well, there's nobody to turn to. We can't turn to our pastors, but we can turn to Congress. Guys like the great Louis Gohmert. Louis Gohmert. Uh, he can give us medical advice. Remember Louis Gohmert? He recently asked if the Forest Service could combat climate change by altering the moon's orbit. That's from The Guardian. Uh, well, let's listen to Louis Gohmert. I want my medical advice from Louis Gohmert. And now that the pandemic is under more control, we need to get back to our freedom of saying, look, here's my pre-existing conditions. Let's talk about which one I should take, if I should even take one. And let me tell you, the more that we find out, I don't know if y'all saw, but a, a month after President Trump left office. The American Journal of Medicine came out with a great article that they had discovered a, a regimen of medication that when taken together early in COVID that uh, you may have heard of it, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, um, 
azepac, azithromycin, zinc, and uh, Dr. Bartlett from Midland recommends a steroid nebulizer. Heck, Hannity called me every day for seven days after I was tested positive for it, make sure I had what I needed. I mean, that's a nice guy. That's a friend. And Dr. Bartley called me two or three days, make sure I was doing the nebulizer. Uh, you got to listen to Louis Gohmert. He's, he's a congressman and he's got the inside track. He's not listening to doctors. He's got Sean Hannity calling him. See, our politicians are on top. And, you know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has finally gotten the message. There's been some bad news coming out of Florida, but Ron DeSantis, the governor, has finally embraced science. Ron DeSantis has finally embraced science. The results have been really, um, really positive and we want to keep up the momentum. Wow, that's great. See, you know, I knew that if we just gave Ron DeSantis some time, he would uh, embrace science. With hospitals packed with COVID patients, the state of Florida is opening 21 pop-up sites like this. See, this is a guy who went to Harvard and Yale and and he's he's embracing science. Good for you, Governor Ron DeSantis. I bet, you know, the red states, we make fun of them, but I bet it's catching on. The effort is now ramping up in other states, including Texas, Missouri, and Iowa. Great. This is great. See, we were making fun of these people. And in Tampa, the line for monoclonal antibody treatment stretches across the fairgrounds, even before the center opens. I haven't been feeling too well the last couple of days and just, you know, taking a precautionary measure. Wait a second. Monoclonal antibodies. That's not quite the vaccine, but Ron DeSantis, wait a second, I know that monoclonal antibodies are kind of, they kind of work. Uh, maybe, maybe it's better that maybe, you know, a lot of these people who are anti-vaxxers think monoclonal antibodies uh, are easier on the, on the system. Four shots, one in each arm and two in the stomach. They're meant for people who've already tested positive for COVID and patients must wait an hour to observe any adverse reactions. The ones we spoke with had not been vaccinated and yet were eager to get this treatment. Um, I feel very tired. Natalie Santiago tested positive days ago after her husband got sick. What's the difference in your mind between getting this treatment versus getting the vaccine? Well, I think now that I'm sick, I just want to get better, so I'm willing to do what I need to do to do that. I don't I don't understand why Governor DeSantis, who's embracing science, would now why wouldn't you tell people to get the vaccine instead of monoclonal antibodies? Why wait till they get sick? You went to Harvard and Yale or somewhere, Ron DeSantis. Why would the governor uh, be for monoclonal antibodies, but not the vaccine, it makes no sense. This is from the Associated Press. Brendan Farrington writes, DeSantis's top donor invests in COVID drug that the governor promotes. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been criticized for opposing mask mandates and vaccine passports, is now toting a COVID-19 antibody treatment in which a top donor's company has invested millions of dollars. DeSantis has been flying around the state promoting a monoclonal antibody treatment sold by Regeneron. That doesn't seem honest. What is this? Citadel, a Chicago-based hedge fund, has $15.9 million in shares of Regeneron Pharmaceutical, according to filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Citadel CEO Ken Griffin has donated $10.75 million to a political committee that supports, that supports, come on. Oh, you were so good. Well, that supports Ron DeSantis. I thought I could play that. Uh, let's, you know what? Let's t- uh, get a comment from the uh, the governor of Illinois, Governor Pritzker. Respond to that. Let me just say this. You are spreading misinformation. I wish you would stop spreading misinformation. You come in here with a political agenda and you spread misinformation. And I just think you should stop. We now need to protect our children. We need to protect the people in our communities, parents, grandparents, teachers. You are working against that. And it is extremely upsetting for all of us who are trying to keep the rest of the state safe. That's Democratic Governor Pritzker from Illinois, but easy for him to talk that way. He's a billionaire. Ron DeSantis only has a couple of million dollars. Let the man make some some money. All right. Uh, You can't trust our politicians, Fox News, but you know who we can trust? We can trust the children of celebrities. Let's ask Chet Hanks. Now, if you remember, Tom and Rita were the first ones to get COVID, you know, they beta tested it. They, they had the inside track. They were down in Australia. And I know we were all their beloved. And their son has a, a huge following because he's a rapper. And let's see what he has to tell his followers. Hey, guys. So um, just checking in. Look, I've been kind of on the fence about this for a while. That's why I've never spoke on it. But with the amount of people that I know recently that that have gotten COVID and with like the numbers rising, I think it's important for me to say, like, I got the vaccine. I think everybody should. I think it's really important, like, that we all do this just as like citizens, as Americans. We have to look out for each other and get this shit under control, guys. So, like, I suggest to all my followers, you guys make set an appointment and get the vaccine first thing. Okay, there we go. Uh, That is uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Hanks' son telling us to uh, to get the vaccine. Uh, There was more, but I don't have time. Cyrus is. Cyrus, are you here? Is Dave Cyrus here? Well, Cyrus, is it, let's, let's play more of Tom Hanks' son, Chet Hanks. He's telling us to get a vaccine. I suggest to all my followers, you guys make set an appointment and get the vaccine first thing. Psych, bitch. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I never had COVID. You ain't sticking me with that motherfucking needle. It's the motherfucking flu. Get over it, okay? If you're sick, stay inside. I'm tired of having, okay? Why are we working around y'all? If y'all, uh, if you're in danger, stay your ass inside. I'm tired of wearing a motherfucking mask. So that's uh, Chet Hanks telling everybody to get vaccinated. <laughs> when we come back, perfect timing. <laughs> 
Let's, we, when we come back, we will be joined by Emmy nominee for SNL, the brilliant songwriter, songwriter, I'm thinking of Mike Steinell, uh, Mr. Dave Cyrus. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to join us in the Zoom room, go to my website and hit the attend a live taping menu. Office hours and hours, first Friday of every month, we go 24 hours. Go to my website to sign up. We will be back with Dave Cyrus. As long as I stay healthy and I never die 
As long as I stay healthy and I You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And thank you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom for all your help. We don't get the show produced without Dan Frankenberger. And uh, thank you, sir. We'll figure out what time to do community billboard. But uh, anyway, well, you know what? It's time for one of the most, unfortunately, one of the most requested guests on this show. It it bothers me that he's uh, so requested. Please welcome Emmy nominee, comedy writer, comedian, roast battle champion. Please welcome Dave Cyrus. Dave Cyrus. I'm also a Critics Choice nominee. I'm pretending I'm happy for you. I know you are. Look, you've got a lot of awards. I don't see why you can't spread it around. It's no, it's not good enough that I have awards. It's that my friends don't. Mm hmm. You yes, understand? That's the whole point I, of having my mother has my awards. Yeah, but think about how many people you motivate for greatness just to hurt you. <laughs> I hope you win. I do. You, you're a machine. You yeah. are. You're brilliant. We're trying. We're yeah. trying. Tell trying me our some, asses off out here, Dave. I know. Now, let's talk about the situation in Afghanistan. And is that where Chet Hayes is? Is that where Chet Hanks is, uh, is hanging out? Oh, did you days? see that? Did you see that? Well, I mean, I already knew about the whole Chet Hanks thing. It just, it's one of those unfortunate moments you realize that affluenza can cause serious brain damage. Yeah. That it's, it really is like, it, it, I was saying that like, I actually said this about like, um, watching Chet Hanks speak in Patois about not using vaccines or whatever, uh, or <laughs> either one, um, it's, it really makes you feel like Tom Hanks wished for his career on a monkey's paw. <laughs> I don't want to make fun of. I do. I, I don't. I don't want to make fun of Chet Hanks because it can't. It cannot be easy having Rita and Tom as as parents. And you know what? I think it actually is easy. I think it's actually easy to have rich and famous beloved parents. I think Uh, it actually is as easy as it sounds. Okay, so the kid is an anti-vaxxer. Without crapping on a... I happen to believe Tom Hanks is a national treasure. I do. And I also believe that Chet Hanks is brilliant. He is genetically hardwired for like even that phony patois that offended everybody how great it was made that him famous right it huh? made him famous that's you're saying because it got attention but, but regardless you can see that the guy has the the synapses are firing that kid is I mean, really certainly trying i think there's a, a weird thing that happens when you're fame adjacent 
that you just, a lot of people cannot handle being a nobody. It's kind of like that kid from the Nirvana album cover who's suing and with like a really laughable lawsuit where he's, I mean, if you saw the lawsuit, it's actually kind of amazing how hard he's trying, but it's one of those things where it's like, he cannot reconcile that the most relevant thing he ever did was at one year old. Right. And he's just rebelling against this idea that, and the, the problem with it is, it shouldn't really affect his life. No one knows it's him. No one would know unless he told them, but he tells everyone and then gets this. He literally said, he goes, uh, well, it's really hard for my life because a lot of girls, a lot of women will sleep with me and then leave once they find out I'm not rich from it. And I'm like, ah, so literally every woman you've ever met in the first conversation, you told them you're the Nirvana babe. Wait, what's the, the picture? It's a baby floating in a pool. Yeah, it's a baby floating in a pool chasing a dollar and the baby is naked because the whole point of it is that it's supposed to show how absurd a baby chasing money would be because of the na- that it's so unnatural. It was just supposed to be look how unnatural it is to for a one year old to be chasing a dollar the way you are. And he was naked because it just made sense. Like we see naked babies all the time. But we do you see, see do you see the baby's penis? Yeah, but I mean, you've seen babies' penises like hey, the, hey, 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 commercials. No, no, you don't. Used to. No. I feel like I feel like I've, I feel like I see naked babies. That's what you dream. Let's change the subject. Like just I'm just saying. Look, a naked baby is not in and of itself pornography. And I, I don't want to have this. Please, I don't want to have this conversation. Fine, let's talk about Afghanistan. No, let's talk about dead babies. That's <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. You want to talk about Afghanistan? Get Whatever babies. you want. Where, where are these Christian pastors? Uh, we, we killed. We just did an airstrike. And mm-hmm. we ended up with some. Get babies. And you don't hear any of these evangelicals complaining about the. Get babies. In Afghanistan, do you? Um. Well, I mean. I think a lot of people just sort of, when it comes to war, just sort of assume that there's a certain amount of collateral damage that is just sort of pointless to- Not always. Forefront. Not always. Of, this is no, a, no, a whole always. new way of waging war. Well, I mean, you know, soldiers can kill babies too. It's, I don't think the drones are quite the boogeyman people make them out to be. They're just taking the place of soldiers with guns who used to kill people. And still do. I don't think it's it doesn't really. I don't care if you were killed by a plane or a soldier. If you were innocent, you shouldn't have been killed. But I think it kind of brings up sort of the basic crux of the Game of Thrones series, the book series. If you ever talk to the if you look at the interviews with the author, he basically said the whole point of the series was that war for any reason is horrible. And that it doesn't matter if you're the greatest person in the world and you're fighting the most evil person in the world. When you go to war, children get killed, women get raped. Horrible, horrible, horrible things happen because that's the nature of war. Right. And I think that's sort of the lesson here is that it doesn't really matter what your reason to go to war was. It doesn't matter how valid it was. The war is going to be horrible. And that's something that you have to reconcile with before you make that choice. Right. And we had a Bush administration that had a very odd, very temporary kind of ideology that we could just install Western democracies in the Middle East. Right. And to be fair, no one before George Bush had any idea that wars in Afghanistan could be hard. 
Right. In America, we only go to war as a last resort. Uh, we usually just do it without, call it a police action, or just do a, right. a drone strike. Yeah, which, not exactly a defensible thing either, but Afghanistan and Iraq showed us how war is just, it's like nature. It is impossible to predict, it's impossible to control, and no matter what you think you're going to do, it's usually going to go really badly. It's usually going to go sideways. And that's unless you're literally fighting for your own land or fighting to stop an extreme expansion of a, of a tyrannical government that's trying to be world domination, war is really not worth it, it seems. Yeah. Is, I think, the lesson we're seeing here. And at the same time, there's this really weird almost childish attitude that somehow it can be done perfectly and everything happens just right. Wishful thinking. And it doesn't. Yeah. It just yeah. doesn't. Yeah. It's an ugly, horrible business. Did you see, well, do you want to talk about, this is difficult, this is a difficult conversation because I'm worried about the, the the soldiers coming back and their their PTSD. Yes, um, Afghanistan was a relatively low casualty count if you turn to just deaths, but the numbers in terms of people who were living but still are going to carry this forever, both physically and mentally, is much much bigger. Yes, this uh, we is, saw that in Iraq too, and we saw it in in. Uh, Florida at the airport. This is uh, a, a veteran. Uh, I think this was two days ago. What airport is this? Uh, I think it, I, I don't know. Because there's a very weird, it's that, the thing that's important to notice about this guy is that he's really going, he really doesn't want to actually hit someone. You notice how he's, well, keep watching. he's doing everything, he keeps, he keeps trying, oh, he just, he just yeah. pushed himself to the ground. He tripped. This, there was this weird thing where like he keeps like almost hitting, he keeps almost hitting, he keeps trying to make you think he's going to hit him. But there's that little thing holding him back, it looks like. Right. Which is like, which, and the thing with it is, is that, you know, it's either do it or don't. You know, right. you're just going to pretend you're about to fight. There's really, you're not going to accomplish much. Uh, not that you accomplish anything hitting someone in an airport anyway. That's, a, that's LAX? No, no, it's somewhere. Was, it's in, of course it's Florida. Florida. Yeah. And that was someone uh, coming back from war. The, the, so the story, I, the arc for me was I just saw it. And I thought, um, let me finish my thought here. Without knowing the backstory, I hate this effing guy. And, you know, I'd like to see an African-American do that at the airport and not get shot. This is white privilege. And he's everything that's wrong with America. 
And then the military, the Pentagon said he's now been taken back to a VA hospital and he's receiving the treatment he needs. And I got scared. I felt bad for him. I don't know if I would feel bad for him if he were throwing punches at me. I mean, he uh, and it raises a, a the question, a serious problem that America one more serious problem. Vietnam vets. It was a slow creep onto the streets. Yeah, it was before social. It was before social media. It was before people putting ideas in your head. We didn't have the ability for people uh, to put ideas in people's heads the way they they do now. We have a serious problem. You know, homeless veterans of Vietnam, which one just one of the most tragic sort of stories in American history, they did do one thing, which was they managed to finally force the average person to address something that was very common in World War One and World War Two, particularly in the Pacific theater of PTSD. Uh, right. They used to be called shell shocked. Right. And they were and they were basically just sort of, you know, it was just some people didn't want to think about. But a lot of people, a lot of people uh, came back permanently damaged from those wars as well. Well, and, absolutely. They weren't homeless. They weren't homeless. No. And that's why the Vietnam ones were the ones who finally made regular people have to acknowledge what was going on. Yeah. My father's gen. My father served in World War Two. He had friends and it was just a matter of time for some of those friends for them to flame out from the shell shock. Some of them made it into the 1950s. Some of them made it into the late 60s. But by 1970, you could see the damage for some uh, the, the, the men who served, who saw action. It just the drink. They were keeping it down. Not all of them, but but enough. Let me show you why. We, why it's in our best interest, Dave Cyrus, to take care of our vets. It's the right thing to do. They, they did what they were told. And, yeah. you know, it's very easy right. to, to decide, oh, the war. You know, but most of us, including Obama and me after 9-11, I wasn't for Iraq uh, but I bought the lies and, uh, you know, it's it's pretty easy to say it's a mistake and just f- bury the mistake and, and forget our soldiers. This is what happens when you forget our soldiers. Uh, it's immoral, first of all. F- first of all, it's immoral to forget our soldiers. It's immoral to blame the soldiers. I'll blame Millie. I'll blame Austin. I'll blame the presidents. I'll blame anybody, you know, whose chest is emblazoned with medals or anybody who works for Raytheon. I'll blame you. Not going to blame the soldiers. It's immoral to blame the soldiers. They did what they were supposed to do. This guy stopped doing what he was supposed to do. He's a Marine. He's a lieutenant Colonel, I believe I'm not going to give his name out of, out of respect, but he's he put this out. It, it, I'm a little reluctant to play it, but this is a uh, a soldier who had a 
resigned from the Marines because he stopped following orders. We have to take care of this guy and show him compassion because it's the right thing to do and it's in our best interest. The however much extra the disability would be, I think that money should go back to all the senior general officers because I think they need it more than I do. Because when I am done with what I'm about to do, you all are going to need the jobs and the security. The conventional Marine on the ground who has to smell burning shit, who when I was in Ramadi, I was exposed to it so much that burning shit actually smelt like bacon and eggs and I grew to enjoy the smell. You have no idea what I'm capable of doing. Follow me and we will bring the whole fucking system down. I am honorable and you can ask any Marine who served with me for 17 years. I dare you to ask them all and find out what I'm made of. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. Now, the mainstream media they're playing parts of this this gentleman who needs love and compassion and help. Uh, they've they're you know everybody's protecting him and rightfully so. Uh, but he is ripe for the picking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Um, people are more fragile than we give credit. I mean, honestly, I've often said that I think there are just certain jobs that human beings should not do are not good at, like law enforcement and soldiering, and to be honest, uh, elected governance. But just because it's just people have a tendency to not adapt to those jobs well. Um, but yeah, it's very, what the scary thing is, is yes, how malleable people can be when put into extreme situations. And uh, yeah, we're definitely going to lose some people. To oh, I, I, I think, I think, uh, if you see what's going on at the town halls and the masking and you see that they're making the, the military is now making vaccines mandatory. Yes. We have a big battle royale coming up. Another one in this country because the military is going to make vaccines mandatory. And I believe they should. Of course they should. And that is going to be what we're talking about in the autumn of our well, country. I mean, look at the way people reacted to having to stay home for a year compared to having to be in Afghanistan. I mean, when you consider the difference and that there are so many people who cracked, just full on cracked from having to watch The Sopranos a few times and just, you know, have a year that sucked compared to when it is, which is nothing compared to being a soldier is really, really scary. I mean, I, have a, I know someone from high school who just lost her mind, was fine until recently, and now is an all capital letters Facebook poster about conspiracies and COVID. It just seems like a lot of people were just white knuckling their sanity to begin with. And a lot of people were normal. They were just only so much they could take. And then they start looking really hard for a way to still feel actualized, feel important, feel feel useful. I mean, it's funny how the movie Rambo, First Blood, is thought of as this American celebration of war when, of course, it's the exact opposite. It was entirely a movie based on a novel about what America did to these kids in Vietnam. 
And uh, it's a, you put someone in a position of extreme power and the height of fear and, and instinct and then send them back home. It's a lot of people can't do that. And uh, I don't know if there's a, a good answer to this because it's not like we can never go to war under any circumstances. Sometimes you're attacked. So, sometimes mm-hmm. the war comes to you. And it's not like those countries can say, I just didn't want to go to war when they're the ones who actually had another army invading their land. Right. Uh, and as long as there are people doing that, you're going to need to have soldiers. Right. So now, the scary thing, as I would say, is that people once said, oh, great news. We're going to have war all be fought with machines. And they said, oh, that's a great idea. There's only one problem. I thought when I first heard that it would be machines versus other machines. Right. And it's never that ever. It's always machines versus friggin' people, which is so much worse. Yeah. We, we better get a handle on this in the next three months. Mansion, cinema, the Democrats, they better open up the floodgates and start spending money on the VA. There better be uh, if if we don't become a compassionate nation or try to be a compassionate nation towards our soldiers. uh, We're in. That insurrection that we had on January 6th, it, you have to flood this country with love. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of what happened at the beginning of the Iraq War, which is one of the main reasons the Iraq War went so terribly, which was that uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld thought it was a good idea to not give the previous Iraqi military anything to do. And it was actually one of the scariest moments in my life when Rumsfeld, I believe it was, said, oh, I've never heard of an army asking the invaders to pay them before because the Iraqi army wanted to be paid by the American invaders. And I remember being really scared that Donald Rumsfeld didn't know that that's pretty much what every army does in every war. Mm-hmm. Every army pays the army they just defeated so they don't just go home with their guns. And the fact that he didn't know that was exactly why that war was handled so horribly. And you're supposed to hire the army so that you don't end up with the old Roman phrase, a man with a sword never goes hungry. These people need direction once you've made them into weapons. Jesus Christ. This is so obvious. Yep. Uh, Well, that was what Bremer, we've talked about this on the show a lot. Uh, Paul Bremer from Kissinger and Associates was made the viceroy of Iraq, and he dismissed the elite Republican Guard because he's a genius. He worked for Henry Kissinger. He is with Henry Kissinger and Associates, and the elite Republican Guard went back, uh, took off their uniforms, and uh, they they wanted to be our employees. Right. It was actually a gift. It was a great situation we had that we threw away because we had people who had no idea what they're doing. Right. All right. Are you having a, are you having a good summer? I don't know. Fine. It's it's fine. I guess it's a real hot boy summer. I know. Are people testing you? Are your friends and loved ones no. testing you? I'm being forced to go to Disney World soon. Does that count? That's bad. I mean, I. It's, it's a hard thing to do when you're not into it. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking about how hot it's going to be. 
And I'm just like, what's the least amount of clothing I can get away with at a place where that's all families <laughs> because of how hot it's going to be there walking around. Why with do you have mask, to go to, by the way, huh? so that's with a mask too. So that's going to be real fun. What, it, when are we back? When is this country back? I mean, I think that, you know, I think that I've been telling a lot of people lately that at this point, you kind of have to start realizing that this might not change from where we are right now. You might have better vaccines and there will be boosters. There will be vaccines that are specifically aimed at the Delta variant. But this will be a nuisance probably for the rest of our lives, it seems like. And if you're vaccinated, you'll be okay. And if you're not, you're choosing not to be. And I think we kind of have to kind of have to say this is this could be our lives and you should be careful, but you have to live your life. You have to have movie theaters and concerts and stuff. We have to do it responsibly. And I mean, I wonder if we are building towards a war with the unvaccinated. If they are going to just start becoming an insurrectionist army. Well, that's that yeah. We have to, to wrap it up, but we'll talk about uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Uh, I, I'm going to be talking to you later in the week. Thank you, Dave Cyrus. Congratulations on the Emmy nomination. And the, what, what's the other one? Uh, I've also been nominated for a, a Critics' Choice Award. I did not win, um, but I did get a Writers Guild Award. I think everyone has one of those, right? You know, you, you, meaning you, you, you also have one. But you're you're hot right now. We have to wrap it up. I would like for that to be true. Okay, you Uh, are hot. Let's see when I try to sell a sitcom. You're hot. Dave Cyrus, everybody, thank you. Thank you. Let us now go, I hope, to Los Angeles where Howie Klein is standing by. Are you there, Howie? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I got to do this right. I'm doing it wrong. Hang on. Give me a second. Are you there, Howie? I'm here. I'm here. I put it in the wrong. Howie Klein joins us. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. They raise money for progressive and some socialists. I think we're about to have a, a socialist candidate come on the show next week, I hope. And yeah, uh, yeah. Hey, we have a great uh, uh, self-admitted proud socialist in um Mike Ortega, who's running against the horrid blue dog in Orange County and has a very, very good shot at beating him. Right. Are you a socialist? Um, kind of. I mean, uh, yeah, I grew up uh, with and my my in, in Brooklyn and my my uh, biggest influence was my grandfather, who was very much a socialist. And he taught me about socialism and showed me about socialism and then I, I spent four years uh, uh, of my young formative life in Amsterdam, uh, which is a kind of a, a socialist place. And everyone I knew was a socialist and I kind of absorbed it. And uh, running record companies, is there any way to have democracy in the workplace? Could you have said some people are going to have more say than others, but we're going to try to vote on everything and. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know about that, but th- th- there's something that made Reprise, the record company that I was president of, different from other companies. Um, one of the, and I'm going to give you an example. Uh, one, one of the most important things f- for an artist is the choice of singles. 
And at a company, and I experienced this because I had a small label that was uh, distributed by CBS. Now it's called Sony, but it was CBS at the time. Right. And they didn't care what I said or what the artist said. They chose the single, and if we didn't like it, tough luck. They, had, they said they had the rights, which they did, uh, to pick the single. And they didn't care what, what anybody said about it. And I never wanted to do that to an artist. I mean, C- Sony or CBS, you know, if they, if they make the wrong choice, they're going to still get their big giant salaries and their bonuses and uh, have a full career. But if they make the wrong choice, it could be the end of the artist's career. So, so what I did when, when I had the opportunity was I instituted a, a system that worked like this. If the artist and the promotion team disagreed, uh, or the artist and the A&R team disagreed, I, I would tell the, uh, the A&R team or, or, the, or the promotion team to have a go at it, to convince the artist otherwise. But always be aware that the last word and the final choice is always going to be the artist. Right. Now, is that is that socialism of the kind that you were talking no, about? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, and in terms of making decisions, you know, the, the chief executive has to be the one in, at a business who is uh, responsible in the end, and the buck stops there. We we were we were trained the 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 junior executives at Warner Brothers were trained by Mo Austin and Lenny Warnica the legendary chairman and president of the company to um, that, that we had a responsibility um, that was really important. And certainly the shareholders was one of the responsibilities. That was an important responsibility. And for most record labels, it ends right there. But at, at Warner and Reprise, it certainly did not end right there. We had uh, a, a just as important responsibility to our our customers, to our artists, of course, even before that, uh, and to society in general. Those were those were key things that had to be balanced before the decision was made. And I took it very, very seriously, and everybody else did as well. So I don't know if it's a classical socialist model, but it, but cer- certainly uh, 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 there was some socialism uh, to it. I was talking to Triumph the Insult Comic Dog last night and Robert Smuggle, and he told me, I don't, I'm not telling tales out of uh, school. And he described, he did, he did Carnegie Hall with Sting, Billy Joel, and Elton John for a benefit. He goes backstage and Elton John says to Smigel, I loved your album. He knew who Robert, he knew, Triumph has an album called Come Poop With Me that is like. Guess what label it was on. That's right. And it's the funniest comedy album. Did you approve that? Uh, I think it was on, I think it was on Warner Brothers. Uh, I, uh, so it wasn't something that I personally approved, but I was certainly a fan. It is the funny, I mean, there's a song called Mama, which I play every Mother's Day. That is the funniest. Just go to YouTube and look up Mama, uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Anyway, the point I'm making is Elton John bought the album. And I read that Elton John, every week when before streaming, would go to Virgin 
and buy every every new album and then go listen to it. How many musicians are like that where you go and listen to everything that's out there? And are, are you that type of person? Did you cons- were you a big consumer of music? Before I became the, the president of Reprise, I was. Uh, I was a DJ in college. I had to listen to everything. But when I was in college, there weren't that many records coming out. I mean, you could pretty much listen to everything and not sweat it. Uh, you know, now or, or before the record industry changed so drastically, it was impossible for anybody to do that. Um, and in terms of Elton John, I suspect he got a lot of those records sent to him not and didn't have to buy them at uh, Virgin Records. But I think that... Um, I, I, I'm no longer a consumer of music now. If someone sends me a link to listen to their music, I love to do it, and, and I always do. Um, in, fa- in fact, just the other day, I should have sent you this, or maybe I did. I think I did send you this. Yes, the, um, a, a, a young singer-songwriter got in touch with me and said, would you listen to my music? And now we, we're using it on ads for our artists. <laughs> really? Now, I sent you one uh, that we did uh, called Thin Blue Line. I, I'm having a feeling that from the silence on the other end of the phone, you didn't listen to it yet. I, I don't remember it, getting it. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I hope. Uh, okay, well, I'll send it to you, and we, maybe we can play it next time. It's really, really, a really good song. You know, it's a, it's a full song. Uh, you know, it's three minutes long, and uh, I, I persuaded him to uh, to edit a I don't know a forty second clip of it. That and he made a video for it as well, and it's something that we're using to help to prom- promote Shervin Nazami, who is oh, a yeah. American candidate. Yeah. We love him. Yes, absolutely. And, and and you know, I mean, this isn't his whole shtick. Uh, uh, this isn't Shervin's whole shtick. It's just one part of it. Like I said, it's called Thin Blue Line, and it is about um, uh, uh, criminal and racial justice reform. And it just, you know, so I love it when people send me music that is relevant to what I'm doing with, with the work now, uh, the the, uh, uh, the work uh, of helping to elect progressive candidates. And, um, you know, it, or if it just sounds really good, I can listen to I can listen to music all day. Other than that, I, I, I do not go and buy records. I, I you know, I, I don't subscribe to any subscription services. I just listen to music that I have loved in the past and that people send me now. Okay. I have a, let's talk about you. Me. I, I hate to endorse Spotify. Spotify changed my life. I have it going all the time in the background. And I'm like, uh, I, there, there were, there were anyway, uh, true or false. I've got you under my skin. Nelson Riddle and Frank Sinatra, greatest song, greatest recording of the 20th century. Uh, are you talking to me or someone else? You, true, that the greatest. I don't know if that's the greatest song of the 20th I like it, but what makes you ask, ask that question? I was just talking to a friend and, and we both of us agree that that is like a perfect recording. The Nelson Riddle arrangement with Frank saying, I got you under my skin. So I have I want to pitch to you an ad buy for Blue America. Oh, goody. Okay. 
I was talking to Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky last week on the show. And I came up with admire. I'm sorry. Two people I admire. Yes. And I I said. Bannon was able to isolate the incels. He found a voting block that he was able to manipulate and bring into the Republican Party. Why don't we or you find the anti-vaxxers and sell them Medicare for all or push, uh, you know, Medicare being able to negotiate drug prices? You have anti-vaxxers. Anti-vaxxers are insane. I don't understand how that makes sense. Well, because we, we have these people who hate the pharmaceutical industry. They don't trust the drug companies. Uh, that, I see. That's a demographic that you could target, I guess, on Facebook, get the anti-vaxxers and start pitching ads to them that pushes, uh, you know, anti-drug company sentiment that encourages them to vote for candidates who will take on the pharmaceutical industry. Maybe uh, that might work. We, we have to think about that a little more. Maybe you you should and I should. But um, what I've found, especially with um, morons, is it's very, very, very hard to pitch any ideas that are abstract. So it, although it makes sense to you, I don't think these people would connect the dots between uh, Medicare for all and them being an anti-vaxxer. They, 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 the, the furthest they could push, uh, the furthest they could connect anything would be their feelings in Trump. Right. I don't think they could. Uh, uh, I don't think they would see the connection between um, that and and good good solid policy. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, when you when you when you read about who these people are, I mean, I don't know any of them, but when I read about them, I I just you know I, I just imagine that they have you know seventy IQs, which is not enough uh, to get to to uh, understand anything abstract. I mean, did you read about the guy? In Texas, who just died? The thirty-year-old guy with with three kids. Oh yeah, and a, yeah, 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 yeah. He was he was an anti-masker, and he not just that he 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 was an all-around uh, right-wing fanatic. He's a, he was a terrorist. He was the uh, a bioterrorist. A bioterrorist. Oh no, 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 no. He was the, he was more than a bioterrorist. He was an actual terrorist. He was the leader of the te- of the West Texas. Militiamen. Oh, I'm thinking of somebody else. I'm thinking of somebody else. No, I don't think you are. He His held. Is, is this the guy who held Caleb. rallies and he's kind well, of yeah, heavy, heavy set? No, the, the media has has played down his role uh, in terrorism. They they've just tried to talk about the uh, the the um, the COVID related stuff, and they didn't get, get they haven't gotten into his politics. But I spent a lot of time researching it, and I found who he is. He was, you know, he sounds very rational. I mean, I've watched all the videos of him and he sounds like he's a sane person, but he wasn't a sane person. He was a hardcore Nazi, the worst of the worst, the garbage. And you know what made me uh, start investigating? It was when something his wife wrote uh, after he was already comatose and going to die. She wrote something. I mean, he was for all intents and purposes. He was already dead. 
you know, he was never coming back to, to life, and they, they wound up pulling the, the plug on him. But before the they pulled the plug, yeah, he's dead. He's officially dead now. They pulled the plug. He hadn't been alive for over a week. He had been dead for a week, brain dead. But uh, the wife started started saying, and to, for all you people who hated him and hated the things that he did that hurt your families and your loved ones, <laughs> she was going on like that. I mean, before he was even dead, and I was thinking, wow, there's something more to this than I'm reading in the media. And then I started, you know, looking more closely, and I found the fact about him being the uh, West Texas coordinator for the uh, the, the Minutemen, a terrorist organization. And so I'm anyway, sure he was a wonderful and loving husband. Well, right. he certainly knocked up a lot. She was, uh, what, she was like 20, he was 30. She was, I think 24 or maybe 26. And they've got three kids now and a fourth one that she's about to give birth to. And they're on, uh, you know, they're, they're online begging people to give them money now. And, you know, I feel sorry for, for her. And she, by the way, she didn't believe his bullshit. She wore a mask. Uh, you know, he, that he couldn't persuade her not to, but you know, so she was careful. My, I didn't read specifically that she had been vaccinated, but I have a feeling she was. In any case, uh, this guy, take my word for it. There is no amount of advertising that's going to convince someone like that to, um, uh, to back Medicare for all ever, ever. That's not, that's not what that's about. Uh, the only thing that, the only solution uh, is one that uh, God just uh, just uh, handed down. In fact, some some wag on uh, on I think Twitter or Facebook today said it must have been Twitter said something really funny, which was that um, COVID is God's way to introdu- introduce us to right wing radio hosts. <laughs> right, or God's vo- God's voter suppression, right wing voter suppression. <laughs> How what what is in all seriousness, we kind of touched on this uh, a few shows back with you. What kind of impact is this going to have on the on the vote in the South? If they start? Well, the problem, you know, I have spent a lot of hours, like unbelievable numbers of hours researching this. So if there were some swing counties or swing districts, where, you know, the numbers of Republicans who are dying from this, uh, if, in a, if it was a swing district where they were dying, that would mean something. But that's not what's happening. The, the places that have the worst, uh, the worst COVID epidemics and, and, and um, you know, the most cases and the fewest people vaccinated, those are, those are they're so right wing. There are no Democrats that could do anything there. So I don't really see any changes in the South at all. I mean, I'm talking about a county uh, where 10% or less of the people are vaccinated. Think about that. 90% unvaccinated, where Trump got over 90% of the vote. What, you, you need an A-bomb uh, to change anything in a county like that, right. not, not, a, not a, a pandemic. So many of these people are vulnerable. Uh, and easy to influence. And it seems like the far right got to them first because the, the liberals abandoned them. The, I agree with that, uh, that the far right got to them first and that liberals abandoned them. But, you know, a lot of these a lot of these people have they didn't have to be taught to be xenophobes. 
when, and know nothings. That that was already there. They didn't have to be taught to be racist. They already were racist. They didn't have to be taught to be anti-gay. I mean, somewhere in their lives they did. Somewhere in their lives that someone had to teach them that. But I think that the right wing didn't get didn't wasn't the one who taught them those things. I think the right wing found the people found their people who already were that way. Yeah, but people want to be good. They do. People want to present. Oh, they think they're being good. They they think hating gays is really good. I I don't know if you saw my uh, my 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 post today, but I did one uh, on uh, uh, Bachabazi. Do you you know what that is? What what is it? Bachabazi. No. Is that another thing Hillary screwed up? Sorry. Is that another embassy problem that Hillary is responsible for? No. Okay. Bachabazi is um, it, it's a it's a it's part of a, a ancient Afghan culture and it's alive and well today. And it, it basically, I mean, when you think about the ancient Greeks, you think about man boy love. That could be one of the things you could think about, uh, and and that is alive and well in Afghanistan. So, um, Afghan men. Um, uh, sleep with young boys as 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 young as nine and ten and eleven uh, until they're eighteen. And when someone turns eighteen, they're a man. And then you, then if you do that, you're gay, so you don't do it. So no one does it with someone who's over eighteen. Okay. So the Taliban, uh, first of all, when they were in power, they banned they banned Bachabazi. Uh, although it wasn't, it didn't disappear. It, it went underground. Uh, but um, now. Uh, the Taliban literally kills gay people. So Bachabazi is kind of not gay in their minds. That's just like an ancient uh, uh, part of society that they don't approve of. But no one thinks it's gay. The people who are participating it don't think it's gay. A lot of the young boys, uh, I, I embedded a movie about it uh, as well. I wrote about it t- uh, today or yesterday. And... Um, I invented a movie that talks about it. And some of the interviews with the young boys are interesting. When they're asked why they're doing it, they all said they're doing it because of money. They're all, they're all very, very poor boys. And also, they, some of the, the, uh, the people who own them, because they're, they're owned as though they were slaves. And, but when they're 18, they let them go. They cut them loose. But the, one, the, the so-called good masters help them find a wife, a home, a career, and, and that's what these guys want. None of them identify as being gay. I shouldn't say none of them, but many of them don't identify as being gay. They identify as someone who's put into a into a situation that they have to make the best of. In any case, the uh, the Taliban is, is out to kill gay people, and they don't think of themselves as being evil. They think of themselves as being God's people. They're doing this because God wants them to do it. They and they believe that. Just the same way that the people in Alabama and Mississippi think that being anti-gay is a good thing. They don't think of themselves as being bad people. They think of themselves as being good people. So when you say uh, these people want to be good, they think they are being good. They, the, the 40 million or whatever it was who voted for Trump, they didn't think of themselves. We may think of them as evil, but they didn't think of themselves as evil. They thought they were being good. They think we're evil. Right. I think if we get to them first, with you know, I I remember kindergarten. I don't. Yeah, think we can get them then. Yes, I agree with that. I think 
all this behavior wouldn't fly in any kindergarten in any city in America. It's, uh, but, uh, well, not in a city in America, but it would fly in rural parts of America. I think I can't imagine a kindergarten teacher. Oh, come on, dude. Really? Uh, you need to imagine it because it's there. Well, let's turn to Joe Biden. You wrote something that was sympathetic to Joe Biden. Here's my. Funny you should say that. I'm, that's exactly what I was doing when you called just now, writing another piece that's sympathetic to Joe Biden. My theory about Not Joe Biden. You might expect from Howie Klein. I'll, let me run my theory and then is that I never understood why your guy is pushing 80 and he's against Medicare for all. Like, why wouldn't he's about to meet his maker? Why wouldn't you be Bernie? Uh, and I think with Afghanistan, Joe Biden is ready to meet his maker. But he he knows he spent 20 years trying to solve this problem. And I think he sleeps well at night. He's don't you? Yes. I do. I think he's doing the right thing with Afghanistan. As um, I think it was David Roth, Rothkopf said uh, today, he doesn't deserve uh, blame for Afghanistan. No. He deserves credit for Afghanistan. Yeah. And, I, and I believe that, too. Afghanistan means a lot to me. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. I know a lot of Afghan people. I didn't spend most of my time in Kabul, like uh, most of most Americans who go there do. I was all over the country, including parts of the country where no one had ever heard of America. Literally, no one had heard of America. No one had experienced electricity. And this is quite a long time ago. But uh, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for Afghanistan. And I've, I've spent a lot of time writing about it. And I think that Biden absolutely did the right thing. Absolutely. And I think it's disgusting the way the Republicans have just completely given up on any semblance of patriotism just so that they could attack him uh, from a partisan perspective. It's disgusting. It's interesting when it's a Republican commander in chief, when you attack the war, the Republicans will say, you know, when you attack the, the war, you're attacking our troops and their families. Uh, but if there's a, a Democrat in the Oval Office, I mean, those bodies weren't even. My way, I don't want to get grotesque, you know, be insensitive. They weren't transferred back to the U.S. yet. Absolutely. They were already, especially when you think about, uh, you know, people like uh, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Madison Cawthorn and Paul Gosar. I mean, the worst of the worst. They, they're just drooling over this. You know, it's funny. The Republican, you know, I don't know if you watched Lindsey Graham on uh, on TV yesterday, but he in one sentence, he was saying he was attacking Biden for not bringing our allies, our Afghan allies uh, uh, out of Afghanistan. And in, in the same sentence, he was attacking Biden for flooding America with Afghans. Right. I mean, and this this is the Republican Party. That's who they are. They, they just want to they want to see what sticks. But they're attacking Biden for both things. And, and the funny thing is, uh, that, is that the Afghans are the most conservative people I've ever met in my life. And except for the fact that, um, you know, they're, they're not going to appreciate being uh, uh, disrespected by the Republicans, which you can definitely count on. They would be perfect uh, future Republicans. 
it's not going to work because the Republicans won't accept them because they're Muslims. But uh, I mean, look at look at how the I mean, you you think that the Cubans in in Florida are conservative, which they are, but they don't hold a candle to the apps, the apps who are really, really conservative. Now, that said, a lot of the people who who have gotten out, I understand, are, are more urbanized and um, cosmopolitan. Uh, and that, that, that would seem to be the ones, a lot of the ones who have actually escaped. So that, so that might not hold as true as what I said, which generalizes about the whole country. Yeah. Before you go. In any case, before uh, they are, uh, they're on their way. Some of them are here. And, uh, you know, I looked up, uh, what the, how the state, the, uh, there's a document that the state department gives them that tells, gives them three choices for how to, um, decide where to live. And, and, and one of those choices includes 19 cities that have agreed to oh, take them in. Oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. Yeah, well, it's on my blog. I, I wrote about it today. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, 19, 19 cities. But don't tell fun. us. We'll use it as a way to get people to go to your, uh, so you know what the number, what, don't say it. People need to go to your blog. We can find out uh, the one they chose. The number one choice no no there no these i mean some are in in the country already but most of them are are not i mean they're, they're in uh camps where they're being very carefully vetted and that takes time so there are definitely some apps in the country but uh the most of them haven't and they're getting this uh this document from the state department that's telling them you know we can we can choose for you you can choose for yourself uh you know for example if you have family here uh, that that doesn't mean that we're going to settle you near the family uh, because the cost of living is a consideration. Uh, you know, if it's your mother or father, that's one thing. But if it's a cousin, doesn't count. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a very very interesting document, and people who are interested in this kind of thing, and I see you are, uh, should re- read the document. I, I linked to the State Department site that has the full document on it, Great. and I quoted parts of it, including the 19 cities uh, where they can move to. Some of them, by the way, are in in Republican states. Now, they're not Republican-run cities, but it's not the governors uh, who make the decision. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the, the city itself, so mayors um, and uh, city councils, I guess. But, it's, um, it, 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 but even some governors have requested from the federal government that they want Afghans for one reason or another. For example, Utah, which topographically is very much like Afghanistan. They have asked for uh, uh, for Afghans, uh, as has uh, Arkansas, which is a state that's losing population. They have asked to to have Afghans sent sent there. And you wouldn't think of these two states, which are you know so Trumpist. And remember, I mean, Trump's biggest thing is anti-immigrant. Right. Anti. You know, his xenophobia is one of the biggest things. That's really interesting. We have the Republican governor of Utah and the Republican governor of Arkansas both petitioning to the federal government, send us some Afghan uh, refugees. These are Republican voters. That's interesting. They 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 could be Republican voters if they're not mistreated. After Afs are, you know, the whole concept of honor is uh, is on a different level uh, um, than it is anywhere in the West. And you disrespect an Afghan, believe me, if he figures out you're a Republican, he's not. 
Interesting. Hey, Erica Smith, Senator Erica Smith. So great. So great. One of the best ever. Everybody should go to Erica for you. Erica for us. Yes. And and uh, you can donate to her there. Yes. And that would be a really good thing to do. All right. Read how you get ready for uh, our guest next week. You go to my blog and read about him. Uh, Mike Ortega in Orange County, exceptional candidate. And we're going to have him on with us next week. Great. Howie Klein, thank you. I love you. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week, David. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, we're running on time today. The, 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 The clock gods have been good to us. When we come back, the brilliant David Cobb will join us. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket. He also managed Ralph Nader's uh, presidential campaign in Texas in in 2000. Uh, Office hours this Friday night, office hours and hours. So we're going to go for 24 hours. We will be back with David Cobb. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bello Marvel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller. Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender. I'm traveling light. So light. 
twizzlers in case I have some visitors. For breeze if my room is stinky, a Polaroid in case I get kinky. My Jesus bobblehead and my Star Wars bedspread, I'm traveling light. I got my rabbi costume and my portable dark room, my hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoeshine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Take us with you wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a YouTube channel and a Zoom room, a chat room. Hopefully, I'll be able to take some calls from the chat room, the Zoom room, later on in the show. Before I bring on David Cobb, just want to say something about Mike Steinel. I play the same songs over and over again. They're very catchy. The only reason, David Cobb, that I play four or five of the same songs over and over again is those are the ones I made like a music video for. I mean, the, this, the songs that Mike Steinell writes for this show are unbelievable. I just haven't had time to make other music videos. Uh, he is a, a national treasure, Mike Steinell, who will be with us later on in the show. Let's go to Humboldt, where David Cobb is standing by. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket. And he is an attorney, but we won't hold that against him. An environmental activist. Welcome, David Cobb. <laughs> Give us some good news, sir. We need good news. What are you planning? What What, what do you have? You're, you don't, you're indefatigable. <laughs> so tell us what you've got in the works. Well, thank you, David. I, you know, I, I am excited to tell you about the Regenerative Community Summit uh, that I'm part of, but I can't let it go. I was rocking uh, to Steinel's uh, tune whenever you came in, and there were at least literally four or five times where I had mental images that like literally appeared. Uh, like the fact that like I didn't realize that he was writing that music just for your show. Uh, I know. This is an amazing artist. Like, congratulations. Like, I, really, I, I don't want to. And, and part of it, like, look, you know, like almost every human being, I like to listen to music. But one of the things that I really realized is that art and culture is so critically important for movement work. And what Steinel is able to do is give us genuinely entertaining, moving uh, music that has a much more subtle uh, political message. Oh, oh he's got some, I, I haven't played enough of the other stuff that he's done about going after Jeff Bezos 
And oh, the, the one to the billionaires uh, uh, in space. I yeah, love it. But there's he's done other. He has a that one's not subtle. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. OK, so t thank you on behalf of Professor Mike Steinau. Thank you. And uh, it's the truth. He is. You know what's great about him? And this is important. He's written four novels in the past 16 months. He he doesn't have a voice in his head saying you can't do this. And either do you. Well, you know, uh, I think that's true. Uh, and I'd like to actually uh, get a chance to listen in sometime uh, when you have a conversation with Professor Steinel, because, you know, uh, like I can't help myself, uh, David, and I sometimes don't know it. Like, I think it's some combination of this. Although I was born in poverty, I know for a fact that I was loved and cherished as a little baby. From the very beginning of my consciousness, uh, my mama, my mama and my papa, that's uh, Southern Louisiana for uh, uh, grandmother and grandfather, right? They, they raised me. Uh, and I knew with conviction and certainty that not only was I loved and cherished, but I knew that there was a place in the world for me and that the world wanted me. And that's one of the things that I often, so, so like I had that knowledge, right? So that's the external. And is it also internal? Do I just have a happy coincidence of biochemistry that makes me think because of how the biochemicals work in my brain that everything is gonna basically be all right? I, my, my suspicion is it's some combination of both. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I do know from the study of social change work, the study of revolutionary process, uh, the study of world history, that ordinary people are the ones who actually can make those kinds of changes. You know, uh, I've, I, I often reflect on, uh, uh, you know, uh, the great political philosophers, and you've heard me quote Lily Tomlin in the past. Mm -hmm. Now I'll, I'll quote the great political philosopher, Andy Warhol, okay. who once said, you know, they say time changes everything, but it's not true. You actually have to change things yourself. And I think that that's what you were getting at with that kind of question, right? That uh, the spirit of Professor Steinel or myself or other social change agents is that we're not just waiting. We're not passive observers. And I say this with kindness to you know the listeners of this podcast. We're also not just talkers, right? Like we are on the ground doing the work. And I do want to invite everyone on this podcast to join me and literally dozens of other social change agents at the Regenerative Community Summit happening Friday, September 24th through Sunday, October 10. And I'm just gonna give you the framing. We know that the climate emergency is not coming, it's here and getting worse. We've got natural and everyday disasters just completely devastating our communities. Uh, we also know that there are things that we can do right here right now to not only make people's lives better, but we can begin to shift to a just and resilient community. And so that's what we're actually doing at this summit. We're gonna be bringing together artists, dreamers, farmers, entrepreneurs, educators, everyday people who are not just reimagining the world, they're actually rebuilding that new world. And that's really my challenge to, to everyone listening to this is, look, 
you know, I believe in electoral politics. I, I, I engage in electoral politics. But one of the things that I think is a real mistake is that I don't hear enough conversation around, well, what can you do in between elections? Because if the only agency that we have is to pull a lever for or against some person, it really disempowers us when there is so much that we the people could actually do. In fact, I'll conclude with this, David Feldman. We the people are hallowed words in this country. They're the first three words of the U.S. Constitution. They they really lift up the fact that done correctly, uh, we the people are government. And what I would tell you is this. We the people are far more powerful than we dare to be- believe and dream. And elections is a a way to exercise some power, but it's actually a pretty anemic way to exercise power because you get one vote for you know uh, either a set of candidates or what have you, when we could be actually doing the work of building worker-owned cooperatives, uh, advocating and supporting public banks, helping to support uh, community land trusts. Uh, we could be working on locally controlled energy production and distribution models. I mean, there is an entire realm of activity. Uh, and I often say, and I'll conclude it with this, hell yes, I engage in elections, but my, my, the world that I want to live in, my imagination, uh, my dreams cannot merely fit on a ballot. I've got way, way more to do than just vote. Right, right. How do people sign up for this? So it's very easy. Just go to uh, uh, transition. Uh, pardon me, transitionus.org. That stands for Transition US. The transition movement was birthed out of England a couple of decades ago uh, around the, the the looming crisis of peak oil and the, the climate catastrophe that was then. You know, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Well, it's here now, right? So transition is all about the idea of transitioning away from a fossil fuel extractive power over political economy into a new political economy, an entirely new system. And again, one of the things that I tell folks is I'm not waiting for that magical day when progressives control every branch of government federal, state, and local. I'm not waiting for that magical day. Yes, I work for that. Yes, I, I engage in elections, but I'm actually doing the work right now to begin that that transition. The budget bill that Bernie is shepherding through the Senate, not enough, but monumental? Kind yes. of close. You, you said it well. Not enough, but still, it's a sea change, right? Like, like there's no doubt that, uh, once again, uh, Senator Sanders is laying out a break from the business as usual, right? And this is the thing that, that I appreciate, actually, about your show and many of your guests is the understanding about, uh, you know, the, the limits of uh, uh, electoral politics, right? The, the reality is that what... Uh, uh, Senator Sanders, uh, Bernie, as uh, we affectionately say, uh, is laying out for that budget bill. It it completely would reshift and reimagine American priorities. Uh, these are all things that actually, uh, and you know what's really interesting, Feldman? Every one of them that I've that I, at least that I've looked at, I haven't done a deep deep dive. These are all majority positions. 
Like these are majoritarian positions. So to me, what I appreciate about uh, Bernie is he's really holding uh, the Democratic Party uh, to task. It's like this is the winning this is the winning strategy. Right. And notice it's a progressive populist strategy. Right. It's not the neoliberal democratic approach. It's not, you know, uh, it's it's not what is possible. It's like this is what's needed. And if you and I believe that Bernie is right, if you if the Democratic Party would lay out, we're doing what America actually needs and we're just putting it out there with a progressive populist vision. I think that you would see that uh, more and more people would actually flock to that. So the way you're teaching us to think is don't fetishize don't fetishize politics occupy is 10 years old is it fair to say that in the past 10 years something happened that has now scared the pants off of schumer and pelosi and Biden? yes yeah that's an astute observation. And I'm glad that you actually brought up Occupy. In fact, we're, we're about to celebrate the 10 year anniversary. And in 10 short years, the Occupy movement popularized we are the 99%. Uh, the Occupy movement uh, really, like, and, and some of the phrasing was so profound. Banks got bailed out, we got sold out. I mean, again, all of it was coming from a very progressive populist uh, positionality, right? Uh, the other thing, and I'll tell you, as you know, you know, I helped to draft the public banking bill in California, a rec, you know, a, a monumental bit of legislation that allows for the creation of local or regional banks in the state of California. We're working diligently now to promulgate the rules to actually uh, impact that. David Feldman, that would have never been possible but for the sea change that the Occupy movement was able to capture. Another thing that I think it's worth pointing out about the Occupy movement was that it was truly independent of the Democratic Party apparatus. Mm-hmm. In fact, and, uh, Bernie's not a Democrat. Here. How about that? And get this, uh, Feldman. Do you know, I mean, uh, I forget who wrote this, uh, but I, I remember uh, uh, confirming and corroborating this, that Occupy was dismantled under the Obama administration. And it was going on and on. And frankly, uh, members of the Democratic Party had sent in and tried to turn the Occupy movement into basically the Republicans version of the Tea Party, right? Uh, but. Uh, the Occupy movement refused to accept their marching orders from the Democratic Party operatives. And so the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Justice and the Office of Homeland Security engaged in a series of over 48 hours of telephone conversations with the mayors of every major city uh, in the United States. And I. Like, who knows exactly what was uh, said in those meetings? I don't know what was said. I know that those meetings took place. And 48 hours later, every city began dismantling their Occupy camps. And I genuinely believe it's because the Obama administration, for all the nice rhetoric, they were always a neoliberal administration. And uh, what they were afraid of was that there was a truly independent 
bottom up progressive populist movement that was gaining momentum, was beginning to show up in all sorts of different ways, was changing the narrative. And uh, they're scared of us. Right. Like, this is the one thing that I think that we have to understand that the 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 Republican Party leadership, the Democratic Party leadership, they are scared of a real mass movement, right? And the point that I make constantly on this program is there is going to be a new political economy. The neoliberal center is not going to hold. And it's either going to end up breaking to some version of eco-socialism, some version of uh, Bernie's vision, or it's going to break to some version of a, of a fascist uh, society. Like, there... I I would love to be proven wrong. Let me be very clear about this, David. Like, I hope I'm wrong, but every bit of every data point that I look at, uh, all of the arcs that I'm looking at with the ecological crisis, the economic crisis, the political crisis, like we are in a truly historic conjuncture. Like there is going to be some new way of organizing society and capitalism as it's been practiced where you know industrial capitalism where the capitalist exploits the surplus value of labor of the worker that's going to end because of robotics automation technology it can't continue to derive the capitalist can't continue to to derive profits from that and oh by the way it's also going to end because of the existential fucking crisis that it that we are destroying the planet faster than she can replenish herself so there is going to be a break it is coming and you know the hurricane ida is is just the latest you know the fires that are burning uh, across northern california uh, you know this is the new normal and we have a very short window to actually do something about it yeah, yeah. i'll come off the soapbox sorry no, I, no you're I, absolutely I, right and the events i think these are you know i'm not trying to be hyperbolic uh, but I think the next three months determine the fate of our country. That if they don't... Say more, say more about that, David. I, I want you to drill down on why three months. Because you have these Afghan, the veterans coming home, who uh, their PTSD is exacerbated. They're, they're, the Pentagon is reaching out to our veterans because of the situation they are ripe for the plucking, the veterans. Fox News can get to them. Uh, Christian warriors can get to them. And uh, we have to get to them. Our side has to get to the veterans. We can't lose the veterans. And... uh, I think there's something very powerful in that. And I, I, again, I, I keep falling back to the, the need to actually demonstrate to people that we have, have a, not just a vision, but we've got a vision and we've got a plan that we can implement that will actually make their lives better. And that's why I, I, I genuinely believe if uh, uh, a candidate could convince folks that, no, I will champion uh, 
the, the universal health care. I'll champion you and your children uh, getting access to health care. I will champion and win for you uh, a living wage. I will champion and win that kind of, uh, you know, uh, that, that kind, those kind of policies. Because you know what's really interesting, David Feldman, is that I look back on Bernie's runs in 2016 and 2020, and I realize that Democratic Party voters fell for the lesser of two evils themselves at a time which is heartbreaking. I mean, it's revisionist history, we'll never know for sure, but there is no doubt in my mind that Bernie Sanders would have beat the hell out of Donald Trump in a, in a head-to-head, one-on-one election where people had to choose between one of those two visions of America, Sanders would have taken it running away. I, I, I'm not so sure. Say more, because like, I've already laid out why I think so, right? I think so because- I don't think the infrastructure is there for Bernie yet. I mean, Bernie is a miracle of democracy. What he's able to pull off when the story is written about Bernie, there is nobody in the government helping him. Nobody. A handful of people who are part of the infrastructure. What he's accomplished, he created a movement uh, that had nothing to do with the Democratic Party, nor Washington. And had he gotten the nomination, I think I'd like to think that this budget resolution that he's going to shepherd is better than his being president. Because can you imagine if he were commander in chief right now, pulling out of a war that you're that you've lost never goes easy. It it the 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 Democratic establishment, the Obamas, the Clintons, they would have said, you see, this is what the childish mind of a socialist gets you on the world stage. They'd be all over Bernie if these inevitable mistakes that are baked into a withdrawal happened on his watch. So but look, you might, you might be right about that. I, I will give you this, that we can't fully know like the depths to which the the neoliberal establishment, and by that I mean the corporate media and all of the corporatists uh, would have turned on him. So rather than sort of going on on the back and forth, I do want to circle back because uh, I think that it's important that we actually take a look at what uh, Bernie has done and what he did in Iowa when he laid out uh, the budget proposal. It's a three and a half trillion dollar uh, uh, budget reconciliation that is literally like it really is putting uh, with a level of policy specifics. This is what the new, like a green new deal. This is actually what what it, what it would what it would be right. Uh, and I think that it, it's going to be very interesting. I know that he has uh, he was in Iowa, and. And you may have uh, been following this uh, uh, more, David Feldman. Like, I'm curious to know, because I've heard rumors that he's planning on taking this into traditional conservative states. He's taking he's he's talking about actually going on the road with this. And I'm wondering if if 
I'm if I'm just imagining and wanting it to be true, or if you've heard this same sort of thing. I don't know. I don't know. Because I'll tell you this: like I hope, like I, 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 I have a fir- almost feverish dream uh, to imagine Bernie Sanders going into the heartland. Bernie Sanders going into those areas that you hear me talk about where I can go into pool halls and bowling alleys and have conversations with folks. Mm -hmm. I know that I have cousins who voted for Donald Trump that in Texas that told me, Oh, but if Bernie Sanders would have run, I'd have voted for him because, because I trust him. Right. And again, like, I think that that that's the thing that I don't think, like, I don't think, and these are folks, some of whom probably watch Fox, right? Like, I think that there is something to the level of authenticity uh, and uh, genuine sincerity. Like Bernie Sanders does not try to equivocate. Bernie Sanders does not like it's very clear. Like Biden does it all the time. You can watch him. Right. Do the political calculations in his head about how far he should go and, you know, et cetera. And Bernie Sanders doesn't do this. You know what you're getting uh, with Bernie Sanders. Right. And you frankly, you know what you're getting with Donald Trump, too. Yes. Uh, Let me do this. Uh, I have to call Dr. Harriet Fraud because she's not here. Can you stick around? Yeah, I can stick around for a little bit. Uh, I, I do have to jump at a quarter after. Okay, so let me do this. Let's play some more music from Professor Mike Steinel. And let me make a call to make sure everything's okay with Dr. Harriet Fraud. And you're listening to The David Feldman Show. We have uh, Professor Adnan Hussein coming up. We're going to do Community Billboard. We've got Professor, uh, we've got Peter B. Collins and Marianne Cummings and everybody. Office hours and hours this Friday night. Please join us. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We'll be back with more of David Cobb and hopefully Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you. 
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. It's time right now of the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Uh, David Cobb, uh, you can hear me, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, that, that great, the Invisible Ninja put together the visuals on that, which you'd have to see on uh, in the Zoom room or on uh, YouTube. Uh, yeah, it, it's... Uh, well, so, I saw the Flash animation. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I'm watching live on YouTube. It's, it's good stuff. What do you uh, do to relax this summer? You know, uh, my best activity, look, I live in paradise, right? Humboldt County, California uh, really is an amazing place. And so I am a, a bicycle ride away from uh, the Pacific Ocean. I am literally uh, a 12-block walk from Humboldt Bay along the water. And I have the great, great uh, privilege of a, a relationship with my high school sweetheart uh, and we have a four-year-old yellow labrador who uh, uh, gets me out so the way i relax is i have a morning walk uh, and an evening walk with my partner ruthie and that dog every day and uh sometimes uh it is uh, whenever the, my schedule allows it, it's actually into the forest or the beach. Uh, but at the very least, uh, there is a beautiful city park that we go on. So what is it about high school? Life. What is it about high school? Oh, my gosh. Listen, one of the things like so Ruthie and I were high school sweethearts. Then we went then. Uh, so we haven't been together continuously since uh, 1981 when we graduated. Uh, but I can tell you this one thing that I know about Ruthie and that is that she knows me authentically uh, and I know her authentically. I mean, I think that uh, that's something about high school when you're when you're coming into your adulthood and you're really, you know, trying to figure out who you are. 
uh, like Ruthie knows, uh, you know, she remembers me uh, as a, you know, a boy trying to become a man. I remember her as a girl becoming a woman. There's something just very and now we're all we're all men trying to be boys again. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Although it's funny, like I was just talking about, it, like I I, uh, I was telling her, it's like, how the hell did it happen? We're 58 years old. Like like how did that happen? I mean, I don't know about you, Feldman, but sometimes I like. Like when I think back, like I don't think when I close my eyes and think about myself, I don't think about David Cobb 58 with all the life I've done. I'm almost always, you know, 18 to 25. Like I agree. <laughs> I'm constantly asking myself, I'm trying to figure out who I am. And is this my life or is I, I think on my deathbed 100 years from now, I'm going to be going, OK, is this who I am? Is this, I, But I guess we never i think the mistake we make in high school is we decide what should be and we're constantly trying i not we i think i did i had like this platonic absolute of what adulthood would bring and it's doesn't exist it's a lie and it is and i'm glad and we 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 convince ourselves of lies all the time, don't we? I mean, like, uh, and especially, at least for me, again, I'll just speak for myself. I know that for myself in my young adulthood, I had such conviction and dogma about what I, like what I knew to be true. I mean, uh, and one of the things that I've realized, David Feldman, is that like, I think back to what I think, what I thought 10 years ago, politically, socially, what I thought then 20 years ago, and honestly, I hope that I continue to like. I hope. I, I hope I'm not still thinking the same thoughts, and the, I hope. I hope that I continue to learn, and I think that that's one of the things that uh, I have noticed that a lot of folks just get into a kind of dogmatic approach, and they just pontificate their talking points. And I often will like one of the things that I'm always listening for in conversation is. Do I ever hear this person say, oh, I was wrong about that? Or, oh, thanks for that. I didn't understand or didn't know that. Right. right? That kind of. You do it. I'm sorry? You do it. Oh, well, thank you. I I hope I do. I mean. Yeah, you you didn't know. There was a guest, like a brilliant guest we had on the show. And you didn't know who that person was, which is better than me not being able to remember (laughs) Who that? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting. I'm getting, getting uh, I'm, part of the aging process is I'm still fighting, so I'm kicking ass and forgetting names. That's my motto. <laughs> right. So yeah, I know. I do remember it was the theologian. Uh, and, oh, Sh- uh, Frank Schaefer, of course. Yes. Schaefer. Yeah. And and it was not just that I didn't know he who he was, but I, I came in early enough. Uh, you know, because sometimes I come in early and just listen to the to the guests that were before me, uh, and it was like it was brilliant. And I was like, oh my god! I was, and I was taking some notes. I hadn't. It was a book that he was referencing that I yes. had not read. Uh, well, humility, intellectually, you start if you start with humility, uh, you can't fail. What you don't know, and and here's the thing, David, I don't know what I don't know. Right. 
right? And, and neither do you or neither do any of your guests. But the problem is if we don't have that intellectual humility, we'll never allow ourselves to actually be educated. And that's why like, I, like the struggle for political clarity, uh, it's not, that's why we have to listen to people uh, and really engage with them. Like, and I say this all the time, like, so I have convictions, uh, I have opinions, right? Convictions are, are deeper held and more enduring than mere opinions. Uh, and I could be wrong. Like, you know, I've been wrong before lots of times. Uh, and so we have to actually be willing to, to act, as you say, that yeah. intellectual humility to, to engage at that level. I think the most, da- the most dangerous Americans are young parents because <laughs> They're acting like adults. They're acting like adults because they have to be adults. It's I think it's biological. They have to have some kind of certitude because there's no other way to do this. You got you're responsible for another human. You you're, you're like, right. better act with some, some degree of certainty. And you can't be wrong. You I, I you know, and and so you you feign adulthood and i fell prey to that because my politics moved towards the center once i had kids because i acted like a oh i better behave like an adult and this is what (laughs) adults do and this is how adults think and we're easy pickings because we're tired we don't get enough sleep we're terrified and we're easy pickings for the you know the Obamas and the the Clintons. They, my generation of parents, they lulled us to sleep at night. They appealed to our what we thought was our better angel, and then they manipulated us. Where parents are ripe for exploitation, as are <laughs> these returning veterans. I think. Oh, nice job! How you uh, and and we and you you have to be careful. You have to be careful uh, with these with parents and and veterans because. uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I I I liked how you brought it back to that to the veterans from our earlier uh, conversation. I also wanted to just check in. Is Harriet all right? Uh, I'm I'm not. I've I've put uh, yes. She is. But uh, let me play you a Marine. Then we'll wrap it up. I'm going to play this Marine again because he's getting a lot of attention on the Internet right now and the news media. But they're not playing. There's some stuff he says that just isn't doesn't fit the narrative that the mainstream media wants you to hear. This is a Marine who uh, I think he's a lieutenant. Colonel, 16, 17 years in the Marines. I'm not going to tell you his name out of respect. Uh, He needs help. And I want to play this again because this is the price of war. This is what the armchair warriors never think about. This is a, a man in the prime of his life who wants accountability and He's obviously suffering. He started speaking out against Biden. And this stuff has been going on since man first hit another man over the head with a stick. 
but never before has somebody in trouble had access to an iPhone and the Internet. So I just want to play this gentleman who who is in need of love and compassion and and listen, this is what you're not going to hear from him. I'm not going to mention his name, but this is being passed around. This is a Marine who needs love and compassion. However much extra the disability would be, I think that money should go back to all the senior general officers because I think they need it more than I do. Because when I am done with what I'm about to do, you all are going to need the jobs and the security. The conventional Marine on the ground who has to smell burning shit, who, when I was in Ramadi, I was exposed to it so much that burning shit actually smelt like bacon and eggs and I grew to enjoy the smell. You have no idea what I'm capable of doing. Follow me and we will bring the whole fucking system down. I am honorable and you can ask any Marine who served with me for 17 years. I dare you to ask them all and find out what I'm made of. We're just getting started. I played that. I'm not going to give you his name. He's all over the Internet right now. And I, the shot, you can't really identify his face. Uh, that is a troubled Marine who needs love. And we failed our Vietnam vets big time. We failed our Iraqi vets and our Afghanistan vets. These guys have done... Some of these guys have done 24 tours of duty. If you did Vietnam, uh, I was too young for Vietnam, but my understanding was you did one tour of duty. And if you were, you know, crazy, you upped for a second tour. We have uh, veterans who have done, some of whom have done 10, 15, 20 tours of duty. They go overseas, cell phones. They're, they're married. They're on the phone with their loved ones uh, in a firefight. So it, this is, we have to focus on making sure our veterans are okay because it's the right thing to do, as every shitty politician says, it's the moral thing to do. And if we don't help them, then they fall prey to the people who pretend to help them, the Fox Newses, the Republicans, the people who claim to be loyal Americans who call themselves patriots. Uh, the next three months are crucial. And the war in Afghanistan was a mistake. It is not our soldiers' fault. It is the fault of Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, the Bush family, Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, who they finally buried, as if he didn't already stink enough. They kept him around a month. And Paul Wolf, these people should be frog marched to The Hague 
for an illegal war. If we don't take care of our troops this time around, uh, you know, read between the lines. It's a uh, not going to be not good, not good at all. And well, there, there are no easy solutions to this. Now, there aren't easy individual solutions, but I'm, I'm glad you actually played that. And I'll they won't play them. that part about burnt flesh smelling like, what do you say, eggs and bacon and eggs. Bacon and eggs. That, 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 that won't get played. Uh, they'll play him, they'll, uh, but they won't play that on NPR. No, they won't. And no. I'll tell you, so uh, you didn't name this Marine, but I'm going to uh, use my, my final moments on this program to quote from at the, at the time of his death, he was the most decorated Marine in the history of the Marine Corps. This is uh, General Smedley Butler. Here he goes. This is him, not me. Remember, the most decorated Marine, he was the Marine Commandant, the highest ranking Marine uh, at, at the time that he said this. Quote, war is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, and surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the U.S. Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that time period, I spent most of my time being a high class muscle man or big business for Wall Street and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer. I was a gangster for capitalism. That's from War is a Racket by U.S. Marine Corps Commandant General Smedley Butler. And that's somebody who we never hear from uh, in corporate media. And I will say this, that the, the reality is that the American servicemen and women of this country are keeping the machinery of capitalism and empire greased with their blood, with their sweat, and with their tears. And they are not to be blamed for it, but we should be very clear, they're not operating for a traditional American empire. This is not uh, an empire based on acquiring land to build the American empire. This is a corporate empire. It, it, it has corporate values, not American values. And the sooner we come to understand that the real fight is not between the traditional left and the right, but is instead the pyramid, the up and the down, uh, that that's actually, we've got to find ways to make genuine relationship with the kind of Marines that you just quoted uh, by talking to them with love, compassion, and authenticity and say, we hear you, we want to be there with you, we want to be there for you, and I need you to be there for me too. Right. So I'll conclude with this, man. I'm a prepper, but you know what? I'm not the kind of prepper that believes that uh, I will survive doomsday uh, by amassing a bunch of gu uh, guns and, and, and hoarding food, I'm preparing my community to be able to take care of each other and ourselves 
as the rest of this thing falls apart. Right. And the preppers ain't going to vote for a preppy. <laughs> they don't. They're no, not. They, they see right through. John, like John Kerry. Yeah, he just could not connect with ordinary. Folks. He couldn't connect with the, the uh, soldiers he served with. They hated him. You know, he was he went. He was a veteran, but uh, he couldn't uh, he couldn't connect. And they swift boated him. Everybody gets upset about his being swift boated, uh, you know, with his phony Brahmin accent. Thank you, David Cobb. David Feldman, thank you so much. And, and again, folks, please, if you're able to join me at the Regenerative Community Summit, transitionus.org. Uh, we expect hundreds, if not a thousand people uh, to come and it'll be visionary. It'll be practical and everything in between. Great. Thank you, sir. Let us do this. Uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud, I don't think is going to be with us today. Uh, we have, if it's okay with Dan, why don't we do community billboard and uh, we can bring this show in on time today. Wouldn't that be nice? How about that? And I will that? see you next week. Thank you, Bye sir. David Cobb. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Dan, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? You look. You don't look pretentious enough today. Why not? I don't know. Okay. What's happening with our community? You you are assigned to this community. By the way, thank you for your help at the top of the show. No problem. During jag the officer. show and in the middle of the show. Jag officer. I'm a jag officer. Uh, office hour. What time did office hours end last week? Or Friday. I'm not. Is I'm still not going. Sure. This could be. Okay. <laughs> I know the week before I I went to sleep at ten thirty and woke up at two, and then Davy Manimal was doing a uh, dance party without his shirt on. Oh, I I'm sorry, I missed that. I begged him to do a dance party. What time yeah. was that? It was like two two thirty in the morning. Ah, it was fantastic. Fantastic. Well, let's talk about our community. Let's start with the artists. Look at that. Whoa. That's Tom Weber. That's Tom, Tom Weber. Uh, he did a painting of apples. And he says, here's my latest little painting from last night. It's a still life with apples and acrylics, six by six inches on stretched canvas. Beautiful. Yep. You can check him out on uh, TomWeberArt.com and I haven't mentioned it in a while but uh, on Facebook he and his wife do uh, live concerts and you can check them out uh, singer songwriters Fair Weber and they do half hour shows on Tuesday nights at 8 Eastern and uh, sometimes on uh, Saturdays at 8 Eastern they're doing 90 minute concerts so just check them out on Facebook you know singer, I noticed what, when, when office hours started I don't know, a year and a half ago, music was the thing. Art, there's, so we have music. Now I'm seeing more and more art springing up. I hope uh, Professor Marianne Cummings takes up uh, art. Growing. She might be able to, she might be able to paint. Yeah, she might be able to. Uh, gardening is an art. There, sure my, new, my new hair plugs came in. Those are, they, I, Whoa! Yeah, they took it from my back this time. What 
What is that? This is Glenn's pole beans. Those are his intestines. <laughs> that looks like, you know what that looks like? There's so many holes. In, that looks like Matt Gates's brain. Just the syphilis has just eaten so many holes into his brain. Yet it looks healthy and delicious. Yes. Those so are pole this, beans? This, this is his pole beans harvest of the day. And that is was something strippers ago. eat. That's what I heard. Pole beans? Make it rain for my pole beans. <laughs> we don't talk about that publicly. Oh, yes. We, yes. Uh, pole beans. So tell me about the pole beans. Well, if you go on to the next picture, he shows us how he preserves them, which is a blanching and uh, freezing process, which I can tell you about. When you get these vegetables, uh, when you cut them up and you blanch them for a minute or two in boiling water, you dunk them in uh, an ice bath, which is just cold water with ice in it, to shock them and stop the cooking process. You bag them up and toss them in the freezer. Is that how bird's eye did it? Yeah. It's exactly how Bird's Eye did it. Was that really his name? Yeah. Glenn Costick Bird's Eye. So go over this again. How do you make your... In order to preserve uh, fresh vegetables, you blanch them in boiling water for a minute or two. And you can see in the boiling picture down in the bottom left that they get like a bright green if you right. overcook them, they start turning into to like a, a pale grayish. But you shock them in ice water, and that kind of preserves the greenish color. The chlorophyll stops cooking. Then you get them into a, a bag, and you freeze them. Fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I I saw who drew this. Oh, no, it's... it's uh, uh, did I get it right? Is it, This is Lane's... Photograph. Yeah, this is a yeah. It's a continuation of Lane's photography from last week. Um, we put up some pictures of uh, blackbirds last week, but in this uh, picture here, he has a gold finch hanging out in his. Um, Looks like an old gold bath. finch with a growth on his neck, watching the younger gold finches and just wanting them to shut up. Just looks like a cranky goldfinch. That's the way I see it. If you see the other pictures, you'll you'll confirm that. All right. Well, we'll go steal a goldfinch when we go on our <laughs> crime spree. And this is going to be our safe house. Unless I shut. Oh, there. It, oh, wow. That doesn't look. That's Whoa. fake news. What is that? Got, that's fake. That's that comes with the frame. That picture. This is the frame. You buy a frame and this is what you throw out. That's right. This is Birdie's Country Cottage from uh, from our friend Dave in Pennsylvania, their Airbnb property. And uh, yeah, they rent it out. And it's a, a beautiful place. You can go ahead and check them out at tinyurl.com slash Bernie's, excuse me, Bertie's Country Cottage, B-E-R-T-I-E-S Country Cottage. Yeah, wow. It's a great place. I, I, have to, I have to get a map together for the two of us from Glenn Kostick's house to Dave and PA's Airbnb. Yeah. We or we can, in place. we can kidnap Kostick and make him do the navigation. Yeah, and we can make him cook, too. And cook. 
while he's yeah, yeah while he can be our navigator. That is such a. I think Hannah is going back up there, and we're doing a roast of uh, Andy and Sarah. Hannah and I are working on something that is going to be monumental. Yeah, they deserve it. They do. Yeah, Andy is. Uh, it's not going to be nice. Sarah unscathed. Andy, Tom in Portland, <laughs> and I are uh, conspiring. I have a, I have something from Roar Ricky too. After we get through, uh, whoa, there's David and Ralph Nader. There I am with Ralph Nader. I I, I love that picture. I really yep. do. As I always, I said to him, uh, "This you must. <laughs> this must be your proudest moment." Ralph. <laughs> I said, I'll, "If you want, I'll get it signed and send you a framed." picture of you greatest living american or greatest american since ben franklin and that's a fact uh yeah yeah i have something from roar ricky and he says uh hi dan and david a reminder that our first fubu lefty book union reading empire of cotton by sven beckert will have his first discussion group this saturday on the 4th of september at two and it's on their uh, zoom office hours and hours slot and the discussion will be led by uh, the FUBU Inceptor, Bruce Malm. Wow. And, you Bruce know, I have, a, I have a new phone, which means I no longer have to sit in this chair to attend office hours. So I can go in and I love it. I go in and out on my I go for a walk. I can listen to office hours. It's a whole different experience. For like a year and a half, office hours to me meant sitting in this chair. But now I can be mobile, which is great. How do people? Yeah, I think you're. I think I think you're the only one because everyone else was like listening on their phone in bed and yeah. stuff. But yeah. yes, you upgraded from the iPhone four to something in yeah. 2021. Yeah, I held yeah. out. <laughs> but uh, before we wrap it up, Bruce Bruce asked that we read chapters four, five, and nine and come prepared to share your thoughts on the first truly global commodity, which is the the uh, empire of cotton and uh, to go to the discord channel uh, hashtag fubu left book union to find out more And the weekly marks is going to move up to the following week where they're going to take up their autumn and winter hours at 4 30 p.m on sundays and they're going to start talking about um, capital volume two on the 19th of september and one last thing uh, for those that haven't my read, son uh, my son read my son bought me capital I got to be. What'd you do with it? It's a hard, I can't, I really, I'm not smart enough. It's just tough. Uh, My son read Capital 2. He he, he didn't read Capital 2 like, oh, you read Capital 2? I read it. As well? Yeah, he he read Capital. (laughs) These guys have. Well, here's an interesting message that might be directed for you. For those who have yet to read Capital Volume 1 or want to revise, we're starting a remedial reading at Twitter, at Evening Marks, and hashtag Good Evening Marks, and they're going to do a Discord group to fit Queen Sarah Bush and Professor Pamela's time frame. And uh, Rory also says that he was happy to hear David ask the Marxist class critique on Ralph Nader's radio hour show this week. That was a good question I asked. Yeah. You listen, You heard that, Rory That Yes, was I did, David. Oh, he's oh hi, Ricky. Oh, hello, David. Yeah, that that, that was uh, 
in a brief moment, I can seem smart. Thank you, Dan. How do people contact you? Dentfeldman at gmail.com. Send it in. It'll get on. Yeah. And make it mean, like sniping in the Zoom room. I like sniping. Divide and conquer. Thank you, Dan. So long. So long. Dan Frankenberger. Nothing gets done here without him. Well, Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. He is co-host of Guerrilla History, and he's the chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you receiving the stuff that's happening in Afghanistan this week? Is it... Are you well, forgiving we, um, of Biden? Are you forgiving of him? Well, I'm I'm glad that he's uh, withdrawing the troops and stayed on this uh, schedule of August 31st, despite the uh, precipitous collapse of the Afghan uh, government that I think they assumed would be around for longer and allow them to continue to have some sort of presence and um you know if not mili- you know through direct military means um evacuate people have um you know other functionaries involved as well as private security forces and so on all of that um is in doubt because the afghan government has collapsed so quickly um but i'm really glad that uh, you know, the Biden administration didn't accede to some of the requests to extend their stay and destabilize the situation even further. Um, but, um, you know, one, no one can look at what's happening in Afghanistan and think that there are a lot of positive signs uh, for future stability and prosperity of the country. It's been too destroyed not only by 20 years of U.S. and NATO military involvement and occupation and war, but really 40 years overall of U.S. involvement and subsequent civil war, you know, first because of the, um, you know, attempt to uh, create a quagmire of Vietnam for the Soviet Union in Afghanistan uh, by promoting jihadist terror groups to uh, develop a really extreme insurgency. That would be Jimmy Carter. Yeah, under under Jimmy Carter, ramped up even further under Reagan. I remember him calling um, the uh, Afghan Mujahideen, uh, the you know founding fathers, uh, you know, of making them akin to uh, the U.S. Uh, Revolutionary War leaders uh, as patriots, uh, freedom fighters. Uh, I remember them being being called that and giving them Stinger missiles and other equipment. Um, that would be Osama. Bin Laden, correct? Yeah, well, the groups around him, I don't know if he, in fact, actually ended up being one of the earliest leaders, but he was definitely a major contact between the Saudi elite and, you know, jihadist Mujahideen forces on the ground in Afghanistan and arranging financing and recruiting people. Um, I don't think he was ever a major military commander on his own, um, you know, in in that context. But um, so, you know, no one can look at the situation and the recent uh, attacks from the uh, Islamic State Khorasani province uh, and um, expect that 
there's going to be, uh, you know, stability in the near term. But I'm really glad that uh, the U.S. is uh, withdrawing troops. I think we have to start talking, however, you know, for all the people who are wringing their hands about how terrible the situation is now for the Afghan people. Number one, of course, the Taliban are, you know, Afghan people as well. So this is, they're not going anywhere. That's the problem. And the way we, if we talk about them as if they're some foreign uh, group that doesn't belong in uh, the country, we're mistaking, you know, the longevity and determination of that movement because it's their country and they're not planning on leaving anywhere. So that's number one. But number two, um, is if we really want to help Afghanistan, uh, why don't we acknowledge our mistakes, our failures, our defeat, and actually acknowledge the history of 40 years of U.S. meddling involvement that has ripped the country apart and pay reparations and understand it as reparations to repair the harm that we've done. Um, that seems to be missing from the self-criticism, you know, that we're seeing in the media that uh, really tends towards trying to promote more U.S. involvement, you know, that the withdrawal of troops is some kind of betrayal of the Afghan people. Well, that betrayal happened a very long time ago. And if we really were so sincere in, in our concerns about their welfare, uh, we'd work with regional partners to you know, pay reparations, give the uh, Afghan people a chance um, to rebuild their country on their own terms and develop their own political structures and resist, you know, the, what they regard as oppressive uh, social control or religious law, you know, imposition of religious law um, on their own, you know, without um, recourse to U.S. or, you know, other Western countries involvement. Um, so I had a very good conversation on uh, the Mudulus podcast, uh, which I I host with Dr. Ariel Salzman, who has written um, pieces and been following the situation in Afghanistan for a long time. I remember in 2014 when Canada was withdrawing its troops from active military engagement and even from the training, um, you know, of Afghan police and, and military that they had been involved in between 2011 and 2014. Um, Around that time, um, she gave a really great lecture on the failure of what was then 14 years, you know, of U.S., 14 or 15 years of U.S. involvement. It was clear already. In fact, that was a late you know, recognition in some sense. Like it was clear that this was a failed exercise of U.S. Uh, empire, was a failed mission, uh, that the U.S. had been defeated. It could not control or achieve its political aims genuinely, certainly not its military aims, much less its political aims. Um, you know, by following the policy of invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, I mean, by 2014. But we had to wait six, seven more years from the point at which it was obvious, even to some of our NATO partners who were withdrawing active military involvement around that time. So we have to ask question, what's happened this last six, seven years? Why is it that we've persisted and 
um, we haven't questioned our, our policy and all the media that is now um, covering this minute by minute. They're discovering uh, it for the first yeah, time. It was absent for the last you know, right. decade. Um, never paid any attention to what was really happening there. Yeah. And the question is, will we, you brought it up early, will we learn or at least not repeat the same mistakes or come up with new excuses? I, I want to play you a clip from this guy, Cortez. He was Trump's foreign policy advisor. Then, you know, he was on CNN and... He's now on either Newsmax or OWN. It's shameless in its lack of originality. It's like something, I'm going to play this clip. It's like something you would see in a bad movie, but it's what, unfortunately, too many Americans believe. Is the mass migration of Afghan men to America really a good idea? Good for your wife, your daughter? The left will call us racist for opposing any amount of migration at all, since they believe in open borders. But we have to be brave enough to put up with their ridiculous aspersions and brave enough to discuss cultural differences that matter. Will these Afghans share our values? Will they try to assimilate into the American way of life? It's not likely. Uh, I, I can't believe how retrograde that is, how reactionary, literally react by the true definition. He's just going back a hundred years in American history. It, it's so unoriginal. It, it's a perennial. Isn't that astounding that somebody would say that openly? I guess you have well, to salute the maybe, honesty. Maybe not so astounding because you wonder what else can they say at this point? Like, what do they have available to them to explain their position or to avoid the responsibility that they should be taking for the unfolding tragedy? Not at this one moment of the withdrawal, but for 20, 40 years of devastation in this country. So what really can they say other than deflecting from that real conversation and trying to learn these lessons to again, um, uh, you know, uh, unfurl the banner of, uh, you know, grievance politics, how we are this embattled, you know, community and we are now under threat from Afghan refugees, you know, so the, the way to make this, you know, situation where the country is poised, uh, you know, on the brink of potential civil war again has suffered how many, you know, tens of thousands of direct casualties of U.S. drone bombing in the last 20 years, um, you know, nice opportunity to try and turn it into a sense of grievance about us, that we're under threat. And how can we, you know, tolerate the political correctness of the left for acknowledging that perhaps you have a responsibility at the very least, the most minimal responsibility is allow the people who you employed to do your military work in the country while occupying and killing people um, of actually evacuating them rather than exposing them to, you know, reprisals and liquidation, you know, if that's what the Taliban end up doing. I mean, it's not clear whether they really will, but there's genuine fears of that. 
it's a wonderful opportunity to turn, you know, what would have been the smallest amount of taking responsibility and acknowledging U.S. involvement and turning us, you know, us into the victim here, the aggrieved party, yet again, in some kind of culture war. Um, there are so cu- he, says there are cult- he said, literally, there are cultural differences between Americans and Afghan men. Yeah. That yeah. that is well, and he, he he raised the specter that, you know, of, uh, you know, this is exactly the kind of stuff that was used in the era of reconstruction to uh, for the rise of the KKK, which was, you know, we've got all of these, you know, black folk who've been freed and emancipated and they're ascending into public life. This is a danger because we don't have the means and mechanism of quarantining them, of segregating them, of brutalizing them and so watch out you know for your sister your wife your daughter um black masculinity is a present and dangerous you know threat and this is of course the psychology that motivated you know jim crow the rise of the kkk mass incarceration i mean it's all of these associations and the very same tropes and metaphors and fears and paranoia that has motivated white supremacist politics in the united states for you know a couple of centuries is you know easily available it seems to you know turn it towards yet another dark you know uh threat and in fact this was the way in which they have played upon the uh liberal military humanitarianism imperial humanitarianism of uh justifying uh afghanistan and the fight against the taliban initially on the basis of securing women's rights and playing up uh, women's oppression under the ruthless and oppressive regime of the Taliban, they have seized upon that same dimension um, and are using it uh, not to justify more intervention, but to justify kind of fortress America, putting up the walls and making sure that, um, you know, that uh, refugees and immigrants, you know, don't come and that you demonize them and make them the source of the problem rather than one of the consequences of our own actions in the region that we really should acknowledge and face up to. They, they, the flagrant abandon in the media, not just from Newsmax, which is, you know, not a major play. Bill Maher, you know, I think I really do kind of love Bill. I worked for him and I thought he Ran. It was, it was fun to work for him. Pissed off at him. He's turned to the right. Uh, he's. I. I have ignored. I haven't watched the show. I haven't watched Fox News. I. I would. I did it for a living for years, and I thought one great thing about not writing for late night is not having to watch Fox News, <laughs> and you do that at your own peril because they got crazier. The problem is Bill got crazier. I watch, I, you know, I don't watch the show. Uh, and somebody sent me a clip of his talking about how great America is, like a pep talk. We, you know, we had a bad week. This was Friday. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to say some good things about America. And he literally said, this is the greatest country on earth when you... When you see all those people from Afghanistan clinging to helicopters and airplanes, 
to come to America. That should be, I'm laughing because yeah. it is like right. it is like something I would do on Sam Cedar's show. Like I would call in to be yeah, there. Yeah. And I go, look at all those uh, Af mm -hmm. Afghanis who are desperately clinging to helicopters to get out of Afghanistan and come to America. That That's because they, they want freedom and opportunity. What did he leave out? Who were those people who were clinging to yeah. the, the, the helicopter? How could he not know that? How could he not know who those people were? I think, you know, this is just, um the blindness of American political culture. I think he's. Uh, I, I think, think you he's had a liar. Him well last I think week Bill Maher is a liar. I think Bill Maher is a liar. I think he knows that the people who cling to the helicopters and the planes and and freeze to death in the landing gear. He knows that those are people who trusted our trusted America. They're the interpreters. Right. They're the families of the interpreters. The people who collaborated with America mm -hmm. and know mm -hmm. they are doomed. He knows that he's too smart. And yet he delivers this jingoistic. Isn't America yeah. great? Look how they cling. Look at these Afghan. And then he said that woman handing her baby to our soldiers. He knows that that baby was handed back and needed medical care. She wasn't giving her baby away. They know this. They're, he's a liar. He's too smart. He's just lying for fun and profit. At some point, you know, these I people mean, very, have to be held. Very possibly. I mean, I, I have no reason to want to defend him. I have, you know, I enjoyed him when he was uh, doing Politically Incorrect on ABC for half an hour. It was fresh. You enjoyed him for a half an hour. Of the, the yeah, for time. about a half an hour. And then he you know, started repeating the typical liberal bromides. And what it shows is also that some of the typical liberal bromides about we're patriotic, too, and all of this very easily and casually uh, almost seamlessly can move into these right wing kinds of positions and, uh, and attitudes if we're not careful. And that's why I think we have to, you know, there it's, it's appropriate in certain tactical situations to try and emphasize what, you know, may be common ground with people, uh, but you don't shift on your actual principles. And I think, um, you know, a lot of these folks in the media, and we've seen it even, you know, um, on the left media, uh, alternative left media, YouTube and so on, is that a lot of people in our current sort of uh, celebrity politics where where it's not that there is an exclusive group of celebrities that we worship it's where everybody imagines that they are a celebrity of their own you know particular uh, movie life movie or something that they are the protagonist of um, you know that people are willing to say and do a lot of things um, that if they honestly confronted and faced them and faced the facts um would be exposed as totally bankrupt, I think, because, um, you know, there's money in it, there's fame, um, and the two seem to go together at this point. Um, I am a big believer in education, as you know. I, I believe there are the problems with higher education are legion. However, the problem with autodidacts, even worse, that we need reliable, honest teachers steering our adults and, and, and fact teaching adults how to fact check statements. 
I mean, I'm just astounded. I, you know, I, I, I think I can't believe what I see where people just say with absolute certitude, you cannot vaccinate 100 percent of the American people. It's stupid. It's dumb and it's dangerous. And then they don't back it. like footnotes, please. Sources. No, nope. I'm just going to say this and I'm going to say it loud enough so it sounds like the truth. Uh, this has to, it's not censorship, but these people, I think we have to hold these people accountable. And, you know, sources, please. Uh, yeah, I think um, we're definitely suffering. And this is why I think history and contextual analysis is so important, because the way you frame a particular question or proposition is really all important because you delimit, you know, what the sphere of inquiry really is. And, you know, if we accept the frameworks that we're given, um, it's very hard to argue the case where but if you are able to look at things in context with a broader uh, set of uh you know evidence that's available you can ask different kinds of questions and you can question the framework of the um conventional logic and i think that's what history and having some depth of analysis allows you to do that the present way of thinking about a particular issue or problem the way it's posed on fox media or msnbc and so on uh, is so often contorted uh, by present polemical concerns. Um, and you see also that the polemical and factional character of our political discourse and dialogue pushes people to say inane and foolish things that they wouldn't in a different context, but merely because they're opposing the position uh, from the other side. And so we're treating it like it's some kind of sports, um, you know, we have to cheer for our own side. Um, and so I think this is a real uh, problem that history is a good antidote to. So having a longer sense of history and how things have developed, you should rely on that um, so that we're not just accepting um, the way things are presented to us you know, at the moment. But I agree with you that I think um, our political discourse and certainly when it comes to like a situation like Afghanistan, it's true that many Americans don't know so much about the history of Afghanistan, which shame right. on us. I mean, we've been involved for 20 years. We should know more about the history of the country and our involvement in it. Uh, but what's astonishing is the way in which um, even if you don't think about the, you know, Afghanistan in the 1970s or know anything about uh, the region, at least since 9-11, it seems that people have forgotten, you know, the situation in, you know, the, two, the 2000s, you know, nobody remembers it seems, you know, what we were discussing and talking about, you know, at that time. And I think one of the things that I talked with Dr. Salzman uh, about, and she made a wonderful point, was that the, when we talk about the costs of war uh, and also the crimes of war, which we also need to add because we need to insist upon uh, accountability and justice for the many war crimes that uh, have been uh, 
perpetuated there. But when we talk about the, the costs and crimes of war, we also have to look at the opportunity costs. I mean, what have we been embroiled with for the last 20 years when in the 2000s and 2010s, there were so many genuine world problems right. that we have ignored. We've wasted two decades and we're in such a worse position in the world as a result of the global war on terrorism. Two trillion in Afghanistan, six trillion and more in all of the wars sponsored through the global war on terror- terrorism, widening global inequality and no genuine action on the real fundamental existential threat to humanity, climate change. So we've had two decades where we've been distracted so that war profiteering and fossil fuel companies can exploit, you know, two decades where our attention was turned there and where we've ignored the present, you know, threats. We, we, when did we get the peace dividend after the Cold War? We never got it. And after 9-11, there was a genuine opportunity to try and bring the world together to address and confront what really needs needed to be on the world agenda. And we've lost it. So that's what makes me most sad when we look at 20 years and the end of U.S. Uh, military involvement in Afghanistan. It is not, um, you know, just the failures in Afghanistan, which were legion and it was horrible and caused so much devastation. But it's the fact that we wasted so much time and opportunity to do what the world really needs and they will revise history as they always do they'll say we we would have won in afghanistan we were forced to fight it with our hands tied behind our back because of people at home who were against the war we'll hear that that the the home front lost afghanistan hannah sent me a article in the New York Times, an opinion piece written by this guy, Kagan, who insists, no, no, no. And this is, you know, one of those well-respected, you know, I think he writes for foreign affairs. Uh, right. No, we, they kept us safe. This war kept us safe. There was no terrorist attacks on our homes, you know, homes, really. No terrorist <laughs> attacks on our home soil from uh to 9-11 to the present. Really interesting that you yeah. say that yeah. it, it, just as long as uh, they're they're white. It's OK if it's if it's a white man uh, acting as a terrorist. Uh, we, we, we will rewrite history because, as you say, you know, it's in the best interests of the the uh, financiers the warmongers to to give us perpetual war. It's hard to believe, but there are weapons manufacturers and, and arms dealers like, you know, the Khashoggi's. Remember that name? Mm-hmm. When they see a, a bomb going off, they go $50,000. That's not a joke. No, they really say that bomb. That's $50,000. Somebody sent me a, a, a readout of an earnings call that one of the defense contractors made explaining to investors. It was a one of those answer, not one of the big defense contractors it was not like Raytheon. Just a, there are a lot of minor players and there was an earnings call. It's a publicly held company. And the CEO is trying to assure 
analysts that the stock is still a buy, even though Afghanistan is winding down. And well, maybe they know something. Yeah, you know, it's not as if this is going to just end. They'll find new theaters and new directions for, you know, military, inv- you know, spending, military spending. You know, maybe it'll be China. Maybe it'll be, you know, uh, somewhere else in the world. I mean, that's the problem is that's the real permanent sort of state, the permanent state or permanent set of interests that guide state policy. Um, you know, are, are those industries, the U.S., what does it produce anymore? It's got a monopoly on uh, um, you know, war making and armaments, that's one area where we have a technological edge that we're very keen to maintain. Um, and, um, you know, it's a sort of state socialist, you know, I mean, it's like it's all, you know, uh, government spending um, and it's very predictable and you can create um, a little bit of a bubble, a monopoly bubble. And so that's perfect for these war profiteers. That's really what in some ways our economy seems. Um, well, here's what Lindsey Graham, I played on. this on the show Thursday. I, let me see if I this is Lindsey Graham criticizing Biden. This makes it harder to fight future wars. <laughs> good. I, that we should be glad about that. That's the one you know, good thing that may come out of it is that it's harder to fight future wars because we don't want any more of these of these wars. So, you know, I'm happy that we're getting out. Let's applaud that, but let's try and learn some lessons. Yeah. And if you do care about the Afghan people, for all these liberal hand ringers, let's talk about reparations for the Afghan people. Yeah, yeah. Mental illness, the older I get, the more intertwined mental illness is with government policy. I, I never thought, I, I thought people put country first. Their mental illness comes first. George W. Bush's, you know, he tried to kill my daddy, all that stuff. And Lindsey Graham, and I'm not trying to be cruel here, he believes in a permanent state of war. He told, and I've talked about this on the show, but it's important. Bob Woodward in Fear tells the story of Trump asking, when is Afghanistan over? Mike Pence calls up Lindsey Graham because he's got Donald Trump's ear. He says to Lindsey Graham, talk to talk to the president, tell him the end game for Afghanistan. And Lindsey, Senator Lindsey Graham explained forever war to Trump. He said, this is according to Bob Woodward, it's never over. It's good versus evil. And that war never ends. You are we're constantly fighting evil in this world. Lindsey Graham believes in forever war and his mental illness informs his belief in a forever war because Lindsey Graham is in the closet. Most people in Washington, D.C. know that Lindsey mm-hmm. Graham is gay and in the closet because he can't get elected in South Carolina and he's not happy about being gay. And so he's at war with himself. Therefore, the rest of us have to be at war. Lindsey Graham has spent his entire post-pubescence at war with his body, 
And so he believes the rest of us have to be in a permanent state of war. Come out of the closet, Lindsey Graham. Uh, this makes it harder to fight future wars. You know, uh, some of us, Lindsey, are not at war with ourselves. And we don't foist that onto others. But a sick man. What a sick man. He, he may be a sick man. Um, I think the Kagans who, uh, you know, have such respectability are the really perverse uh, people with their advocacy for, you know, the neocon advocacy for perpetual war. Um, it reminds me of Max Boot, someone who we've talked about as a serious, somebody with a serious pathology and a great deal of influence and now is uh, lauded on MSNBC and in certain, you know, uh, neoliberal uh, democratic circles simply because he criticized Trump. Um, but why did he criticize Trump? Because Trump was not as committed. Uh, he didn't buy Lindsey Graham's, you know, argument that we need to have perpetual war. If Lindsey Graham had wanted to convince Trump, he should have told him perpetual war means perpetual war profits. You got to get out of the branding of real estate and get into branding Trump you know, mercenaries or something like Trump that. bombs. They're huge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this guy, Max Boot, I remember very soon after. Uh, the start of the war in Afghanistan, um, he was quite upset that we were not committing enough actual ground forces in an aggressive way and were relying far too much on pinpoint uh, strikes and, you know, uh, aerial bombardment and so-called smart bombs and all of that because he felt like uh, we needed to get over our reluctance to take on military casualties. And so here you have somebody on national television basically saying, we need more of our boys to go die, get maimed and killed so we can definitely prove that we are tough and have overcome the Vietnam syndrome and are worthy inheritors of the British, you know, uh, to run an empire in, in, in the world. So here's somebody who was bemoaning the fact that casualties, U.S. casualties were too low in the first few weeks of the Afghanistan war. I mean, these people are truly sick and evil. And Max Boot, I doubt he ever saw action. Oh, definitely not. He went to UC Berkeley at the same time I was an undergraduate student there. And uh, he was a right wing columnist for the Daily Californian. And that's where he cut his teeth, you know, fighting the libs, you know, in Berkeley, being the conservative voice uh, and parlayed that into, you know, Wall Street Journal editorial editorship and writing books about U.S.'s small wars to justify U.S. military involvement. That's what he did with his history degree. So when I endorse history, you got to be careful with what kind of history and what kind of lessons and conclusions you're going to draw from your study of it. It is about their penises. It really is. The older you get, you just realize. And some of the people I know, some of the men I know, it's about. It's a cliche. It is about their penises. Hate to be a reductionist, but it's true. I don't have a fancy. I'm just a D's, Dem, and Doe's guy, Professor Hussein. 
I can't. Well, you know, there's a lot of truth to be had there, so I, I don't begrudge you. You know what? If uh, Dr. Hershenfeld, the Freudian psychoanalyst, would he would he would agree with me? He would. So, he would. He would. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That is Professor Adnan Hussein. Joining us is Peter B. Collins. He is a recent inductee into the Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame. Go to Peter B. Collins, where he has cultivated, cultivated, curated, and cultivated interviews and conversations that he's had over the past, I don't know how many years, on his syndicated radio talk show and podcast. Welcome back. Always great to see you. David, it's great to be with you. Yes. Isis K. Yeah. Is that the name? Yeah, it came from Battle Creek. Uh, Yes. It's it's the cereal, you know, where you don't pinch an inch. I think that's the one. (laughs) But you do pinch a loaf, as I... uh, Or or is is it kryptonite? The K for kryptonite? I don't, I, it's something that's, as I understand it, because we're going to talk about it, they are a franchisee of ISIS in like Iraq and Syria. They, they got, it's like McDonald's. They, they were authorized by ISIS in Iraq or wherever. And, uh, <laughs> They've, they've set up shop and they're fighting the Taliban. And so the Taliban and America have found love in fighting ISIS-K. Some kind of well, triangulation? That's, that's got some elements of truth based on the way it is presented in the corporate media. Right. Um, first of all, we have to understand. Well, excuse me. For, let's set the plate. Yes. Why are we talking about ISIS K? Well, because it is blamed for the attack uh, on the Baghdad airport last week, and other. It, it's the boogeyman uh, that has forced the United States to uh, make tonight the night of the last military evacuation plane leaving Kabul. And uh, they turned away thousands of people who wanted to be on these flights uh, because of the alleged threat. And I'm looking at the homepage of The New York Times right now. And let me just read two uh, two pickups here. The last U.S. military plane left Kabul Monday night, ending a war that spanned two decades and four presidents, but failed to defeat the Taliban. And on the other side of the homepage, the signature um, really effect of the U.S. 20-year occupation. Afghan family says errant U.S. missile killed 10, including seven children. So our legacy from the Afghan point of view is occupiers who killed thousands of innocent civilians who ravaged the country for 20 years with commando forces and high-tech terrorism, who spread billions of dollars around that corrupted um, the establishment, such as it is in Kabul, that has never been able to rule or establish control over the entire country. And this legacy 
is one that is uh, so sanitized when it is consumed by Americans in our myth-making media. Because we're the good guys. We went there to get bin Laden. We stayed there to help the women take off their burqas and send their daughters to school. We have these heroic 20-year-olds who were born the year of our invasion, who lost their lives in this attack by ISIS-K at the airport last week. And let me add that it took the shame of foreign media coverage and some plucky American websites, uh, media platforms like ConsortiumNews.com to shame the New York Times into admitting that uh, the attack at the airport, probably the suicide bomber killed about 20 Afghans and the 13 Americans. But the total body count of Afghans is 170. And in paragraph 32 of Sunday's front page 43 paragraph story, they bury it. For the first time, Pentagon officials publicly acknowledged the possibility that some people killed outside the airport on Thursday might have been shot by American service members after the suicide bombing. Listen to those weasel words. Yeah, what does that mean? What, what is that? Say that again. They, they publicly acknowledged the possibility that some people killed outside the uh, outside of the airport might have been shot. Well, the real time videos from camera phones on the scene pretty well establish that the only shots that were fired were from American weapons. And so was it panic by the 20 year olds? And, and I'm not picking on the soldiers. They had uh, an impossible mission. They were trapped in this uh, death alley. Their buddies uh, had just been killed. Well, and, and these Afghans were lined up in a sewage uh, uh, open trench. Uh, trying to gain access desperately to the airport. It is it is a scene of misery on all sides. Well, are you suggesting but, are we suggesting that after the suicide bombing? There was indiscriminate firing at. Afghanis. Yes. Out of. Frustration. American, no, I'm, I'm not. I don't know. What caused them to pull their triggers? Maybe they thought there were other suicide bombers in that crowd and they were trying to pick them out and prevent what's called a double tap. Double tap is when you have one attack and as people respond to help those who are killed or wounded, you launch a second one. This is a feature of the American attacks in Afghanistan. And and so uh I will get to ISIS-K and some of the research that I've done, David, but I really feel it's important to frame this around blowback. And that term uh, was developed by a great professor, first UC Berkeley, and then he retired from UC San Diego, Chalmers Johnson. And he died in the late aughts. I interviewed him, I believe, around 2004. And, and the term is, is simple enough to understand. It's revenge. It's payback. But blowback in particular for operations that Americans regard as covert because our government didn't tell us about them, didn't acknowledge the treachery and the uh, 
you know, sheer brutality right. of the the tactics and methods that we used. 9-11. I first heard the term blowback to explain 9-11. Mm-hmm. So to just thumbnail it, let's go back to Jimmy Carter, the best ex-president in my lifetime, who fostered some terrible foreign policy, allowing the Shah and uh, uh, uh the guy from uh, Marcos, uh, these two dictators to come to the United States. But the thing that has really just been uh, revealed in detail recently is that his Kissinger, Spignef Brzezinski, Mika's daddy, he had he hatched the secret plan to try to suck the Soviets into Afghanistan by funding covert operations, the Mujahideen, that ultimately brought Osama bin Laden to Afghanistan in the 1980s. So the it, it had two features to uh, suck Russia, the Soviet Union, into the graveyard of empires. Give them a and, Vietnam. Give them their Vietnam. Correct. And to uh, really foment militant division between Sunni and Shia Islam, possibly to help protect the state of Israel. Because when the Islamists are fighting, they don't have the same uh, fervor to take on Israel. And so if you look at the long arc from there, and that, that before 1979, the U.S. contribution to corruption in Afghanistan was that we were a major customer of their heroin exports. And it, it wasn't until the 80s that we militarized uh, our presence. And again, we pretend that Charlie Wilson's war, that our covert ops in Afghanistan are secret from everybody. But if you were on the receiving end of a night raid, Right. If your loved one was locked up right. at the salt pit at Bagram or at Guantanamo, which is right. still open to this day, and there is no and not even a shred of legal uh, uh, f- uh, foundation justification right. to keep Guantanamo open. It was supposed to be linked to the Afghan war. It is officially over right now. And there is no intention to close Guantanamo and to deal with the remaining uncharged, untried, forever prisoners. This produces blowback. The people who populated what became the uh, Islamic State, which originally was AQAP, Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula, it came out of the people who we locked up at Abu Ghraib. The Sunni minorities who had been in power under Saddam Hussein, And we created an unsustainable Shiite government that is largely allied with Iran today in Baghdad because we were going to punish the Sunnis and the Saddamists who had run Iraq. And it was a brutal uh, dictatorship, but women went to university. The population was relatively prosperous. Uh, and, and so if you look at this long, long arc, as I say, of the U.S. plan to get the major factions of Islam to fight each other, 
this is now the price that we pay. And so I want to cut to one chase that the attack on the airport last Thursday that is attributed to ISIS-K very well could have been uh, coordinated or tacitly approved by the Taliban in the same way that Putin says, well, I don't control those ransomware hackers that come out of Russia. Mm-hmm. I just tolerate them because, you know, it's it's good for my long term interests. But we're being told that the Taliban and ISIS-K are mortal enemies. <laughs> well, if you recall some of the comments I've made in previous weeks about how the tribal uh, warriors in Afghanistan one of their unique uh, characteristics is that they can change on a dime or a dollar uh, their allegiances and their alliances. And so I I did a deep dive here uh, and the Corazon group that the K stands for first surfaced out of almost nowhere during the Obama administration in 2014, I pulled up an article from the New York Times. And by the way, I, I want to be clear that I'm working from uh, mainstream corporate media uh, reporting, which is not necessarily reliable and often reflects uh, stenography that is dictated by the uh, intelligence and, and Pentagon axis. But In an explainer article from just last week, the Times says, what is ISIS-K? Or as I put it to you in our email exchange, WTF, (laughs) ISIS-K. The name Khorasan translates to the land of the sun. Khorasan refers to an historical region that includes parts of Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. But... This is not a self-described group. That is the American label for a group that is conjured to reflect a kind of mob board meeting. Kind of like what we did with Al-Qaeda. We gave Al-Qaeda the base. We gave them that name. Yes. Or is that another myth? No, no, you're correct. And uh, the other issue is that uh, ISIS... Um, that name is an American acronym. Uh, they call themselves Dash, D A E S, and that's an Arabic term that I'm not competent to translate for you. Uh, it means Larry. It's you, basically Larry. <laughs> okay, uh, but these are brands that we have to take as part of propaganda efforts. Now. Does that mean that there is nothing that uh, exists that the that is described as the Khorasan group? I, I don't go that far. OK, but in order to package and sell this product to the American people through a willing uh, visual driven media, uh, we see them create these these things from time to time. So in 2014, uh, as the. Uh, the group that had been Al-Qaeda from the Arabian Peninsula that endured American torture in the prisons in Iraq as they uh, escaped or uh, in some cases were released. 
and they formed this group to create a caliphate. The term Islamic State came from Mike Flynn and his our buddy Mike Flynn, General Michael Flynn. Yes, (laughs) because one of his intelligence analysts wrote a report in 2012 predicting the rise of an Islamic state in the region of uh, of uh, I got to get my map right. Western Iraq and Eastern Syria. That's Anbar province in Iraq and the area in the western that, portion that would be where isis developed right yes right and it's where it, it established its so-called caliphate so if we roll the timeline back to 2014 you may recall that um, isis was building steam in both uh iraq and in syria and there was the attack on the Yazidis. Remember that? That's this very small religious right. uh, sect. And, and what is their... Are they... What is their... Are they Muslim? Or are they... <laughs> uh, Christian? They, they, do not, they do not align with Sunni or Shia. They are not Christian. Uh, they're kind of, uh, you, you know... I, I, I'm not expert enough to say, okay. uh, but they they were persecuted by what we called the Islamic State, and at that point, uh, the Khorasan group surfaced. And quoting now from Mark Mazzetti, New York Times, September twenty fourth, twenty fourteen. Unlike other jihadist groups that have come to prominence in recent years. The cell established by uh, Musin al-Fadli, who had been sent from Pakistan by al-Qaeda's leader, the survivor of Osama, and that's the Egyptian doctor, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Well, Osama bin Laden's business partner. Right. Uh Uh-huh. He's an ophthalmologist? Uh, I don't remember. I think he's an eye doctor. No, that's Rand Paul. And Assad in Syria. So don't trust (laughs) ophthalmologists. uh, Their vision is weak. (laughs) I I don't trust their vision. All right, but here's here's the key line. The cell that Fodley came to lead, known within intelligence and law enforcement agencies as the Corazon Group, avoided the spotlight. It put out no slick internet magazines, didn't boast of its plans on Twitter. The group's evolution from obscurity to infamy has been sudden. The first time President Obama publicly mentioned the group was on Tuesday when he announced he had ordered an airstrike against it to disrupt what Americans said was a terror plot aimed at our soil. I don't say homeland. And so so we do have to understand the complexity of these groups, their shifting alliances, but also the way this is framed for American consumption with these different brand names, because it's dizzying when you think of the Khorasan group as this board of directors for Islamic terrorists aligned against the West, but they fight each other. Uh, ISIS morphed into the Nusra group, which appeared to be more aligned with Al Qaeda than with uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi the leader of the Islamic State or Daesh, 
who we reported to have killed at least six times. Uh, and maybe maybe he is dead now. Uh, we really can't be sure. Mm -hmm. So um, when we then look at uh, the launch of, as you aptly put it, a franchise of ISIS in Afghanistan, uh, the earliest that, that I can find is 2017. And that is a report when we killed its leader uh, and the, the first uh, usage of the uh, acronym ISIS-K. His name was Abdul Rahman. And we killed him twice. Um, oh, wait a minute. Three times. We killed him <laughs> wow. April 8th. We, we killed him in July of 17, uh, April of 18. And then we killed him dead again. Um in uh, 2018. Uh, and that's when we reported that we killed Baghdadi again. All right. So now when you read this, because this stuff is mind boggling, when the New York Times or the Washington Post report this, do they say we thought they had killed him and now we're pretty sure we killed him? Or do they just write he's been killed? Uh, well, they don't use again, <laughs> but they, they say, you know, that the, the reports and, and there are quotes from uh, Mad Dog Mattis that, uh, you know, uh, he did not believe uh, one of the reports about the death of uh, al-Baghdadi. Uh, so, you know, these are, are claims that surface that get picked up by our media. And this is where the standards have eroded that if it comes from the Pentagon, it is treated as fact and they don't go back and correct it. You, you chided me in a fun way uh, a month or two back when I made a correction about uh, how I got the date wrong of Fred Hampton's death. Right. And it undermines your confidence in me because we're just supposed to be like Rachel Maddow and plow ahead. Right. And we're not. And the New York Times has a corrections page, which means they make mistakes. Rachel Maddow doesn't make mistakes. I've never heard her take a a moment to correct yourself unless they're being sued. Yeah. Yeah. Now, David, I want to come to um, recent history of ISIS and the Taliban in Afghanistan. Again, uh, this hang is on, let me just let me hang on. ISIS and the Taliban. Is this ISIS K? Yes. ISIS K. Mm -hmm. Not related to Harvey JK. No, <laughs> no relation. No. Okay. So, um, in August of 2017, and, and this, by the way, is not coming from the Times. This is coming from a detailed timeline published at the Wilson Center, which is a pro-war think tank. I believe it, it originated at Princeton. I don't know if it's still on the campus there. Right. Uh, and so. And it's still uh, called August, the Wilson. Is it still called the Wilson Center? It is. Yeah. Hmm. So they have a, they have a detailed timeline about. Uh, ISIS slash dash that uh, goes back to about 2012 and it ends at the end of 2018 when Trump declared that uh, they were all gone, uh, nothing to worry about. But in August of 17, the Islamic State, ISIS-K and the Taliban conducted a joint attack in a northern region of uh, right. Afghanistan. In September of 17th, both 
the Islamic State and the Taliban claim joint credit for an attack at the Karzai airport that has been on our television screen so much for the last two weeks to welcome Defense Secretary James Mattis to Kabul. So um, in July and August of 18, there was a reported this this uh, again comes from the uh, Wilson Center's timeline, a serious clash that lasted uh, about three weeks between Taliban and Islamic State fighters without the K tag. All right. So I can't I can't tell you if this is considered to be the same group. And they reported that the Islamic State forces were badly defeated. So then it was December of 18 that Trump says that uh, ISIS has been vanquished. And that follows the October 2018 uh, proclamation that he had presided over the death, uh, the actual final death of al-Baghdadi. So um, the timeline kind of ends there. Great. That's a uh, that's amazing. Great work. And, and, and then we we come back to the, the recent past. OK, uh, I joined many, many in criticizing Trump and Mike Pompeo. And let's get his name on this because he's got uh, political ambitions for the future. Uh, Pompeo is the one who negotiated the deal uh, in Qatar without any uh, involvement of the Afghan government that we said we supported. The deal was that we're going to force the Afghans to release 5,000 Taliban, including Baradar, who is now claiming to be the leader in Kabul, Uh, that uh, we had this ceasefire agreement where the Taliban would agree it could continue to attack the forces that we stood up, that we spent uh, hundreds of billions training. Uh, and that they would, uh, you know, that we would tolerate attacks on our allies as long as they didn't kill Americans. Right. Now, we've heard Biden embracing that part of the deal. No, Say, no, no, no. Excuse me. For, by the way, God bless you for this. But he did. I, I saw Biden spell that out. He said, why are you leaving now? He said specifically because of the deal that Pompeo made not to attack our troops if we leave by May 1st. He did say that. I think he said that to the Ducey. You, you are you are correct, but there's obfuscation there because he told um, President Ghani in their meeting in July. Uh, uh, actually, they met in June. I'm sorry, in Washington. Uh, that, uh, you know, you're pretty much on your own. But he's now saying that, you know, the part of the Trump deal that we won't kill Americans uh, was was something that he essentially embraced or endorsed. And and so to be shocked that the Kabul government fell uh, when we decided just pr- to protect ourselves. Mm hmm. And, and the other critical piece here is that Biden has claimed that it was the generals who told him to give up the Bagram Air Base. And there's an excellent piece by Scott Ritter. If you remember him, the yes. U.N. weapons inspector. Who they, who try said, to de- they try to destroy him by calling him a child predator. 
Exactly. Scott Ritter. He said there were no weapons of mass destruction. That is correct. In Iraq. And then they set him up uh, and accused him of being a sexual predator. I'm glad you know that because most people think that those charges were true and that Ritter uh, has been discredited. But he is a Marine who soldiers on. I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, he's he's never appearing even on Fox. Uh, no corporate media outlet will uh, hear his point of view or publish it. And it, this pains a lot of people. But he writes for RT, the Russian state media outlet that's available in the United States. And I've talked to Scott about it. He has never been censored or told what to write. And I believe him because uh, I've met him personally, interviewed him many times over the years, and I find him highly credible. But he particularly, uh, he backs this, uh, uh, I don't have the man's name in front of me, but last week, a uh, lower ranking guy uh, shot a Facebook video and and ended his career um, by calling out the generals who said, he, he said, failed to throw their rank on the table and demand that Bagram remain open until the final days of the U.S. occupation. Now, not only did we put, you know, uh, tens of billions of dollars into that place, but it was much better fortified and outside Kabul um, and, you know, arguably would have been a much better staging ground for the exit. So uh, I encourage people just well, I Google have a clip Scott of Ritter. Just... just uh to show off for you, I have a mm-hmm. clip of this Marine. I don't want to give out his name, but this is the the he's, I think he's like a lieutenant colonel. Yeah. And he has resigned. He's, he, he was uh, forced to resign. And it's interesting. I watched his manifesto that he put out. They mm-hmm. they went. They said he is being taken care of. The, the military says he is uh, resigned and being given help. I won't give his name because he deserves privacy, but this is what I isolated from his speech, which you won't hear. Uh, it's too ugly, but we deserve the truth. Is the mass migration oh, of on. Afghan men to America really? Sorry, a- wrong clip. Uh, let me. Uh, you better fire the operator. Yeah, I know. For the however much extra the disability would be, I think that money should go back to all the senior general officers because I think they need it more than I do. Because when I am done with what I'm about to do, you all are going to need the jobs and the security. The conventional Marine on the ground who has to smell burning shit, who, when I was in Ramadi, I was exposed to it so much that burning shit actually smelled like bacon and eggs and I grew to enjoy the smell. You have no idea what I'm capable of doing. Follow me and we will bring the whole fucking system down. I am honorable and you can ask any Marine who served with me for 17 years. I dare you to ask them all and find out what I'm made of. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. I believe the term is blowback. You bring these, you you send these 16 years in the Marines and uh, war has consequences on the home front as well, doesn't it? 
Well, uh, let's recall that uh, a guy named John Kerry came back from Vietnam and threw his uh, stripes on the table. He was the one who used the phrase, who will be the last man to die for this mistake? Right. And, and I see in this soldier uh, a John Kerry moment. And unfortunately, John Kerry, uh, you know, was reshaped by his own access to power. Uh, and, uh, you know, his I, I'm going to challenge it with I don't mean to. Uh, I think the blowback is these some of these soldiers are ripe for the plucking by bad actors on the right. I, I, I see that Moraine deeply troubled mm. and I could see him. Uh, if he doesn't get enough love and he's not taken care of falling into. Uh... I, I hear what you're saying. And that that's something I had not considered, David, at the same time, will Democrats allow him to testify on Capitol Hill? Will they who are now so invested in uh, the war machinery, uh, will they allow an honest man to speak about the debacle of the exit from Afghanistan. And, you know, we're, we, we come back to the existential dread of, of America's divided politics, where the Democrats fear that giving any quarter uh, to Republicans uh, will, will slay them. Make us look and, weak. We're weak. Right. Yeah. But the, the real, uh, you know, victim here is the truth. And without it, uh, we are destined to repeat these mistakes in other venues with other 20-year-old Americans uh, and idealistic people like this soldier. And, and I, respect- I don't know if he's I don't know. I don't know how idealistic he is. I think he is unless he gets help. I think he is. uh Those words have been sanitized from the conversation. He did say that. And he also said the smell of, I believe he was describing burning flesh as mm-hmm. bacon and eggs. And, and he got excited. He liked the smell. You can't testify before the House Armed Services Committee and talk that way. You can't make it that can't tell people what war smells like. I'm being serious. I mean, he, this is. I, I, well, I, I understand your point um, that he is, you know, he can be uh, undermined and his credibility can be destroyed. No, 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 no. I, I'm just saying you can't talk. You're not allowed. What is it? The Overton window. You cannot describe war. We're not. It's been sanitized. So we're not allowed to know what war is really like. That's. But even if he self-destructs, I think that he may spill enough that we really will see some accountability. And and we got to go back to Petraeus. We have to go back to these people who've been allowed to skate uh, and been uh, promoted upward based on failure. And uh, it comes back to President Obama, who, uh, you know, as I have argued, had the window to get out of Afghanistan 
any time really after 2014. He'd done his surge, it had failed, and the Taliban did not have the footprint that it had in 2021 as Biden attempted to follow through uh, on his, his excellent intention. Uh, and, and overall, you know, uh, Biden has shown strength here. He has stayed the course. He has not led, let the loss of life and the humiliation of the United States uh, cause him to reconsider. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, that will, will be beneficial. But if we don't deal with the serious errors that are a part of this, then it's just going to be more of the same. Yeah. And again, love the troops, hate the industrial military industrial complex and the leaders who sent the troops over there. But uh, mm-hmm. if we don't love the troops and take care of them, uh, well, anyway, uh, it, it's uh, on a lighter note, uh, Karzai uh is still in afghanistan right yes and they named an airport after him how many times does cars i have to die for him to get an airport named isn't it a little premature how many times did he die <laughs> well uh he he's a curious figure uh we've discussed this before that he was uh, uh high-paid consultant to Unical. Uh, He was installed by the Bush administration because he cut a nice fashion figure with those capes and his uh, uh, kind of uh, indigenous fashions. Uh, And he was was generally pretty pliable. Uh, To me, putting his name on the airport is, uh, it's it's a a sign of the graft that uh, occurred. He looks Um, like Ben, sir, Ben Kingsley, doesn't he? Yes, yes. Uh, And, you know, he didn't cut and run. It means that his he he feels secure. What does his brother do? What did his brother was his what did his brother do? Was his brother in the drug trade? I think so. He was a profiteer of some sort. Okay. Yeah. Um, But, you know, Ghani left with one hundred and sixty million in cash. Uh, they had a hard time getting the helicopter up in the air. Right. Uh, and so Karzai has stayed. I guess that means that his villa on the Riviera is secure and that Good. his Swiss accounts are, uh, are you know, pretty, pretty full. Uh, but he, you know, it remains to be seen uh, how he is used by the Taliban. And th- there's just so much we don't know. Uh, about who's really in charge, about whether the extreme factions uh, will dominate and uh, really, you know, slaughter all of the people. Those who were on a bus and got turned away at the airport on Saturday or Sunday, their names have been given uh, on a list to the Taliban saying, you know, we want these people out. Well, that can easily be a a kill list. Uh, You know, I, I fear for the retribution that I think is likely to occur. Um, So what will Kabul look like in six months? Who will be in charge? Will this uh, attempt at moderation 
at least of the message? Uh, will it be borne out in actions? Nobody knows. And uh, I, I do think that it, it's fair to fear for the worst. Yeah. And Americans lack critical thinking and they're going to be convinced that Ahmed is it Ahmed Massoud? He's the Afghan resistance leader north of Kabul, and he claims to be the rightful heir to Ghani. He is hiring lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to lobby for the resistance. So, you know, we have a, another Chalabi on our hands. Remember Chalabi? Yeah, sure. And the arms dealers in Washington, D.C. are going to be lobbying. They're going to say this guy, uh, Afghan resistance leader Ahmed Massoud, uh, is uh, a freedom fighter. Another, right. We have another freedom fighter on it, like the, <laughs> like the Sandinistas. Yeah. And uh, the Mujahideen. Another freedom fighter for us to arm. Uh, yeah. Great. What an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I hope to talk to you next week. No. Oh, Labor, Labor Day. Day. Labor Day. But this isn't work. <laughs> I know. I know. You're right. I You said it, and I have to think about... Uh, It's hard for me to take the uh, day off. Well, and I'll, I'll just be candid, David. Um, I'm having a little sinus surgery tomorrow, and I don't know what kind of shape I'm going to be in next Monday. So uh, I will. I think I'm going to be all plugged up. Well, you should have thought of that back in the 90s when you were putting all those rolled up dollar bills. You know where. <laughs> uh, thank you. Peter, you know, I don't even, maybe that's true. I have no idea. Uh, uh, Peter B. I, I, no, since you brought it up, uh, I was never big into the blow. And the last time I did cocaine, when it was the anesthetic for sinus surgery that I had in 1994. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Talk about blowback. Uh, I don't know what that meant. <laughs> Thank you. What a great, what an honor. What a just fantastic, just as, you know, uh, to stay on one topic and commit to it. What was the name of the uh, group that we didn't know about? Uh, we'll look it up. There was a group in. Oh, the, you mean the Yazidis and their religious yeah. Uh, affiliation? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Ann Lee can. Add. And I have a they're correction. The, they're the people who were slaughtered on Mount Sinjar. Hmm. I have a correction to make. Great. I said that General Michael Flynn violated the Hatch Act when he talked to Kislyak. He violated the Logan Act. I, mm -hmm. I stand correct. The Logan Act forbids civilians from negotiating with foreign governments without being sanctioned by the American government. And uh, I, I acknowledge that that was a violation. Uh, his bigger offense was that he took half a million dollars to lobby for the state of Turkey through a third party uh, and was holding meetings suggesting that uh, they kidnap 
this uh, bizarre imam who's uh, parked in Pennsylvania, right. who is a rival of, uh, of Erdogan. His name is Fetullah Gulen. And uh, I believe Gulen is some sort of a CIA-protected uh, asset. And Trump at one point talked about coughing him up to try to uh, get favors from Erdogan. Uh, but that, uh, you know, Mueller just gave him a pass on that, allowed him to uh, belatedly register under the FARA, the Foreign Agent uh, Registration Act. And, and that was, to me, a much bigger compromise of Mike Flynn. And, and he was a bad actor. Uh, you know, one of the few people that Obama fired. Uh, he shuffled his generals when he was unhappy with them, but they, they all got new jobs. And Flynn was the only one who was actually ejected from the administration. And we're told that in the uh, uh, November 2016 first meeting between Trump and Obama after the election, that uh, the he two pieces him. of advice were yeah. uh, don't trust Flynn and uh, watch out for North Korea. Um, and, and and don't eat the crab cakes in the White House cafeteria. <laughs> We're keeping people waiting. So great. So great. Thank you so much. Peter. And David, thank you for the you provide an opportunity for uh, uh, expansive discussion yes. and, uh, uh, you know, exposition here. Yeah. And that that's something that I really value. Yeah, it's uh, something that is really important. It's missing from the conversation. And I'm not going to, uh, instead of attacking, well, I attacked, I went after some people today, but instead of attacking our fellow lefties, let's be a little more educated. Thank you for educating us. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure, David. PeterBCollins.com. PeterBCollins.com. Thank you so much. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where physicist and parks commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, is standing by Professor Marianne Cummings and Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh, uh, let me see. I'm trying to figure out who the Yazidis are. Uh, I don't know who to ask. Let me see. Uh, uh, Professor Marianne Cummings, you're a physicist. <laughs> it's such an embarrassment of riches. The show is said, Professor Adnan, this is like the scene in Annie Hall with Marshall McLuhan. Where you, well, I just happen to have Marshall McLuhan standing right behind. Right. Who, who are the Yazidis, please? Uh, well, the Yazidis are an ethnic Kurdish religion. Um, so most Kurds are Sunni Muslims. Um, but uh, um, among the, the Kurds, there are Yazidis. And it's an ancient kind of uh, syncretic religion. I mean, because it evolved over a long period of time with contact with a lot of other religions in the region. But it represents kind of indigenous Kurdish uh, religious folk 
practices that are, you know, connected like many you know, so-called pagan cults and religions with seasonal, um, you know, uh, harvest uh, celebrations and rituals that are connected with the agricultural cycle. Um, but its core is thought to be um, a variant of Zoroastrianism, which is the ancient Persian predates um, Judaism confessional religion um, that was, you know, there are many streams of Zoroastrianism, but the kind of most important one uh, is that that was uh, associated Mono. with the Sasanian Empire. Well, was it monotheism? Um, well, it's not a monotheism in the sense that it is a sort of dualistic of uh, cosmology that you know there is this kind of you know maybe Lindsey Graham would like this uh, religion because there's an eternal kind of conflict between light and dark as sort of cosmic forces and good and evil um, that are fought out as well in, on the earthly plane by the actions of human beings that if you you know uh, act in a moral and responsible way you contribute to the kind of force Forces of Ahura Mazda, which is the deity that represents the kind of cosmic good forces in 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 the world. So Zoroastrianism is sort of the core, but it has lots of other syncretic elements with Sufi, you know, Muslim uh, practices okay. and so on. And um, I always I hate to I always yeah. thought the, the the that predated uh, Moses that he stole monotheism from the Zoroastrian... How do you pronounce it? Zoroastrianism. Is that anything there? Well, I mean, I think that this is an interesting, you know, a really interesting issue because... Um, I would say what's more important than whether it's theologically a monotheistic religion, that is one that recognizes only one, you know, divine force, um, is that it was a confessional religion. So even though it had this dualistic kind of um, perspective, you were meant to only worship and align yourself with um you know, the, the good principle uh, of uh, Ahuru Mazda. But what was important was, unlike pagan religions and kind of idolatrous kind of religious uh, forms, it was an exclusive relationship. So when you join this religion and religious community, you couldn't also be something else, right? So, and it had scripture as a basis. So they had the Avesta and other uh, writings. And so it kind of transformed, really the transformation is less paganism to monotheism or idolatry to monotheism than I would say those kind of looser affiliations um, to this kind of exclusive confessional form of religion that is relates your life, you know, and deeds to the cosmos and requires a kind of total uh, commitment. Hmm. But yeah, so Moses, I mean, you know, this is very old, like the Zoroastrian forms of religion. Who was um, like when we say, old. when we say, amen, was that from a fa Pharaoh who tried to sell monotheism? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, but uh, about uh, men, but there is a lot. Tutankhamun. Well, I mean, Tutankhamun. there's Moses, you know, even, even Freud writes in Moses and monotheism about how, you know, there was this real encounter with uh, pharaonic, you know, ancient Egyptian 
religion um, that was important to you know early judaism as well all of these religions you know we can't think of them as boxes you know for right. this identity that they later right. acquire but you know they develop out of a complex of all kinds of people's beliefs well, and Freud, ideas doesn't freud say that moses wasn't a jew he was a tribe that took out that there were jews in still in palestine and that moses took a tribe of egyptians and created a cre created a different branch of Judaism once he arrived isn't that yeah, I, I can't remember exactly but that that's, that rings a bell and of course Freud had a lot of very interesting theories yeah especially <laughs> when uh, anyway I won't but I, I don't want to this is uh, Professor Marianne's uh, segment so I don't want to well, spend I, it talking this about reminded you know. me of a book I read in high school it was in my library called the Golden Bow. And yes. it was written by some stuffy old Brit, you know, about a hundred yeah, years. Yeah, Fraser. But oh yeah, okay. So, yeah. and but was was fascinating to me was a couple chapters where he was doing like comparative religion and going through the religions of the Middle East, where all of them featured um, the God who had to come down to Earth in the form of a man, being born of a virgin, and then being executed explicitly by uh, by crucifixion being buried and on the third day rising again and you know i, I wrote a little paper and when i was in high school and i said that ah, it seemed like you know these features were like fins on 1950s cars you couldn't quite sell them without these features right yeah. I, I was surprised it was my first time uh, I mean, I was aware of Buddhism and Hinduism and things like that, but this was the first time that, you know, um, it, it, you know, that I really read how Christianity was not altogether that uh, original concept. I remember Francis being, Ford Coppola uh, giving an interview uh, when Apocalypse Now first came out. He says it's based on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and the golden, how do you pronounce it, bow? Bow? I was called the Golden Bow. It was just a oh, Penguin classic book, but it right. was a and Martin text. Sheen is going to sacrifice Kurtz, right? right. In this, uh, just uh, let's. Religions are strange, and you know, the ideas kind of circulate, and it's sort of what we had before modern psychology. I have a, I have a question about Labor Day. Am oh. I going to feel guilty if I want to do a show next week? I'm going to feel guilty anyway. Should we do a show on Labor Day? Well, are all of us going out on weekends next week? Are we all traveling as if COVID isn't over with? Uh, right. I think we're kind of all going to be in the same place. Although I might possibility, possibility I might be in Michigan. but It would be good to do a Labor Day show with Ricky. If he yes. would uh, come back to me uh, and we talk about uh, labor, they, the real Labor Day. Um, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. I, I, uh, anyway, what is on your mind? Professor Marianne. Oh, 
Well, you know, uh, how I, I have to say, I, I was listening to Peter B. Collins, who I could listen to Isn't for he? a very long time. Thank you, Tom but, Weber, for bringing him onto the show. Yes, but I, I had to. I wanted to ask him before he left um, if he was ever substituting for Mike Malloy. Uh, who was a talk show host way back in the day. He was on Air America. He was one of the Air America talk shows, but he was on WLS for years. And I was his Aurora, Illinois bureau chief. You know, he <laughs> just had these regular callers, so he just kind of gave uh-huh. us titles. And uh, I think Peter used to substitute occasionally on his show. And I think we had a long discussion about the book before the Mayflower. Anyway, it was just uh, so I just. Well, I, yeah, next I, week, did you? He's you. He, does he partake in the chat room? Uh, I haven't seen him. Great. Uh, well, I mean, I thought he he went deep into the weeds on ISIS K. Anything? Uh, well, I'm not gonna. I've kept you waiting. So, what what is on your mind? Well, you know, along with that, um, it, it's the, the, the series of articles, the Afghanistan papers is something that I think we all need to read. And uh, but I was reading an excerpt from them. And uh, this isn't we had a quote unquote formal withdrawal from Afghanistan at the end of 2014. And Obama had was a very ceremonious kind of thing, and we was they had the surge before, and then it was declared that they had done their job, and and what happened after that was kind of a fiction that was spun by the Obama administration. That yes, there was a U.S. presence still there, but they were only for consulting purposes and in training purposes. But in reality, we were carrying out all kinds of raids, and it was just almost like. You know, Obama just could not extract himself from that situation. I don't think any, I I really don't think any president could. Well, Trump was crazy, but, you know, the Taliban basically, starting three weeks ago, made the decision for us. Yeah. And and I'm I'm just glad that we're out, except that, you know, we seem to be... um, uh, we seem to be ginning up the war in Syria. We're bombing Somalia, and I still I don't understand what our strategic purposes in bombing another one of the poorest countries on planet Earth. But um, I think that this, and and I think a lot. I think the the the, the Republicans are completely disingenuous. However, if this happened under Trump, under the same circumstances you would just switch the color of the jersey and the Democrats would be making the same kind of, I don't think that Biden, I think this is all academic because I don't think that Biden is deciding much of anything at all. But I well, think I, that I, I do think, I do think this is his finest moment. Well, it could be his finest moment. That he no had, had no hand in deciding. I mean, it's all. I mean, I'm I mean, still going to crap on him on the show. Appearances, right? This is his finest moment. This is an adult decision. It's messy, and and he's had it. I'm I'm out. We're out. 
Mm. Am I wrong for saying that? I think this will be as good as it gets in a Biden administration. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's going to be many better days than this. Unless Bernie Sanders can somehow do some amazing behind the scenes arm wrestling and really push through this $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. And he is, I, I, I caught a little bit of your show earlier that, yes, uh, Bernie Sanders seems to be doing what a functional president would do, you know, a signature. I think the real, uh, nobody really cares about Afghanistan. I mean, most of the people couldn't find it on a map. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, we did learn the lesson of Vietnam, as I said before, uh, keep it off the TV. I think there was analysis two weeks ago, like ABC had all five minutes total on Afghanistan. So it was just not something that people think about. However, a serious public spending bill. I mean, not just giving it to contractors or banks, but I mean, a, a bill that everyone is going to feel, people in my neighborhood is going to feel. That would be the one thing the Democrats could do to stave off being routed in 2022. So well, and the country and the country from being routed by the the far right insurrectionists. If we don't start giving love to the people who are hurting, uh, well, they'll, they'll just I mean, sit back and watch watch it burn. Well, the thing is, it it's already somebody said about the economy collapsing, and I've had to remind a lot of my more comfortable liberal friends: the economy collapsed over ten years ago, and people in my neighborhood. You know, some of them are doing okay. Uh, a lot of people from Mexico, so they know how to be poor. But really, most of America, or at least 50% of America, hasn't quite recovered from the last economic meltdown. And now there's going to be a COVID economic meltdown, and it ain't over. And, you know, so I think that um, people tend to put too much importance on which team, team red or team blue, is winning when basically the owners of both parties have been winning and getting what they want pretty much. Um, I, as I've always said, I've, I've always held out some hope that Bernie Sanders can surprise us. And I've been kind of noticing, I've just been seeing on my Yahoo feed that these rallies that Bernie has been having has been breaking into the regular news cycle. I mean, usually you wouldn't see a, a rally from Bernie Sanders on my Yahoo news feed. It's just kind of a randomized kind of sample. How big are the rallies? Uh, he's making the rounds. He was in Cedar City. He was in Indiana uh, a couple days ago. There was a crowd of almost 3,000 people in that's, West Lafayette. That's incredible. Yeah. So, no, Bernie is uh, going around and he's beginning to attract Bernie-sized crowds on behalf of this bill. And I think he's dead serious. And I think he's signaling to people in the House, to the progressives in the House that may want to waver that, no, we are. He's explicitly said we've already done the compromising. This is it. Three point five trillion dollars. This is the bill. Because I was a little worried the uh, what the the hard line that some of the progressives had publicly stated was if there was if there wasn't going to be any climate change uh, mitigation, then it's it, it's a done deal. 
you know, that they're, they, they won't vote on it. But I mean, that can be anything. No. How about the 3.5 trillion or nothing? So Bernie's saying it. So I think he's going across the country saying it. Either if we lose, if they don't do this infrastructure bill, we don't, the Democrats don't get the House and the country's gone. The eviction moratorium, the Supreme Court just overturned the CDC's eviction moratorium. If they don't take care of the returning veterans and the 99%, nobody's going to care about the next insurrection, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Nobody is going to care about- They might join it. I mean, when you're desperate and you feel no hope, you know, it's. You want to instead of holding here, let me you, you have your select committee on the Capitol Hill riots. I'll tell you why it happened. But first pass. These infrastructure well, the bills and uh, then give us the Medicare Democrats for all and free tuition to public universities yeah. for your the own Democrats. sake. I was going to say the Democratic leadership has appeared to be just remarkably um, feeling that there's nothing of urgency that's going that needs to be addressed. They put the after the uh, the second impeachment vote failed in the in the Senate. Yeah, they're all on vacation. Wait, wait, wait a minute, guys. COVID is still raging. There's still economic fallout from all this. You know, it's just I, Nancy Pelosi had to be forced. To bring her house back from a six-week vacation. I mean, yeah, I know that a lot of her members have to fundraise during that time. Don't, don't buy this, oh, we have to be in contact with our constituents and family. No, they spend that time fundraising. But, uh, you know, I think even if the Democrats win in next year by some fluke, if there isn't serious infrastructure passed, the country is just going to collapse regardless of who's in power. It's, you know, this has been going on. Or the country has collapsed. Well, and, and, you know, when you, when you talk to Peter B. Collins or all of us about Mm -hmm. the like long form conversation where you get to put out the facts and not in sound bites uh, I don't know. I, I, and, and that's very impressive that you can sit here for six hours, David. Not that I want to butter you up or anything, but yeah, you remember you remembered Mike Flynn's deal with the Turks. I mean, oh, no, 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 uh, Peter. I didn't remember yeah, that. Well, you were able to. You, you, you knew what he was referring to, and you know, it's like I thought. Wow. I mean, the idea that. He was the uh, he he was appointed but not confirmed the national security advisor. That him calling the Russian ambassador would seem to be only the most normal thing on planet Earth. I, I just never understood why they went after them on that, but uh, they wanted to get after him on something. Well, yeah, he lied it's to the FBI agents. Guys. The FBI right. asked him some questions and he he didn't tell them the truth. It's the, they yeah. got him on the cover up. It's it's the obstruction of justice. I mean, you know, that's yeah. uh, 
that's that's where it's a very vague and all-encompassing sort of charge. But you know, as I mentioned before, the problem with the criminals uh, in the the Trump administration was what they were doing was too much like what everybody else is doing and you did in Washington DC and you didn't want to pull too hard on some of those threads. You know, I had hoped that, you know, they pulled on a few, they would have pulled harder on a few threads at Deutsche Bank, but uh, I think, boy, that got shut down pretty fast. Yeah, that's the problem. Let me show you, uh, guess what this is. And I think Uh this is a metaphor for the, the bubble we all, we all live in. So you know what that is, right? Well, I didn't see the creature on the wing. Right. That is the eye of Ida. Ida's eye. And it's, it's what is it, Cavu? What, what are they? Uh, there's a term when you're flying. It's called Cavu. And you can see that if you're in the eye... It's calm and beautiful. And as, as long as you don't look down, it's magnificent. Uh, that's America. You know. Or, uh, to quote Daenerys Targaryen, when she's looking on a city in turmoil from her high tower, she says, it all looks so peaceful mm-hmm. from the top of the tower. Yeah. There are but, people. By the way, yeah, the hurricanes are weird. If um, there was a story about fishermen trapped, uh, sword fishermen trapped in a hurricane, and uh, what was the name of that book? It was a novel. And oh, George I didn't Clooney. Know George Clooney was in that book. Yeah, the and Marky Mark George was in Clooney that was book. In. Yeah, uh, but I didn't realize that helicopters going into the eye of a hurricane was a thing. <laughs> and these guys, this is the Coast Guard unit, and they're just crazy because if you're over an ocean, hurricanes can whip up like 100-foot waves. And these guys fall into these 100-foot waves. If you miscalculate the timing in that wave and fall 100 more feet than you should, you know, it's dead. But, yeah. So Let me just play you one more like clip. This is for Professor yeah. Ann Lee. This is perception, how we get... I, I cut this out. This is uh, Al Roker on Meet the Press yesterday. And he, if you look at this report, you would think that New Orleans is completely underwater. This is Al Roker. Show co-host Al Roker. He's already in New Orleans, which is in the track of this storm. And Al, this looks like a monster storm that's coming. What can you tell us? I mean, it's, can you hear me? Yeah. I mean, look at, look at New Orleans. It's completely flooded. All right. Sorry. I I guess we lost communication. I mean, is Al going to drown? Is he going to drown? Is he going to be okay? Communications, Chuck. Uh, Right now, uh, we are looking at imminent landfall of this storm. Uh, Winds of 150 miles per hour. Are, are 
our like our right now forecast, but we expect landfall in the next couple of hours. They will be at 155 miles per hour. Storm surges upwards of 15 to 16 feet, 20 inches of rain or more with this system. The eye wall, 15 miles wide with 150 mile per hour winds. It's basically a 15 mile wide F3 tornado. That's what's coming. The reason I, I the reason I picked that is it's a tight shot and you what the new is it's a tight shot of Al Roker. The angle is you think he's in the middle of a flood zone. And if you just keep it tight, you would think Al Roker is re- it turns out he's right <laughs> on the the limb of the ocean. And of course, I, I'm, not, I'm not discounting the dangers, but the point is it's all what they choose to show us. And that's how, as Noam Chomsky um, says, they Peter manufacture said, consent. Peter said something very important about that. You know, these groups say, you know, the world is incredibly complicated with everybody, you know, having all kinds of alliances in this and that. And, you know, what rises to what random group rises to the level of importance that you would actually read about it in an article in the New York Times? How does that information get to the reporter of the New York Times? Right. And I'm always ever since I read Chomsky in college, you know, I'm always asking that question. You know, when I when I read, where is this really coming from? Uh, it, it, uh, when I was in graduate school, apart from the weekly world, world news and the Globe and the National Enquirer, I would read the Christian Science, Science Monitor, mostly because they were an independent newspaper and they actually sent reporters to the places that reported on. So their coverage of our, you know, uh, backing death squads and our uh, covert war against Nicaragua, their coverage was very good because they actually were there. How was their medical correspondent? (laughs) The Christian, look, the Christian Science Monitor, there was a very famous case um, about a, a couple's kid who had died, you know, so this, they were Christian scientists. So this was a big deal, right? And the Christian Science Monitor wrote a very, they acknowledged that a lot of people had problems with some of their core beliefs, that they didn't force people to, uh, you know, to not go to doctors. But the bottom line was, um, you know, they gave a very thoughtful and lengthy op-ed piece about just that kind of topic. And, you know, and they were just saying, look, you know, lots of people in our group go to doctors and we don't impose this on kids. But then they, you know, this this kid had cancer and kids that have cancer at that young age, especially at that time in the 80s, it was, you know, it was very dicey. And often you put the kids through a lot of pain and suffering and and it, it, it advanced medicine, it advanced our knowledge but, you know, so they said something like, you know, it's not all cut and dry what you decide to put right. a kid through that seriously ill, this bottom line. So they were, you know, their medical advice, I don't believe, look, it, in, in, any from a relative atheist point of view, which I am, I'm a Buddhist, which for practical purposes makes me atheist in this culture. You know, anybody that has a religious belief kind of believes in an absurdity. 
you know, so, but they can function well as scientists and journalists and engineers and so on and so forth. So, you know, anyway, speaking of being in a bubble, the the anti-vax movement has been very humbling to me and, and a real eye opener because I'm convinced, as is Bernie, as are you, as are you, as is you, as are you, you are too. Uh, that everything good flows from Medicare for all. Well, I'm in a bubble. When you look at the anti-vaxxers, you realize that there's a large segment of the American population that says you can keep your, your, your medicine. We're not interested in your doctors and your drugs. There are a lot of people who think... And rightfully so, you go to a hospital, you go to a doctor, you're going to end up sicker. I think something like 200,000 Americans die each year from medical error. Uh, So I'm not so certain that I love Bernie. I think he's a miracle of democracy, but I'm not so certain. I'm beginning to understand why... Medicare for all uh, is not a winning policy. Uh, except it polls very well, it especially pulled, when yeah. people are explained when it's when it's explained how it would work. Um, the, but it's not a priority. The, AC, the part of the America, the ACA that is by far the most popular was the piece that Bernie, you know insisted on being in there since he was also the 60th vote necessary. And that was the uh, community clinics. You know, so in the original program was like $11 billion for community clinics all over the country. Right. Even Republican governors like that part of the bill. And that's been expanded because people like getting health care when they're really sick and they need it. And, you know, so... Not, not so look at you look at all right but you know as far as the vaccines out there was a there there was somebody brought this to my attention and i brought it to my executive director's attention that uh, you know i've been looking on healthmeter.com and and the uh john hopkins pages for the you know uh, daily updates of of covid but i looked at an illinois page that had by zip code my zip code in Aurora, 35% vaccination rate in my particular zip code. We've had like upwards of five or six times the COVID cases in my zip code. My zip code is poor area, largely Hispanic, very democratic. But it's like people are not online. So that was the problem if you're in Illinois um, that, to get the vaccine. And it's like, I think for a lot of people who are just struggling to survive, they didn't get sick. You know, COVID is just kind of academic to them or something. But I'm trying to get a meeting with our local officials to address 
this, you know, glaring, glaring problem in the middle of it. And all the other zip codes around us are all blue. You know, they're all highly vaccinated. Mine is highly unvaccinated and has all this COVID popping up and is where the East Aurora School District is. And they've been in school now for over a week. So, yeah, anti-vaxxers, yeah, you know, the, the problem again with the media, they're, they're not going to interview view anybody in my it, 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 down my block. They're going to go with, you know, some outrageous Trumpian anti-vaxxer that's got the flags off of the back of his pickup truck. And, you know, it's uh, so we, we have to be a little careful about that. Yes. Well, I have uh, some interesting news that just came over. Yeah. Is it The Wire? Is it still a wire about Kid Rock? And oh, that guy. Yeah. It, Fantastic it, first album. Love that first was album. Was it really? Mm-hmm. A friend of Donald Trump. I can't, I, I guess. I know. But uh, he's tested positive for COVID. <laughs> and he made a statement that, I'm, if I can find it, uh, the people in our community will find this very amusing. Well, here, this is what he says. Uh, Kid Rock is canceling two shows over the weekend because of an outbreak of COVID-19 in his band. He was going to play Fort Worth, Texas. On Twitter, he says, quote, I am pissed off. Over half the band has effing COVID, not me. And before you shit for brain Bloggers and media trolls run your mouths. Many of them, like me, have been vaccinated. Right? Do you believe that uh, they've been vaccinated? I have no idea. Then he added, and this is for our community, quote, I was, he's pissed off that the concert was canceled. He says, and I quote, I was going to come on and rock the house anyway. You know, play acoustic, DJ, or even juggle D's nuts. He did a D's nuts, which is, uh, there's an epidemic of D's nuts at office hours. Yeah, here's so. Never gets old. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, how are things other... How are yeah. things otherwise? Have you tried painting? Everybody's painting. Have you tried anything? Yeah, once or twice. Really? Okay. Yeah, I've got a show coming up next weekend. Really? Yeah. It's part of uh, part of the Aurora Art League, so you know it's going to be on Friday. What do and people Saturday. do when they find out the way you paint? When you, when you show your, I mean, they're apps. It's absolutely breathtaking. When, well, some of them want me to do paintings for them. <laughs> so, so I've actually got a flower, which I can't. Uh, flowers, man, those uh, suckers. Those are the hardest things for me to do. So I kind of have been doing flowers because uh, you know, I'm finally getting flowers. And I, uh, I've got a, some some friend of mine um, had roses on her birthday, and she took a picture of them. And then she said, "Hey, can you paint this picture of my roses so I'll have them?" And I said, "Oh, okay." Do you know that Georgia and, O'Keefe could not 
paint a woman. I won't do that joke. Uh, there are many jokes that I would have done five years ago that I am not going to do. Uh, oh, well. Office hours. Are you going to be at office hours? Yes. Okay. I was only in office hours a little while, um, and, and it was late Friday night, just past Friday night, and there was some amazing discussion going on between Falco and Lane. <laughs> I was having trouble following. Right. Okay. Thank you. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist. She's also a parks commissioner over in Aurora, Illinois. I like your governor. I like, do you like him? I like the way he turned on the people who were questioning the masks. You don't yeah. like him. Yeah, he's, he's, he's spotty, but he certainly was better than the Republican billionaire. This billionaire is certainly better than the Republican billionaire he replaced. I like a Democratic. Though, is Rom going yeah. to Japan? Where's Rom going? Is he going to be an ambassador? He's going to be our ambassador to Japan. Good. Let them and have him. That guy is, should be in jail. That whole With family. Tom McDonald. Everybody looked that up on Google. I mean, that well, was criminal. Well, that was criminal. What, oh, the kid the, who got shot and killed. Yeah. He was shot 16 times in the back. Some kid that gave an officer lip. And then they just gunned him down. And somebody had the video, but they repressed it until after Rahm's re-election. If, uh, if, if that had come out before, before that election, we would, have, uh, we would have had Mayor Chuy Garcia. As, and it was just, and, you know, he just made all, he, he destroyed the uh, good chunks of the Chicago public school system. Part of the reason why he's uh, he's got J Japanese connections is his, he was selling off assets, public assets to Japanese corporations, selling off city services to Japanese corporations. He is a great guy. Neo lib poster child. They live in the eye of. They, they don't. Yeah. They they need no consequences. They need, if you do stuff on behest of power, there are no consequences. Thank you. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours and hours, 24 hours of office hours this Friday night, the first Friday of every, the first Friday of every month. Am I saying that right? We do 24 hours of office hours, but the truth is we I think the last office hours went 24 hours. Joining us maybe from Denton, Texas, maybe from the Lake House in Kansas. Who knows? Please welcome <laughs> Professor Mike Steinell. I don't know if you heard the con I don't know if you heard the conversation, but we were talking about the songs that I play, I, there are only a couple of songs I play because I was making music videos. There's an embarrassment of riches. How how is are you are you watching Jeopardy with your friend? Yes, yeah, she's back home. Good. Came home Friday. Good. Yeah, 
Good. Nadine, I tell you, it was a rough week um, last week with uh, Beverly's mother. Ninety, going to be ninety nine in five weeks. How about that? Wow! They're down there watching. Uh, <laughs> they're watching Andy of Mayberry right now. It was the God. episode where Ernest T. Bass is introduced. <laughs> remember, remember that that actor. He just he died a couple years ago. Ernest T. Bass. You got that's one of the greatest characters in '60s TV. There are and the uh, Jeff Garland said to me there are two gifts from God: baseball and the Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. It, but you it know, takes so many. He, Floyd he, the Barber. Uh -huh. <laughs> Ooh. A, but it takes actually a. It, it's like baseball. It takes you got to lay back, right? You got to to enjoy. Oh, it. it comes at you gently. That's yeah. true. You know, Green Acres was pretty good. It had uh, the 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 most. I think it had four of the greatest character actors. It had Pat Buttram, I think, and uh, oh, there were three other guys. Mister Haney. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I heard it they were all tripping. That that was written on. No, I, that's what I'm. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> well, well a, that explains a, a lot. Yeah, there's a certain type of viewer. It's a very sophisticated viewer who was into Green Acres, who saw it for what it was. Because it was, it, I don't know if you were, it was panned. My friends used to get high and watch it. Yeah, but it was lumped <laughs> in there with Petticoat Junction and the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. And, it, and it was like the problem with television. That, you know, and then you go back and watch and you go, this is pretty great. This is pretty great. Yeah. You know, we, we watched Golden Girls. Here, I'll tell you a little secret about my mother-in-law. She is amazing. She loves the bloody NCIS mm -hmm. criminal minds. And, and, and so we try, we, try, we try to steer her away. Hey, let's watch uh, Golden Girls. How about some Golden Girls instead right. of like bodies being, you know, mangled by machine guns, you know. But she loves, she loves the shoot-em-ups. She loves to shoot them. I'm doing a shameless plug of Good. my novel that I put you. up on. I will do it for you. The Lake you House Part it? 1, an audiobook by Mike Steinell, narrated by, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, <laughs> Mike Steinell. Did I get that right? That's pretty close to it. <clears throat> the Lake House Part 1. Well, how do we, how do we get this? It's free. Go to YouTube. Just put in the Lake House Part One. There turns out there's a ton of a ton of, of uh, novels called the Lake House, and uh, I didn't realize that until I got it all completed. But I'm 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 get, I'm just put I'm sick of this one. I'm just sick of trying to get it published, and I'm just putting it out there, and uh, and and hopefully you know we can. My song. I'm, I'm hoping that this might be. It might be a YouTube sensation. I sent you a song earlier. Did you get it? No, I'm looking for it right now. Yeah. It's called YouTube Sensation because that's kind of where I'm at anyway. Hey, um, show's been really good. I've been listening. Oh, thank you. I well, developed, thanks to you. I did develop, thanks to you. Well, well, well. I did develop that Feldman uh, joke per minute score. Per minute or hour? Per minute, per minute, per minute. It, it can be a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me let me let me pull it up here. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Do we? Um, 
Hang on a second. I've got it as a screen background. Yeah, there we go. This is from episode. Uh, can you see it? Wow. From uh, yeah. I, so I sat there with a little timer. Did you really? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, oh, yes. Yeah. Just, just, okay, no, no, yeah. no, for the purpose I had a clicker, of okay. I had a, <laughs> I had a clicker, and every time I heard a joke. Uh huh. See, I've got this. I got the segments there. The first one that says, uh, "Actually, you can't." Dan and and uh, Dave saved the show, and that was actually pretty funny. It was a disaster, but it yes. was like it was very slapsticky. But your monologues have been really good. You know, oh, thank you. They're dripping. Now, I had to do something. I just wanted, I wanted to show, it says jokes per minute. And these are jokes attempted. These not necessarily funny jokes. Okay. <laughs> it's like a picture. You know, they, they, you need to do, we need to do a pitch count on you yeah. to save your, your funny arm. You know, mm -hmm. you can't be, you can't be stretching it. I soak so, it in ice. A bucket of ice. Yeah, not, not, my arm. Ice. Yeah. not my arm. Not my arm. Go ahead. But, but you know, like a pitcher, they don't count how many strikes he throws. They, they count how many pitches, you know, and they might be, you know, 50% of them might be not over the plate. So this is just attempting. I was going to name, I was going to change the thing jokes attempted per minute, but that would be JAPM, yeah, J-A-P-M. And I thought, I don't know about that. No. But uh, you kind of go low. You go low on the... Uh, you went low on the Mike Rowe thing because he took most of the... That was so funny. He was so funny. He was great. You set him up most. You were setting him up <laughs> with jokes you didn't know. Isn't he, isn't he great? He's good. Hey, I've got a, I've got a good joke. I just read a. I'm reading this Stephen Pinkert Pinker novel. Not a novel. It's a book on on writing. He's the guy that wrote um, Our Better Angels. You know that book? Uh, I'll pretend. Stephen I do. Pinkert. Anyway, he's supposed to be important. But uh, here's the joke, and he, and he uses this as a way. I don't know, to demonstrate something in terms of writing, but uh, Leonard Goldfarb, the, the time in Leonard Goldfarb's funeral for the eulogies arrived, and the rabbi said, would anyone like to say something about Leonard? There was complete silence. After a minute, he said, surely there's someone who could say something nice about Leonard Goldfarb. There was a little more silence than a a small voice in the Hang back. Hang on for said, one second. I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> You're going to tell the punchline? No. <laughs> okay. J Jackie the Joke Man Martling is up next. Uh, he tells this joke. But okay. You're telling it wrong. Well, well you haven't say heard it yet. Say something nice about Leonard Goldfarb. I, didn't I say that? I, I, think you, I think you said to say something about him. Then the second time I said, doesn't anybody have something nice to say about Leonard Goldfarb? Okay. I did get it in. We can rewind the tape. No, I'll, I'll trust you. A week you. from now. I apologize. And, uh, and then there's some silence and a small voice in the back said, his brother was worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play Jackie the Joke Man Martling after okay. you. He tells the same joke. Well, of course, you know, he tells every joke. Yeah. Hey, hey, am I the only guy on the show that drinks? What are you drinking? Interview? Wine, a little wine. It's late here. Yeah, but we don't, uh, we don't want, you know, we have kids watching. It's, I'm kidding. <laughs> Is that red wine? Yes. And it's where's it for, from? It's good for you. Uh, Kroger. <laughs> oh, the, the Kroger Vineyards. <laughs> I am looking it's, for your song, uh, it's, it's, Professor. Did you find it? No, I did not. 
You want me to email it again? Yeah. I'm, really? Uh, okay. I've been, I mean, I enjoy talking with you, but... Uh, we need the song. We need a Let song. Uh, I am not seeing it. Did you send it to... Uh, I'll check. The one I use it, the one I always send it to? Yeah, I mean, I'll Wait check junk mail, but it's kind of insulting you know to you. What it's time did you send it? About seven. It's not in my sense, so something happened. Ah, it's okay. your fault. Not yeah. my fault. While you're resending it, yes, sir. I will remind everybody that Friday night is office hours and hours. Go to my website and sign up. Meet better people. You'll meet better, better people at office hours. And if you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, go to my website and sign up. The uh, chat room is rocking tonight. Do they still say that? Uh, and I did I get? Did I check the Q and A's? Uh, I well, maybe it, it might not have gone through. I might have to do it live. Maybe do it live, as a great man once said. We'll do it live, as a great sexual assaulter once said. We'll do it live, <laughs> as, okay. as the man who. Cost happened, yeah. Fox News, conservatively speaking, because it is Fox News, so you have to speak conservatively, $50 million in sexual assault and harassment payouts. We'll do it live. Did you Who know that? Who is that? Bill O'Reilly cost no Fox way. News something like $50 million in uh, sexual Assault or harass. I guess it was a harassment settlements. Allegedly. 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 Yes. Please welcome Professor. Maybe I'll get a groove going here. A YouTube sensation It's become My new avocation I taught my cat named Jaws To play the piano with his paws We worked all day All day long on a Beethoven song Then he got it in his head To play the blues instead I still want to be a YouTube sensation I want to be a YouTube sensation, but it's becoming a big irritation. I get a little traumatized by my attempt to monetize. I need 10,000 likes a day before this thing will pay. Maybe I'll try some unboxing or inject a dangerous 
this toxin, I don't know. I just want to be a YouTube sensation. I'm trying to be a YouTube sensation. I'm caught in a downward spiral because my stuff don't go viral. I gave haircuts to tigers, tried to get more subscribers. There's such a chill on my channel. I've decided to dress in flannel. I guess I'll try to booze because I got the YouTube blues. Maybe I'll connect the knots on some Dalmatians and get some YouTube sensations. That's That was basically it. It's kind of lame, I guess. I love it. And you know what? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Fine. I, I love the connecting dots on. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, connecting dots on a Dalmatian. Yeah, it's a good idea. I think I'll do that, and then yeah. that might. I started, you know, like. I'm By the way, you more... sound. Excuse me, I'm going to interrupt you for one second. In the past, when you did stuff live, it didn't sound as good. Uh, but you've got some kind of new equipment. And it sounds no, I think I just have the piano down a little bit. Well, whatever it is, it's yeah. The mix is perfect, right, Dan? Yeah. You know, um, so I, I I'm trying to get some traffic to my uh, YouTube to the novel. I'm just just want people to read it and enjoy it. By right. the way, I started the fourth novel. Um. So how do people? How do we? Listen to it on YouTube. You just go to YouTube and put The Lake House Part 1. You got to get the Part 1 because there's a ton of lake houses. But once you listen to Part 1... Now, what is it about? Is it is it a detective novel? Uh, you know, it started with a simple sentence. <clears throat> um, we were fixing the house in Marion. The house in this... Uh, I'll put this thing back up here. And uh, we had to tear up a slab of concrete in the back. Right. And for months, right around the back of the house, back. Boy, it's weird to point here. Yeah. yeah. Back. Not there. easy being a weatherman, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no. Everything's backwards. Yeah. Well, anyway. Um, and I always I was telling my wife, wouldn't it be funny if we found a dead body? You mm -hmm. know, and that's where it starts. This man, this retired jazz professor finds a dead body in this house that he's fixing up. And it's a lot about fixing up the house and the small town, which is disguised, but it's basically Marion. I call it Morgan, you know, and right. I make up different people's names. But it's, uh, it's a mystery, uh, a thriller, in the tradition of the famous thrillers like Hitchcock mm. and whatever. Wow. But anyway, uh, I, I, I. So, how does so you go to listen to it on YouTube? You go to YouTube and type in The Lake House, part one. Part one. The and it'll House. take you, you to, to an audio book by Mike Steinell, narrated by Mike Steinell. Everybody go there and listen. You're a uh, an inspiration. You're uh, I don't know about that. You are. <laughs> hey, you. I'm, a, I'm sorry. Your perspiration. The, I apologize. I you, am perspiration. Your perspiration. That's By the way, I want to tell you how I tallied up your jokes. Yeah. Um, On one I, hand. I, you know, they're just attempts. But but I did call them. A lot of them were sarcasm. I realized much of your humor is sarcastic, uh, which I think is funny. Thomas Carlyle said 
sarcasm was the language of the devil. I just want to let you know that. But that was 100 years ago. But anyway, uh, you, devil, you devil you. I'm not a big <laughs> fan of sarcasm uh, because it's there's something lazy about it. Writing a great joke is much harder. Oh, yeah, for sure. But sometimes uh, you can use sarcasm to not get sued or not to offend. I mean, the idea being sarcasm lets you sneak some ideas under the, the door without anybody realizing that you're being incendiary, I think. No, I think it's very funny. And I think it's very reminiscent. I, I wrote you in an email. I think it's uh, like Mark Twainish, you know, if that's what, a word. old and tired and dead. Yeah, and with a big mustache and yeah, everything, you know. Yeah. No, but then th you also, I notice you have like the, uh, the Letterman thing going of repetition. You know, when Letterman would say something and it fell flat, he would come back to it and then it'd be funny. And mm -hmm. then he'd come back to it again, it'd be funnier. So, like the Letterman equation saves a lot of the, the um, the joke tally there because you right. you have a, and I think, I want I, I'm totally serious. I think you're brilliant at the, the, reading the news. I think last week I think you were short of some guests and you went for an hour and it was really entertaining. It was in the tradition of, um, uh, a hostage video. Murrow. No, no, no. I mean there was great. Um, <clears throat> Who's the guy, Paul, in the tradition of Paul Harvey or, you know, it's um, or Studs Terkel. You ever listen to Studs Terkel? Sure. Yeah, he was great. When yeah. I lived in Chicago, I listened every day to him and uh, he was still kicking. It's interesting. Uh, well, anyway, thank you for that compliment. I got a, uh, a call, uh, a text from Professor Harvey J.K. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> you know, in, I've been uh, learning After Effects mm -hmm. because it's an audio podcast. So what better way, what better <laughs> use of my time than learning After Effects? I, I like, as you do, learning new technology and, uh, yeah. it, and you know, learning these software programs, it kind of helps uh, concentrate the mind. And, and, it, and it, you begin to see it working in other ways. It's uh, anyway. I like the, I like the visuals. I have a bone to pick about the audio that you picked. The song where you got that. What is that? It's it sounds to me like Miles. You took Miles Davis and John Coltrane and put them in a big toilet. Yeah, I, I didn't want to get dinged. I just wanted something. And it's supposed to be bad. I mean, it's the my. Kids, I told my kids <laughs> that my the new slogan for the show is "Ain't no party like a Feldman Coast party." Coast party, yeah, because a Feldman Coast party don't stop. <laughs> and well, I can write some bad music for those for those After Effects. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's from uh, Snoop. I introduce my kids to Dr. Dre and Snoop. They forget that. I remember, really? yeah, I remember playing that stuff, gin and juice for them and all that stuff. I said, here's some music you're not allowed to listen to. I never want to hear this playing. And because I wanted them to listen to it. So I just said, this is this is not allowed. Uh, 
Hey, one last thing. Yes, sir. Uh, you know what the number one video on YouTube is right now and how many hits it's gotten this no. year? Baby Shark from this company in uh, Korea. It's a kid's thing. 30 billion hits. 30 billion hits. In the And he, I, I went to this, I clicked on something that said, um, most popular videos by years and it has this little graph and it keeps showing you the videos by year that were the most popular and they grow and grow but in the first year you know what the most popular one was charlie bit my finger no it was me at the zoo Thirty thousand hits only you you personally at the zoo no no it's a that's the name of it me at the zoo and it's this kid maybe 16, 17, he's standing in front of the elephants. It lasts 18 minutes, and the text pretty much is, hey, I'm here with the elephants. They're really cool. This is what, 2006? Yes, 2005 maybe. Because they're really cool because they have long trunks. Yeah, elephants are cool. That's it. That thing now has 160 million hits. And that's just a kid, you know, so I think the lake house, you know, I think it's got a chance to get some traction. Don't fall prey to those numbers. <laughs> don't don't go down that rabbit. I'm telling you, it's not it's not worth it. The, the, those views. I don't know. Uh, I can talk about that some other time. Uh, I know we've talked about it. Before. Yeah, I was going to tell you a story about memory before you go. But you can't remember it? Yeah, no, I remember it vividly. I remember being in a writing room in 2008. Joe Biden was debating Sarah Palin, which was the fight of the century. People wondered, how is he going to debate this idiot? And I do mean idiot. And I'm being generous by calling her an idiot. I agree. Yeah. I mean, she's just an idiot. Uh and everybody was so I was working on a show. All the entire staff comes in to the conference room to watch the debate. And by the way, Biden was great during the debate. He, he just, was. He did. He did. He did well. He just laughed and smiled. Never called her an idiot, you know. <laughs> and it was two thousand eight, and everybody was on YouTube. By then, and I, 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 I never forgot this. I, I remember saying to these, they were very young. They were in their twenties, like just twenty two, twenty three. And I asked, just out of curiosity, this was two thousand eight. I said, just out of curiosity, when do you think YouTube started? And they said, oh, it's been around forever. I said, really, seriously? Yeah, it's been around forever. And I said. Three years ago, I was stunned by that, that you get you, you, something enters your life and you just assume that it's always been there. I couldn't believe it. 2000. And yeah. I got uh, I started posting animations on YouTube in 2006. Somebody sent me a couple of them. And there's a reason my <laughs> my YouTube account we're shut down. This is the same. I have this. I'm using the same YouTube account. There's some. Are like, they dirty? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you draw them? 
trace them. I was more interesting, interested in animating, figuring out how to animate. And I don't have any. Oh, yeah. You told me you got into that. Oh, I was like, it was insane trying to learn these programs. I lost three years of my life going down that rabbit hole. All right. Oh, man. Professor okay. Mike Steinel, thank you. And give my best to your buddy, your Jeopardy buddy. That's She's great. Yep. Great She's news. Hanging in there. Thank you. Thank you. Professor you. Mike I love you too. Thank you. Well, it is time now, if I can play it. We did a pre-tape with Jackie, the joke man, Martling. I did this yesterday, but I have to find it. So while I'm looking for it, I will remind you that you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And uh, there we go. Please enjoy a pre-tape with Jackie, the joke man, Martling. Here we go from New York, from beautiful Bayville on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island's North Shore. Let's welcome our old friend, Jackie, the joke man, Martling. See Jackie, 7 p.m. Saturday night, September 25th. It's the 40th anniversary of him opening Governor's Comedy Shop in Levittown on Long Island. For tickets, go to Jokeland.com. You'll love Jackie's autobiography, The Joke Man, about a stern. Most of what isn't made up is true. Follow Jackie on Twitter, <laughs> at Jackie Martling. A great joke every day for personalized videos. Who doesn't want a personalized video on Cameo from Jackie the Joke Man? Go to Cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling laughs 24 7 called jackie's dirty joke line use your finger 516-922-WINE for more show information go to jokeland.com hello jackie mommy mommy i don't want to eat a hamburger shut up and put your hand in the meat grinder <laughs> and we're off What's green and red and goes 60 miles an hour? What? <laughs> a frog in a blender. <laughs> <laughs> you must remember this. Each time you take a piss, you must unzip your fly. <laughs> so a guy says, a guy says to the bartender, I'm raising morons. Six months ago, I told my son if he has sex, he's got to use a condom. And he said, okay. Last night, he told me it's almost full. <laughs> hey, the Italian Passover? Yeah. The Verrazano Bridge. <laughs> Here we are at Jaime Buckwald's funeral service, okay. all right? We're yeah. Jaime Buckwald's funeral service. Very unpopular man. And the rabbi says, would anybody like to say a few kind words about Jaime Buckwald? <laughs> Nobody says nothing. The rabbi says, I need somebody to say something nice about Jaime Buckwald. Nobody even stirs. The rabbi says, somebody please say something about Jaime Buchwald. A guy in the back says, his brother was worse. 
<laughs> so the wife says, Harry, does this dress make me look fat? He says, you promise you won't get mad no matter what I say? She says, I promise. He says, I fucked your sister. <laughs> That's great. Here we are in a rural town, middle of nowhere, and the guy says the bartender, you know, they just put up a deer on the road just outside of town. They just put up a deer crossing. They just put up a deer crossing sign on the road outside of town. The bartender says, yeah. The guy says, well... A lot of deer are being hit by cars there. I, I don't think it's a good place for them to be crossing. <laughs> <laughs> so a guy says to the bartender, you know, yesterday I got a call from an ex-girlfriend. Maybe the prettiest girl I ever lived with. She decided to see if I was still at my old number. We talked for a long time, laughing about all the wild stuff we used to do together. Man, I couldn't believe it when she asked me if I wanted to meet her somewhere and see if there's anything still cooking between us. And I said, well, I'm not sure I can keep up with you now. I'm a little older and grayer and I'm a little bald and I don't really have the energy I used to have. And she giggled and said, oh, I know you'll rise to the challenge. And I said, well, listen, as, as long as you don't mind my pot belly and my lack of muscle tone, <laughs> to tell you the truth, everything's sagging. My teeth are a little yellow and I got huge gels now. And then she giggled and said, stop being so silly. Tubby, gray-haired old men are cute. I bet you're still a great lover. Anyway, I, I put on a few pounds myself. The bartender says, yeah. Yeah, so I told her to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> So why don't women wear tampons when they skydive? Why? They might pull the wrong string. (laughs) (laughs) So the lady says to the golf pro, you got anything for a bee sting? He says, where'd you get stung? She says, between the first and the second hole. She says, no wonder, lady, your stance is too far apart. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a question. Your wife is barking at the front door and your dog is barking at the back door. Who do you let in? Who? The dog, because he stops barking after you let him in. (laughs) (laughs) So why is masturbation better than a woman? Uh, Why? Well, you can have it as tight as you want, have it as loose as you want. And if you want to hit bottom, all you got to do is put your thumb over the tip. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. A guy walks in and there's his wife. She's blow drying her pussy hair. (laughs) He says, what are you doing? She says, warming up your dinner. (laughs) (laughs) That's a sweet joke. That's sweet. Hey, did you hear the Georgia State Library burned down? No. (laughs) Yeah. Both books went up in flames and and the governor hadn't even finished coloring one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's good. Political. We're getting political. A guy guy says to the bartender, you know, I think it might be time to quit drinking. 
Last night I had a dream that I was eating cottage. Last night I had a dream I was eating cottage cheese. And when I woke up, there was an old lady sitting on my face. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Come on. Be nice, Jackie. These are nice people. I don't even pretend that's not fucking <laughs> A New Zealander, okay? We're yes. going around the world now. Okay. A, New, a New Zealander sees another guy fucking a sheep. <laughs> he says, shouldn't you be shearing her, mate? The other guy says, oh, no, I'd not be sharing her with nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, why do women fake orgasms? Why? They think we care. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) So the kid says, Pop, what's the difference between theoretically and realistically? As far as says, go ask your mother if she'd have sex with a stranger for a million dollars. Kid comes back and says, she said, yeah, Pop. Yeah, and I go ask your sister if she'd have sex with a stranger for two million dollars. Kid comes back and says, she said yes, too, Pop. As far as says, all right, son. So theoretically, we're sitting on three million bucks. Realistically, we're living with a couple of whores. <laughs> Hey, what was the Irish Holocaust? What? Prohibition. (laughs) All right, all right, okay. (laughs) That's not a good word. I know. know. Prohibition. All right. We're offending it. We offend everybody here. Okay, says to the bartender, my goddamn wife, that's Jesus, my fucking wife. All she does is spend my money, spend my money. And the other day, the other day she told me she wants some plastic surgery. Bartender says, yeah. So I cut up a fucking credit card. <laughs> <laughs> Little old Mr. Ravelli comes up to customs. The customs official says, have you got anything to declare? Little old Mr. Ravelli says, it's a nicer day. <laughs> <laughs> three truckers. Three truckers are in front of St. Peter, and he says the first one, how'd you die? The trucker says, I OD'd on crank. St. <laughs> Peter says the second one, how'd you die? He said, I fell asleep at the wheel. St. Peter says the third one, how'd you die? Third trucker says, Sinus. St. Peter says, don't you mean sinus? He says, nah, I mean sinus. I was fucking my brother's wife and he seen us. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, do you know the three types of orgasms? No, I do not. Well, there's the positive orgasm. Yes! Yes! <laughs> the religious orgasm. Oh, God! Oh, God! And the fake orgasm. Oh, Feldman. The guy says to the bartender, goddamn marriage. We still, we just fight about everything. We fight about everything. We fight about the littlest things, the little things, the stupid little things. Like the false eyelash she found in my pubic hair. The bartender says, she found a false eyelash in your pubic hair? He says, yeah. 
And I always check. It must have been under one of my balls. <laughs> a middle-aged lady. Middle-aged lady's at the gynecologist. She says, every time I sit on the toilet, quarters and dimes and nickels fall out of my vagina. <laughs> He says, you're going through your change. <laughs> so guy's all alone in an elevator, and he rips a huge fart, and <laughs> then he sprays pine air freshener. The elevator door opens a few doors down, a little old lady gets in, and she goes, hey, you. The guy says, what's the matter, lady? You don't like air freshener? She says, air, air, air freshener. It smells like somebody shit a Christmas tree. The <laughs> 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 so mother superior walks in and sees the local priest fucking the hell out of one of the nuns on the kitchen floor. She says, for the love of Jesus, Sister Rose, show some respect. Arch your back so as to keep Father Duffy's balls off the damn floor. (laughs) (laughs) So a guy says to the bartender, I've had it with women. I've had it with women. Bartender says, yeah, huh? He says, yeah, it's bullshit, man. Boob jobs, nose jobs, teeth, bleach, teeth bleaching, tummy tucks, liposuction, colonic irrigation, Botox, pierced ears and pierced nipples and bellies and clits and eyebrows plucked and eyebrows plucked and legs waxed and bikini waxed, shaved armpits, tattooed lips, diets, exercise. But they won't take it in the ass because it hurts. Jesus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Confucius say, <laughs> Confucius say, man who masturbate only screwing himself. <laughs> but a man should learn to masturbate. Come in handy. (laughs) (laughs) Come in handy. (laughs) Again, this is the secretary. Yesterday in New York City, cops found an unidentified guy's body in Central Park. He had a beer belly, saggy balls, a wrinkly ass, and a very small cock. She says, well, you better call your friends and make sure they're all okay. (laughs) (laughs) An old couple moves to Texas, and the guy goes out and buys himself a pair of cowboy boots. When he gets home, he puts them on, walks in the kitchen, says to his wife, notice anything different about me? (laughs) She says, no, I don't. He leaves the room, strips naked except for the boots. He walks back in the kitchen and says, now, Becky, notice anything different now? She looks, she says, no. It's hanging down today. It was hanging down yesterday, and it'll be hanging down tomorrow. <laughs> he says, and do you know why it's hanging down? She says, no. It's hanging down because it's looking at my new boots. <laughs> she says, you should have bought a hat, Bernie. You should have bought a hat. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great joke. That's a great joke. A lady is sitting at a table in a restaurant. She says, Waiter, your thumb is in my soup. Is your lady, well, I got the arthritis and the, 
the heat helps her feel better. She says, yeah, well, why don't you stick your thumb up your ass? He says, well, lady, uh, I do that in the kitchen. (laughs) 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 A priest is walking down the sidewalk carrying a grandfather's clock when he bumps into a drunk who's coming the other way. The drunk says, for fuck's sake, father, why can't you just wear a watch like everybody else? (laughs) One more. A guy says to the bartender, yesterday I started my new job at a paperless office. Bartender says, how was it? He says, everything was great until I had to take a shit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Go see Jackie. 7 p.m. Saturday night, September 25th. It's the 40th anniversary of Jackie the Joke Man opening Governor's Comedy Shop in Levittown on Long Island. For tickets, go to jokeland.com. You'll love Jackie's autobiography, The Joke man, bow to stern. Most of what isn't made up is true. Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. A great joke every day. For personalized videos, go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Laughs 24-7. Call Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger 516-922-WINE. For more show information, go to jokeland.com. Thank you, Jackie. A guy's at the proctologist. He says, hey, docs, stick in another finger. The proctologist says, why? He says, I want a second opinion. (laughs) (laughs) The guy says to the bartender, I had the worst dream of my life last night. I dreamt I was with 12 of the most beautiful chorus girls in the world. Blondes, brunettes, redheads. And they were all dancing in a row. The bartender says, hey, that don't sound so bad. He says, yeah. I was the third girl from the end. <laughs> I'll see you next time. Oh, great job. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. Can you hear me? Yes, you can. Can you hear my squeaky chair? Uh, squeaky chair. Yes. Okay. That's the show. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. What a great way to end the show. <laughs> Oh, I need those jokes. They make me happy. It's been sad. Everything's sad. Jackie makes me laugh. I want to thank all our guests, starting with Dave Cyrus. Congratulations on your Emmy nomination. Uh, Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny. Read him over at Down With Tyranny. David Cobb. I just heard from Dr. Harriet Fraud. She's fine. She'll be back with us next Monday. She was working late. And uh, then we had at 8.30, Professor Adnan Hussein, followed by Peter B. Collins, and then Professor Marianne Cummings, and then Professor Mike Steinel, and of course, Jackie the Joke Man Martling. We're going to go right now to, uh, we have uh, Andy Brown, reporting live from uh, the hurricane. Are you there, Andy? Andy, come in. Andy, can you can you come in, Andy? Andy. 
Andy, we, we see you, Andy. You got to get the microphone and walk over to the camera. Andy, this way, Andy, we want to get a report on. OK, I guess uh, we're not going to be getting a uh, I guess we're not getting a weather report from Andy Brown. <laughs> office hours and hours, 24 hours of office hours this Friday night at eight. If you would like to attend a live taping, uh, go to my website. All right. That's the show. Watch how slick I am. <clears throat> um, that's the show. I'm David Feldman. Watch how I'm, I'm going to go right to uh, the closing. Remember to uh, stay strong and protect the weak. Right, Reverend Bemelman? These vaccines are going to quit working on every corner until this nation falls to her knees and repents for dead babies and repents for the sodomy of this nation. Thank you, Reverend Bemelman. Uh, have a great evening. What are you having for dinner tonight, Pastor Bemelman? Dead babies. Hmm. That doesn't that doesn't sound uh, appetizing, Rabbi Bemelman. What's your favorite movie on Pornhub? What is your favorite movie on Pornhub, Pastor Bemelman? Nope. The sodomy of this nation. What? The sodomy of this nation? Oh, is that directed by D.W. Griffith? The sodomy of this nation? Okay. All right. Any Anything else you'd like to add, Pastor Bemelman? Dead babies! All right. That's our show. I'm going to wrap it up. Here we go. I got to find... We don't have our usual... Uh, I don't have uh, uh, Pastor Bemelman. I don't have uh, our theme song wrap up. I didn't have time. Is there anything you'd like to look at? Dead babies. All right. No, 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 no. How about uh, <laughs> that is going to get played a lot. Uh, let's end with some Professor uh, Mike Steinel. Hey, <clears throat> Pastor Bemelman, what's your favorite Mike Steinel? What's your favorite song by Professor Mike Steinel? The sodomy of this nation. Okay, but I haven't made a, a video of that yet. Is there anything else? <laughs> anything else? Any other songs of Professor uh, Mike Steinel's that you love? Dead babies. Okay, I can find that. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. Let me find. Uh, where is it? Okay. Uh, thank you, everybody. I'm David Feldman. <laughs> I love that guy. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. I'm traveling light. Got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bell novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. 
I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket in case I get a chill. I'm traveling late. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A fifth of tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender. I'm traveling late. In case I have some visitors For breeze if I'm really stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light Got my rabbi costume and my portable dark room, my hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read. Some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A. And my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list. These vaccines are going to quit working on every corner until this nation falls to her knees and repents for dead babies and repents for the sodomy of this nation. 